It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. You tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. Welcome, welcome to the mop up for December. What is it? 28th. It's December 28th, 2020. I'm David Feldman. This is episode 105 for season 11. We have one more show left for season 11. We start season 12 next week. We're doing a New Year's show. We will be here Thursday night from 5 till 11 Eastern Standard Time with our usual crew of misfits and intellectuals and ne'er-do-wells. We'll be doing a New Year's Eve show the same way we did Christmas Eve. And before we go to uh, Melania, First Lady Melania Trump, let's go to Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom to talk about what we have coming up this week and and what we did last weekend. Now, as as memory serves, we did not have a pay-per-view event last Saturday, but what we did do Christmas night at 9 p.m., we launched the inaugural edition of Office Hours and Hours. It's a new new thing we're doing here. It's Office Hours and Hours, 24 straight hours of education, laughs, and friends. It was more successful than I could have possibly imagined. We had Professor Marianne Cummings do an hour on particle physics. We had Professor John talking about the plight of the middle class. We had Professor Ian Faluna talking about Sufi poetry. We had Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Anna Lee talking about the carceral state. Sarah Bush didn't cook a cheesecake. She cooked a meringue pie, as I understand. I, I slept through that. Emil Guillermo and his wife, Kathy, she's the executive director of People for 
the ethical treatment of animals. They did an hour. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn and his wife, Dr. Joanne Lynn, did an hour. I know I'm missing stuff. Henry Huckamacki did an hour. It, Tom it was and Barb Weber. Tom and Barb Weber. Did an hour of music. It was great. And Ken uh, Man. Ken Man. Ken Man. So this is this is why I always think show business or whatever we're doing here uh, is certainly not a business and there's no show. But the only way you can pull this off is you have to have you have to have it. You have to have a leap of faith in people. Otherwise, the whole thing crumbles. So Professor Ben Burgess, who is very, you know, very significant professor. Right. Especially on this show. Yep. He called me. He said, I've been bumped. I had the four o'clock slot, but Ken Mann has it. Who's Ken Mann? I said, I have no idea. He says he's from Glasgow, Scotland, and he's going to talk about pimps and gimps. But he signed up and I have to honor the process. And Professor Ben Berger said, OK, I signed up for four p.m., but it accidentally registered as four a.m. I said, we'll do it next week. Let's give this guy, Ken Mann, his, you know, he signed up without a doubt. Right. Without a doubt. One of the greatest things I've ever seen a man do in his closet. I, I think it's up there with Carradine up there. I, I, that's it's David or Keith Carradine. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody perform show tunes like that doing Danny Kay, who was doing a little Zero Mostel, the history of the American songbook from a man's closet. He's a, an expat in Glasgow. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And I was watching Professor Adnan Hussein watching it. The tears were coming down our, our cheeks. And the greatest comment, I've learned how to read the chat room, Dave M. wrote. So you, you got to picture Ken Mann, this beautiful human being who's got a I guess an 18 month old child and he's in Glasgow I don't know I don't know how he ended up in Glasgow I know he's an American and he's in his closet with a, a really nice USB microphone performing show tunes <laughs> <laughs> and re and it's educational He's putting it in context. He, and he talks about Tom Lehrer. I mean, he did he did a half hour alone on Tom Lehrer. And Dave M. in the chat room writes in the middle of one of Ken's frenetic songs. I think he was doing Danny Kay. Dave M. writes, Ken does this all the time. This is the first time there's ever been a camera on him. <laughs> And I completely, I could not stop laughing at that comment. The idea that Ken, that Ken Man sings show tunes in his closet. But this was the first time there's ever a camera on it. That him. comment was so good because Ken, he really did look comfortable. It wasn't uh -huh. weird. It was just, yeah, it was great. It, the whole thing was great. The yeah. whole thing, I, I'm leaving out names. I got to about one in the morning or two in the morning, then I had a bailout, something was going on. And then I came back at two in the afternoon. I had my first cup of coffee and there's Professor Marianne Cummings teaching particle physics, talking about nuclear reactors. It was exactly what I wanted. And it's just going to keep getting it's going to get better and better. It just is. Uh, Andy Brown did a great job. 
and everything is in Discord now. And I've been going through the chat room. If you subscribe to my newsletter, I grabbed a lot of clips that were recommended in the chat room and in Discord. So if you got today's newsletter in preparation for episode 11105, there's some things I included. Uh, like my name is Luca, which I had forgotten. I think Karen Emerson posted my name is Luca and I had forgotten. I always complain. How come there? How come every song is about love? And then I see my name is Luca and I go, oh, yeah, there's a song that's not about love. Uh, some Guns and Roses. Uh, we also posted in the newsletter. And is Dave M. the guy who is who paid two hundred and fifty dollars for a private public humiliation of me? Dave A. I'm a, I'm a Toronto. Oh, who was the one who wrote about Ken Mann that this is what he normally does in the closet? It's the only first time he was ever on camera. Is it the same guy? I am not sure. I'm eyeballing the chat. Okay. To see if anyone comes up with it. The point sure. I'm making is we had a very successful benefits with friends the Saturday before last, and we raised money for all the people who put on our our benefits. One of the tiers that the uh, the crew came up with is if you pay $250, there will be a private public humiliation of David Feldman. I didn't think anybody would cough up $250 for a private public humiliation. Well, this Wednesday night at 9 p.m., I will be publicly, privately humiliated on Zoom, and none of you were invited. Who, who paid for this? Somebody paid. I guess he wants to keep it secret. We should not. Dave, Dave A. Dave A paid $250. <laughs> and just so you know, Jim Earl will be there and my daughter, and they are preparing a PowerPoint of photographs of me as I went through various stages throughout my life, different tastes in clothes and hair plug styles. So it's going to be, it, it, it's limited. It's, it's a private, this is a private dance for Dave. What's this guy's name? Amatrano. Amatrano. <laughs> we gave away his might, name. You might be dancing. We discussed you yeah. might be dancing. I may have to do the latest TikTok dance. The, the people who, put on the benefits there there there's a group a core group of people who do these benefits who produce these benefits that make these shows happen they came up with a list of publicly private humiliations i think they involve nipple clamps you hope so i hope so <laughs> <laughs> and the only person who can see it is the sadist dave and his friend Jeffrey Tubin. I have a feeling he's going to pull a Tubin. So before we go to Melania, because we have to take care of business, we are doing Diabetic Fury number four this Saturday. It's pay what you want. I don't have the copy, Dan. I looked for it. So if you, I'll, I'll why don't you read you it again? Why don't you read? I, I don't. I don't have it in front of me on this computer. I, I can't so. find anything today. That's okay. I'll get it. I'll get it to you, and we'll do it in between. So okay. I'll, I'll very quickly discuss what what we're doing and where we're at with our gifts. So I keep my word. If you've been listening to the show for the past eleven years, and 
I know it seems like last week's show was the past 11 years. I keep my word. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something. If I say we're going to do a 24-hour office hours, we're going to do a 24-hour office hours. If we're going to do a benefit on Saturday, we're going to do it. If two people show up, we're going to do it. I keep my word. Now, we are behind. We are behind on postcards and some of the thank you gifts. It's my fault. I keep my word. Some of you did not get these gifts in time for Christmas. That is my fault. I take full responsibility and I beg for your forgiveness. We're flying by the seat of our pants. This is no longer a one man operation, so I don't have that excuse. We have a team now of people who are producing these benefits and we got uh, what's the term a little ahead of ourselves on our skis we did more benefits than we had the we have a backlog of mailings to go out so here here is what i promise you if you attended diabetic fury number three i can't in good conscience promote diabetic four for this saturday unless all the tears have been delivered so I promise you, we, we've sent out most of the stuff for uh, Diabetic 3 that we owe everybody. I have not sent out the, my postcards, and there have been some postcards. The limited edition postcards have not been sent out. They will be sent out before Diabetic 4 on Saturday. You, you have my word. And then as we go along, we're our pro, we're. We're going to learn where the choke points are and how to do this more efficiently. We grew a little faster than how much did we raise total this year? Uh, $11,234. Does that include the benefit for the people who put on the benefits? No. Okay, so we grew a lot faster than I thought we were going to grow. And I apologize. So it's my fault. My eyes are bigger than my stomach, and I pushed people way too hard, especially during their, the, the, the holidays. So, again, you will get your, your gifts, and, your, and we're going to do this right now. We're going to take care of one of the tiers. One of the tiers is you get a shout-out from First Lady Melania Trump. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where the First Lady of the United States is standing by. Please welcome FLOTUS. Hello, baby. First of all, First Lady, I, I cannot thank you enough. You guys are going, you, you flew all the way back from Mar-a-Lago to, to the White House to do this. And I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and helping out with your shard outs. Shout outs. Shout out. Yes. And by the way, this is how great you are as a first lady. You're going to be appearing this Saturday night at 930 at Diabetic Fury number four. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. This is going to be a spectacular event. I, 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 I can't hear you. What did you say? It is going to be a spectacular event. And not only that, somehow you have coerced your, your husband. What's his name again? Tonel. Yeah, he's going to be there with you. And I, and I hear word is 
the, the two of you are going to sing Baby It's Cold Outside. Is that true? You're working on a song. I'm not making this up. They're working on a song. Melania and yes, Donald Trump are, are gonna, working <laughs> on it. Yes. You're going to sing Baby It's Cold Outside. Yes. That I cannot wait to, to. I mean, that's worth the price of admission. Donald Trump, who, as I understand it, will be played by comedy genius Robert Smigel. Robert Smigel. Yes. Robert Smigel. We will also have Rick Overton. Rick, Rick Overton, Overton will show up. Emmy Award winning comedian actor Rick Overton and maybe Larry Wachuski will show oh. up. That's that Diabetic Fury this Saturday night at 9.30 p.m. It's pay what you want. You know, the economy has gone to the crapper, not because it's your husband's fault, Melania, but nobody has any money. So it's pay what you want. And then they're added tears. And it's my fault that some of you haven't gotten your. We haven't fulfilled some of the orders. We're learning how to do it. I've got uh, before we go to Melania. I said to the the crew, Dan, can I call you the crew now? What do I what do I call the people who put the shows together? Crew is great. The crew is good. I said, go look at some merchandise from my old store that I don't use anymore because it's non-union and pick something and add it to a tier. For some reason, you guys added the Chris Christie mug. There's a there's a mug of Chris Christie in his baseball outfit with his I think it's called a gunt, right? Where the the, f, the gut is pouring over his rancid nub of a penis in his little league outfit. It's one of the great pictures of all time. So I put that on a shower curtain. Some listener bought it as a Chris Christie shower curtain, and you guys put it on a coffee mug. And I bailed on it last week. I said, nobody's going to buy this. So I didn't promote it. And we have to I have to make 20 Chris Christie mugs now. As usual, he is plugging everything up. <laughs> so we're, we're I apologize. I had no idea that we'd have to somehow manufacture 20 Chris Christie mugs uh, anyway. Let's take care of some business right now. The first shout out, shout out, goes to Jonathan Bick, who these are people who have paid to attend Diabetic Fury. And one of the tiers is to have the first lady of the United States give a shout out to them. This is for Jonathan Bick. Shout out. Hello, Leviathan Dick. <laughs> It's Jonathan Dick, not Leviathan Dick. Leviathan Dick. Oh, who cares already, okay? That is what I said. So shut up with the slamming of the first wife of the United American <laughs> leader. The greatest of all time. Yes. I am not faking Spanish accent like Ilaria Baldwin, am I? <laughs> so shut the fuck up with all of your whining. Boo-hoo, I am sick, blah, blah. His name, is, jo his name is Jonathan Bick. Jonathan Leviathan Dick. Leviathan, you're, you're confusing Moby Dick 
with Leviathan, which was Leviathan Geek. I think. This is your shout out from first feasted lady <laughs> of the United States, Melania Trump. Take it or leave it. <laughs> For soon, I will be showing my teats in pepperoni penis-shaped Florida at Mar-a-Logo and selling vegan BBS boxes on Rodeo Drive. Well, okay. Thank you, First Lady, for for thanking Jonathan Bick, who uh, paid to come to to, uh, Diabetic Fury 3. Thank you for that. I I didn't know that uh, Mar-a-Lago was peroni-shaped. That's not the only thing that is Peroni penis shape. <laughs> okay, this next Melania shout out goes to Ryan Refner. Could you repeat that name for me, please? Okay, this next Melania shout out goes to Ryan Refner. Lion Heffer. No, no, no. Ryan. Hello! Ryan Lion Heffer. No. His name is Ryan Refner. That is what I said. Hello, Lion Heffer. This is Melania, first lady, with your fart out for you. <laughs> it's not. It's a shard out. Not a fart out. It's a shard out. And it's not a shard out. It's a shout out. That is what you think. <laughs> Look, Lion Heffer. <laughs> I have two suggestions for you. To be be, 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 be best. <laughs> Stop lying and lose some weight. Oh, that's not nice. Melania has never weight problem because she gets all of her diet tips from Dr. Jill Biden. Oh. Is she a doctor? Yes, Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill Biden, that's right. Yes, lying Heather is a very smart person to listen to Feldman's show. Thank you. Did you know David graduated from Columbia's University, founded in 1897 by a guy who drank bong water? (laughs) Who gives a fuck, right? I can say whatever Melania wants now, because before you can blink your squinty Botox eyes, (laughs) I will be lounging in Sunshine State the world capital of variant jeans and home of flippers violated blowhole. <laughs> now go drown your sorrows in a vat of peanut milk, you loser. Oh, thank you very much. First lady. First lady, the greatest of all time. You're most the most elegant in American history, first lady, not given a single cover shoot while on well, toenail in office. Yes. For those of you who do not know me. Thank you. Yes. Well, let me, let me plug. I have the copy now for Diabetic Fury number four. And while we're waiting on Henry Huckamack and Grace Jackson to do the news with us. And then Jim Earl, I have to, we're, he's going to have to come back later if he's available. But let me. Let me plug Diabetic Fury for an evening of diabetes awareness this Saturday night, January 2nd at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. What's going to happen is we're going to do office hours from Friday night at 9 p.m. till Saturday at 9 p.m. And then we at 9.30 go right into Diabetic Fury number four. 
That will be done in the webinar. Uh, the meeting room is where we do office hours. Anyway, the, the new year is fast approaching, listeners. And my resolution is to raise money to help friends of the show weather these bad, bad times. So this Saturday, January 2nd, we're hosting another evening of entertainment to benefit Diabetic Fury. As always at Diabetic Fury, I'll be joined by comedy writer and diabetes advocate Jim Earl and artist, as well as the voice of First Lady Melania Trump, as well as Susan Collins, Paula Dean, and so many more, Martha Previtt. We've got an amazing night of entertainment for you, featuring guests including Robert Smigel, who will be doing Trump, maybe Rudy, and uh, that that's great that we have Robert. It's just amazing. Uh, it, anyway, it, it's uh, incredible that Robert has agreed to do this. Uh, and Rick Overton. And Rick is a brilliant stand-up comic and performer who you recognize from countless movies and television shows. So, yeah, as you know, as you know, David, all these people swore they would never, ever do your show again. So I think it's it's a a great honor. Right. But they don't know they're doing my show. They just they've been told it's diabetic fury. They, They would never come back on my show, Jim. Well, that's a good point. This is like old times. Rick Overton and Robert Smigel. This is how this podcast first started at the Fake Gallery. And maybe we'll get Larry Wachuski to come by. And then the circle is complete. We will have reunited almost everybody except for Eddie. That would be be great if we could get periodic commentary from a man in a uh, woodchuck costume. Well, Well, reach out to him. So... As always, solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. The world is trash, but we're making it better bit by bit with these benefits. So spread the word and join us Saturday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for Diabetic Fury. Now, I know times are tough, so we've added the option to pay what you can. We want to raise as much money as we can, but we also want to invite you to come. And if you only have a dollar, we'll take it. And thank you for your dollar uh yeah pay what you can and we'll be as funny as we want (laughs) (laughs) yes i like can you can you uh can you add that to the to the title of the show that's great uh, to get your tickets, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and click on the pay-per-view tab. Now, if you're watching us on YouTube right now or you're in the Zoom room, don't do it quite yet. We haven't loaded it. Do it in about three hours. But if you're listening to the podcast, do it right now. So to get your tickets, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Click on pay-per-view. We'll take you right to Eventbrite. And you can purchase tickets for Diabetic Fury number four. You need to have an Eventbrite account and you need to have Zoom. Here are the tiers. Our pay what you can tier gives you access to the show, plus a limited edition Martha Previtt original postcard. So we've talked about Martha's art besides doing Martha Stewart, Paula Dean, Melania and Susan Collins. She is an artist. I, I think she went to art school. Didn't you go to art school, Martha? I graduated from 
Skidmore College. Right. And uh, so everybody who shows up for Diabetic Fury, whether you pay a dollar or a billion dollars, you all get a limited edition signed postcard of a Martha Previtt original. These are collector's items or ephemera, as we call it. You can call me Dr. Previtt. Dr. Previtt. You do have a law degree, don't you? I do. I also have a law degree. Okay. All right. Yes. Let that be a lesson to you kids. This is what a law degree gets you. <laughs> thank you, Daddy. Jacking up photos now, of Melania now Trump. I show you my teeth. Yes, thank you. We, 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 I, I need to speed this up, so let me go through the tiers, which uh, I'm seeing for the first time. The super generous ticket is $30. You get the postcard with Martha's artwork and admission to the show and the satisfaction that you're super generous. I'll throw in a postcard for the super generous ticket. At $50, you get the Previtt special with the postcard, admission to the show, plus a special on-air shard-out from First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump, or one of Martha's other amazing characters. And we are posting all these shard-outs on YouTube, so they will be there in perpetuity. We haven't posted them yet, but we will. Uh, we're going to have all her shard-outs on my YouTube channel, so you can send them to friends if you're in need of medication. I don't know why you would send it. At $50, you get the Previtt special with the postcard, admission to the show, plus a special on-air shout-out uh, from the First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump. Shout-out. Oh, shout-out. Say it correct. Shout-out. Shout-out from First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump, or one of Martha's other amazing characters. So we have two options for $100. One is the script. Nobody ever, we're going to do this? Nobody ever goes for this. This includes both both the postcard and a copy of the Diabetic Fury script signed by Jim, Martha, and David. The second is the defacing. This includes the postcards and a book, quote-unquote, annotated by Jim Earl. Uh, the books include Promise Me Dad by Joe Biden or Joey, the story of Joe Biden by Dr. Jill Biden. I think this is a good idea. Jim will deface a book for you. That's uh, $100. Uh, or you get a copy of the script for $100 plus all the other gifts. For $220. I'll also do the, yeah. I'll also do the Holy Bible. You mean the oral history oh, of the daily, uh, the oral history of the daily show? What would you be more frightened to do to deface the Bible or the oral history of the daily show? All oh, oral history of the daily show. Much more. A lot of power behind that production. Yeah, even the old, be able to win even the Old Testament God isn't as vindictive and vengeful as Jon Stewart. <laughs> For 200 for 225 but he's more talented huh i'm sorry um but he's more he's a little more talented john is well, the old testament god oh the old god. testament yeah for 225 dollars you get melania art melania art that's an original piece of artwork by the first lady herself martha previtt plus the postcard there is one piece available now. It's entitled The Art of the Bigley Toenail, Portrait Number 3, Melania Sitting with Barton and Meat. And if you haven't seen this, 
go to YouTube to look at it. I'll also post it on my website and in the newsletter. You have to see this is an original multimedia collage done by Martha. And it's you want it. No art collection is complete without this original work of art by Martha Previtt. And in our top tier ticket for two fifty, we have uh, two other options. We hardly knew ye uh, gets you the show, the postcard, plus Jim Earl will write your obituary and read it on the David Feldman show and send you a signed copy of his book, Morning Remembrance. Finally, it's David Feldman's public humiliation, which you don't want. This is, trust me, for $250, you get the postcard plus an invite to a private Zoom event where I will be subject to a variety of humiliating verbal lashings. Jim, uh, my daughter, they're going to have a PowerPoint presentation. I think John Ross will enjoy this. A couple of my friends will do a private humiliation of yours truly, David Feldman, in private, just for you. We're doing one at 9 o'clock Wednesday for Dave, Dave A. And uh, I don't think, I think this will be the last one we do because I can't imagine anybody paying $250. I know, it's too cheap. Yeah, for me to be humiliated. Plus, it's going to be cruel because... Uh, Jim and John get under my skin. Once again, visit DavidFeldmanShow.com and click pay-per-view to purchase your tickets for Diabetic Fury this Saturday, January 2nd at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Let's make this fundraiser a success. Come, invite your friends. Make sure to spread the ticket info far and wide. It's pay what you want. We want to see you there. And I look forward to to working once again with Martha Previtt, Rick Overton, Jim Earl, Dave Cyrus, who will be writing it, as will Jim, and of course, Rick Overton and Robert Smigel. So thank you. Well. David, you forgot to mention another thing. If yes. I may add another thing. Yes. The artist Martha Previtt is willing to do a portrait of Feldo the Clown. Aren't you working on a portrait of Feldo the Clown? Yes, she is working. I have commissioned Marta Previtt to do your portrait, and that will also be available for the Eventbrite event on Saturday. Okay, great. Details will be coming soon and will be posted on the Eventbrite page. So stay tuned, everybody's. Don't get sick and Heil Hitler. Well, uh, we're going to do the news with uh, Henry Huckamacki and Grace Jackson. Let's first go to Great Britain, where Grace Jackson is standing by. She's our royal correspondent. We don't have a title for you yet. I, I, I want something that will be degrading, that, uh, belong, <laughs> that belittles your expertise and let's go to the upper peninsula of michigan where henry huckamacki is also standing by hello you two hello david thank you very Hi. thank you for doing this usually i do the news with jim and john ross but uh i figured we'd mix it up a little and hopefully jim will come back later um uh 
flying by the seat of my ah that's a bad excuse i'm messing up today that's it uh grace I, am i allowed to show the picture you sent me of your animals oh sure okay i i chickened out we'll do it later all right let's do the news this is where you get your news this is here we go all right let's start with the weather hello weather that's a very british place to start david we like talking about the weather well britain will be buried in up to six inches of snow new year's eve is that correct Mm. am i reading that properly yeah with the 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 capital letters there six inches um i have seen snow predicted we don't have any snow where i am in the northwest but i imagine we might get a little bit and this country does not do well uh with snow so you know a bit of context that's why this headline is kind of freaking out you're a temperate isn't it a temperate client your climate is temperate right 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 so we very rarely get actual snow um certainly not on the on the level that you do in in new england um or new york and we just don't know what to do when it snows our roads uh become unpassable and uh everything kind of shuts down so much like i mean much like COVID, really right henry do you get snow in uh, michigan this time of year Oh, yeah. Particularly the Upper Peninsula. We have some of the highest snowfall totals in the entire North America because of our position just to the south of Lake Superior. We get lake effect snow quite frequently. The single day snowfall record for the UP uh, was back in the 80s. It was in Herman. It was 32 inches in a single day. And uh, for a year, our record was in, I believe, the winter of 79 in Mohawk. It was 390.4 inches of snow that year. Okay. Storm Bella has been lashing the UK. Mm. What yeah, is that? Rain? Was, is that is like a hurricane? What is? What do you get up there? Yeah, it was very, very heavy rain and really windy. That was while I was doing 24-hour office hours. Oh, by the way, I missed your... What did you talk about? I heard you had some kind of competition, a debating challenge, where people had to debate the merits of Tabasco sauce versus hot peppers. What what were you you doing? I I basically lowered the tone of the whole setup. I I am originally planned to talk about China, but... <clears throat> at the last minute, I, I got this urge to to play a party game. Um, maybe it's kind of lockdown fever. But so what I did was I led people through a drinking game without any drink. And, and that sounds like um, my office hours crew. It was a train wreck. That's what you wanted, right? Yep, yep. And are you doing office hours and hours this Friday? Yes. Good. And Henry, yeah, and have I you- will be. Henry, are you going to do office hours and hours? Uh, this week, potentially, if you want me. I always want Henry. Here we go. Okay. I guess that decides that. I'll just have to figure out something to talk about. We'll find something. Brexit. Let's talk about Brexit. Boris Johnson says he is satisfied with the deal, but he let financial services down. I guess Brexit was a success because... They protected the fishermen, which 
are like less than 1% of your GDP. And he says he didn't deliver on financial services. So did the banks get screwed by Brexit or did all of Great Britain get screwed because they're about to get screwed by the banks? I would assume the banks are going to screw. I, I bet the banks did very well because of Brexit, right? Yeah, I'm not really buying this idea that the banks have been totally let down by the Conservative Party. That would be quite unprecedented. Is there any on this show? We're knee jerks. If Boris Johnson is for it, we're against it. Brexit came to us around the same time as Donald Trump. It's about nationalism. It's about racism. But I have been reading that it's also about something other than money, about identity. And I've heard people who aren't racist, who who aren't nationalists, who have accepted Brexit and say it's actually going to improve the lives of Great Britain in ways that can't be quantified by the traditional yardsticks like GDP and trade imbalances. Is there any anything positive since Brexit, I guess, is now taking place? Is there anything you like about it? I mean, Ringo Starr is for Brexit, and so is Eric Clapton and, and Van Morrison. Johnny Rotten, maybe. <laughs> um, I, I think there is, look, I think there's a, there's a strong left-wing case for Brexit, um, which is the Lexit, they call it, <laughs> this uh, horrible term. But um, the problem is, is that we were not, we were not sold a Lexit. We were sold a very uh, nationalistic kind of xenophobic version of Brexit. And that is the Brexit that Boris Johnson is going to is going to lead us into. So I, I think, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm very open to arguments that, you know, not being a part of the EU might be good for Britain. Um, I haven't been convinced by any of the arguments I've heard yet, but, um, what, yeah, what would just, be, what would be selling that? What, what would be an argument that. in favor of Brexit that, that the left, that the left would support? I think just the idea that we would be removing ourselves from the, the European Union, which has been, broadly speaking, uh, a neoliberal project. Right. Um, I don't want to speak too much to the kind of financial implications because I'm not an expert on that. But I know that there are strong leftist critiques of the EU, particularly if you look at the way the EU treated its member states um, like during Greece. the financial crisis. Greece, the Greeks, specific, yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, and so I'm very open to that. But, the, you know, the Brexit we were sold was a very different Brexit. They and do dictate. Do Brexit, by the way? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the only thing I would have added is that, yeah, just reiterating the point that the EU has essentially acted as a multinational institution of austerity, particularly right. in the cases of Greece and Italy as well, uh, Spain to some extent, where they've imposed austerity from outside of the sovereign borders of those countries onto the people of those countries. Uh, they literally say 
the, the EU dictates the percentage of your GDP that can be debt. Can you imagine if America had to adhere to that? And that's certainly- well, and you know that if it was the U.S., we wouldn't be cutting the military budget. We would be cutting all sorts of social services. Right. Right. When you when you impose austerity on a population, you have a miseration of the population. That's that's the bottom line. And that's why if you have uh, it, it is quite easy to make a left wing critique of the EU. We just articulated one that was quite simple to do. The problem, as Grace said, is that the the cr- critique of the EU that was proposed by, uh, you know, members of the Brexit party and, and you know, Nigel Farage and uh, individuals like that. They didn't focus on those valid, you know, left wing critiques of the EU. They took a very nationalistic pose. So instead of t- being a Lexit, as Bre- uh, as Grace said, it was more of a like a fascese, fascese <laughs> exit. I, you know, uh, that was kind of the issue there. Great. And also, David, just before we move on, I think it's worth pointing out that there's like a there's going to be a lot of money made off Brexit by British elites, um, particularly those within the Conservative Party and probably the actual architects of Brexit have a lot of vested interests in the way this is going to play out. So that's something to keep your eye on, I think. Well, I I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but what is Megxit? Oh, my God. Uh, so Harry and Meghan have have sort of formally distanced themselves from the royal family. I believe they've relocated to North America. Yes. Um, is it the U.S. or Canada? Well, they, they first they went to Canada, Canada and then hopped over here. This is Henry's very mm. passionate about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm very passionate like, about monarchies insofar as I believe that they should not exist. Oh, Henry, we all know you watched The Royal Wedding. (laughs) I did not. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I wish I owned show business because, Grace, next time there's a royal wedding and I own show business, I would send Henry to cover it. It'd be like the scene from A Clockwork Orange with my eyes pinned open. So Harry and Meghan want a 12-month extension before they make Megxit official. I guess uh, Harry wants to officially attend Prince Philip's 100th birthday, I guess, in June. And he still wants back in. And he says that uh, Meghan and Kate, they exchanged gifts for Christmas. So William and Harry are apparently talking but they really they were not treated properly by the the firm were they my theory this is my theory about what happened around christmas around this time last year prince andrew was coming off that disastrous panorama interview where he was defending his friendship oh, with Jeffrey Epstein. The sweaty one. The sweaty the one. Where sweaty he, one. Yeah. He said, I, I, I stayed with Jeffrey to tell him I could no longer stay with him. I, I, I felt like it was important that I be there personally and live with him for a week to tell him that we could no longer be friends. It was a disaster. He showed up at Sandringham for Christmas, I think, drunk, out of his mind. Megan looked took one look at Andrew and said, this is how Archie's going to end up. 
I'm out of here. This is sick. And next thing you know, they're off to Canada. I think that's quite a charitable interpretation of the Mexit. Um, <laughs> I, I think, yes, that's um, quite possible. Uh, and that's a very human interpretation, certainly. But I think that isn't there also a huge incentive for them to kind of launch themselves off into the world as their own brand? You know, the world is their oyster. They've just signed a big podcast deal, I believe. Yes. For hundreds of millions of dollars with Spotify. I told Spotify I would do it for half of what you're paying them. They didn't even. So you, you think they're they're thinking. I always think of Harry just trying to survive. But you think he's got his eyes on the big horizon. He's dealing with Michelle and Barack and David Geffen. Yeah, I think he wants to be with the cool people, you know, and he, he looks at his family and they don't have much of a cool factor anymore um, if they ever did. And I think he wants to be part of the kind of global, the glamorous global 1%, you know, and, and also get into philanthropy and all of those things that you have to do if you're part of the, right. the global 1%. Um, the Invictus games, maybe. I mean, those are, the, you gotta, you got I don't know how you cannot love the royal family. I don't, I don't oh, understand. I'm serious. How can you not love Harry and, and Prince Philip? The guy's going to be a hundred. Well, I think it has something to do with if you want, if you can kind of, when you've grown up in this, in, in, in Britain, you look at these people and you see kind of archetypes like Harry is the guy who showed up to the party in the Nazi uniform. That's why I love him. <laughs> and he got away with it because he's a lad and he's, you know, he didn't mean it. But I, I just I he, I don't they are, they, to me, they are metaphors for ourselves and for our families our relationships and our countries writ large and that their struggles are our struggles and they're not God on earth, obviously not, but they're trying to uphold certain certain standards and they give up their entire life. They really do give up their lives to serve the nation. They, it's a miserable way to live. It is the short of death. It's the ultimate sacrifice. They have no choice. They have no freedom. They are less free than their subjects. In some ways, um, I, I think I take issue with the idea that their struggles are our struggles and that we can look at them as some kind of, you know, to see the, the psychodrama within ourselves playing out in them. I think they have their own very specific issues, which, you know, come from growing up in an atmosphere where you're not allowed to emote or be vulnerable. Um, and so I don't, I don't find them particularly relatable. Uh, you see, I do. I, I believe that I should have been Prince Charles. I'm serious. Let me have a word on monarchies, David. Go ahead. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can say it is about the royal family, but uh, it's about monarchies more generally. The last full episode that we did of guerrilla history, 
was with a guest who was at the at the leading edge of a successful revolution to dissolve a monarchy. And that's the kind of discourse regarding monarchies that I support. All right. You you don't know what it's like to be a prince with no no kingdom. You don't know what it's like to be me. What do you see in Prince Charles exactly, David? Uh bad hair, <laughs> overbearing mother, uh never lived up to his uh potential. Uh I I think I would like to be a prince. I think I could do it well. I would like somebody to put the toothpaste on my toothbrush for me. And just, I'm joking. But anyway, well, we have our own royal asshole, Donald Trump. And he invited Patrick Byrne to the White House last month. He started Overstock.com. And... Byrne has given interviews saying that Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell are doing a piss poor job keeping Donald Trump in the White House. And if that's not bad enough, Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne this weekend says that the Nashville suicide bombing was not a suicide bombing, but was instead a missile strike on a spy hub that's used by the National Security Agency in Tennessee and AT&T. How do you get how do you get to be that rich, that successful and be that stupid? Or is that the only way you can be rich and successful? You have to be that stupid. Henry, I think it's, I think you have to be I think if you met Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, Ted Turner, who started CNN. I think they're just as stupid as Patrick Byrne. The only difference is they know to keep their mouth shut. Yeah, I think that there's two camps that they can pretty much fall in. One is the camp of individuals who are master marketers, master uh, advertisers. They're really great at pushing their product and they kind of built up their empire through their own sheer persona and their own marketing ability. That's, that's one camp. And those individuals can be incredibly dim in just about every other respect. But as long as they're good at marketing and advertising and pushing their brand, they're going to end up in those positions of power. The other camp of people are people that aren't inherently stupid, but once they get up into positions of some sort of power within these companies, they begin gaslighting people. Now, whether this individual is in the former group or the latter group of gaslighting people into believing these conspiracy theories, I don't know. It could be either. He could be some nincompoop who was a very good marketeer. All right, let me ask Grace this question. And then was just a nincompoop. Or he could be gaslighting people. I I have no way of saying for sure. Henry and Grace, you're scholars. You are. You are. You spend a lot of your time reading. The people who run these corporations do not spend all day reading. Joe Biden does not spend all day reading. He is not a reader. So if you're not reading, if you're busy running things in about two years, you're an idiot. 
right? If you're not sitting and spending four or five hours every morning reading because you're too busy running a corporation, there's there's a an expiration date on your value. In about three years, you become an idiot. I think that that's true in certain in certain fields. So, you know, if you're talking to a scientist who hasn't read any scientific literature in the past five years, his idea of how things work is going to be completely outdated. If you're talking to somebody who's in advertising, you know, I don't know. I'm not an expert in advertising. In fact, I'm quite awful at it. But I don't know if the methods of advertising change rapidly from year to year. I, I would tend to doubt that. But again, I have no no expertise in that field but you're right that if you're not reading things or taking up new information on a variety of subjects that over time you're going to be so completely out of what the real world is like and having any sort of historical context to be able to analyze current events that your worldview is going to be massively distorted i I do think that that's the case Um, i think there's definitely a sense in which if you're running a big company, you're a CEO, you don't actually need to pay attention to current events. All you need to know is, is the stock market going up or down? And, you know, there's this, there's this other um, kind of type of CEO, which I always find really funny. The CEO who reads like 50 uh, books on management and, you know, organizational culture, uh, how to be a great boss, and you always see these articles that kind of pop up saying like, this guy, he reads so much all the time. And the books that they're reading are just these like dry, awful like pieces on, you know, how to convince your workers that they're actually part of the family and they don't need to form a union. <laughs> or get money. I, I just saw an article uh, a couple days ago, maybe. I don't know if the article was written a few days ago, but I saw the headline a few days ago. Elon Musk's brother said that Elon Musk as a kid would read two books a day, every day, you know. And uh, somebody had juxtaposed that with an interview where Elon Musk said that some book, you know, you know, it took me until like just a couple of years ago to realize that the premise of this book was really messed up. And it was, I don't remember, it was some book where it was, the entire point of it is that the premise was messed up. Right. Like, I don't know if that guy was really reading two books a day when he was a kid. I think that there's some, some sort of clout that they think that they're gaining by saying that they are reading a lot of books, even if they're not. And then as, as you well, said, of Grace, course, they have to make themselves seem erudite and, you know, plugged in. Do they though? Do they? I, I'm not sure that they have to. I think that once you get to a certain level of success, you don't have to come across as you know, the smartest guy in the world. I know yeah, that it's there's the, the halo story. effect. There's, there's the just a halo. About, I believe it's, is it Jimmy Carter that they said that he wrote, read every book in his local library by the time he was 17 years old? Yeah, but he grew they up in Plains, Georgia. How many books were right. there in that they, local library? That, that, was, that was the point. You know, there could have been 100 books in the library. Nobody really knows. There was no records of how many books were in the library, but it was something like that. He was supposed to have read every book by the time he was 17. But once you get to a certain level of success, is saying, you know, when I was a kid, I read a lot of books. Is that really doing anything extra for you? I, you know, I don't think that Donald Trump was elected president because people thought he knew how to read. Right. You know, once you get to that certain level of success, I don't think that there's really any added value, but yet they feel as if they need to validate their own intellect anyway. 
It sort of depends on the culture they're coming from. I think that there's a, there's still a certain kind of CEO who wants to appear, um, you know, both a, a managerial genius and a scholar, and they want to be able to drop the right names at dinner parties and, you know, when they're among their friends and so on. So, I yeah. So but speaking of brilliant minds, guys. Congressman Louis Gohmert from Texas is filing a lawsuit insisting that Vice President Mike Pence will have the ability to reject the Electoral College the first week of January. And he's here's the point. I met Louis Gohmert four years ago in Iowa. I was working on a comedy show. And if you don't know who Louis Gohmert is, look him up on YouTube. He is the dumbest member of Congress. <laughs> but I met him and I realized he's not an idiot. That's what's so terrifying. Louis Gohmert knows his constitution, his law, uh, his Bible. I, I, I mean, ask Congressman Alan Grayson, who is might be the smartest person we've had on the show. He'll tell you that he, he loves Louis Gohmert. All right. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. D David, uh, sorry to interrupt. Was it Louis Gohmert that claimed that his mask gave him COVID after he yes. contracted COVID? Okay, I couldn't remember which Republican <laughs> member of Congress that was, but yeah, yeah they, they claimed that the mask was what caused the COVID. Like, yeah, they spontaneously generated COVID in his system because he wore it. I, I'm telling you, I don't know how to explain this, but when you sit down and talk to Louis Gohmert, you understand why he's been reelected 20 times. It's the same thing with Mike Huckabee. You meet Mike Huckabee. These people are not that stupid. They're, they're smarter than they're I nuts, am. But they're is, not stupid. <laughs> right. Do they just have really good interpersonal skills or something? I, I think we underestimate them at our own peril. I think we have our own yardstick for intelligence and savvy. And the people from Arkansas, where Huckabee is from, and the people of Texas, they have a different measurement of brain power. Mm -hmm. I think Gomert and Huckabee, had they been raised in, you know, if they'd been raised where I was, they would have had a different trajectory and wouldn't be considered fools. I think they're a product of their environment and they should rot in hell. Mm. New York Post. What is, sorry, Dave. I just want to ask Henry, what counts as smart in the Upper Peninsula? If your speed limit is above, uh, if, if your IQ is above city speed limits, then you would generally be considered to be enough. <laughs> sorry to the uh, listeners in the UP. That's just, you know, Henry. couldn't help it. Can you leave your house? No, not really. <laughs> now I understand Hank's shank. Now I understand why you're busy making knives. The New York Post, which gave us Donald Trump. This is one of Rupert Murdoch's rags. Rupert Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and the New York Post. Big headline today in the New York Post. Picture of Donald Trump. Stop the insanity. You lost the election. Here's how to save your legacy. Rupert Murdoch is telling Donald to uh, to give it up. Interesting. This is a piece from the conversation. Pew Research surveyed Biden and Trump voters, and they are deeply divided over our elections on whether or not the elections can be trusted. Uh, the question 
uh, was asked of American voters. They were asked, uh, were the November elections run and administered well? Uh, all voters say 35 percent. All voters, 35 percent of all voters say they were very well administered. 24 percent say somewhat. 59 percent. Uh, what am I looking at? That's uh, the number to the right of the graph is the combination of people that said that it was very well run right. and somewhat well run. Right. So close to close to 60 percent of American voters have faith in the process. If we were to conduct a poll like that in the UK, do you trust that your vote is going to get counted? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the UK on election night, you you have these scenes broadcast on television of people just sat at desks counting papers. And it's usually in the local sports centre or, or, you know, village hall. And it, it does seem very transparent. And I think, broadly speaking, that's one institution over here that hasn't really suffered a crisis of legitimacy. New York will ban most evictions as tenants struggle to pay rent. The New York State Legislature should pass by tonight a bill making it almost impossible to evict any tenants for lack of payment of rent for the next until March. And there will also be some subsidies for landlords. Is that an issue in the UK? Evictions? No, it hasn't been so far. Um, not on a, on a scale like it is in the US anyway. I mean, there's definitely economic hardship, but our furlough scheme which has been paying, I think, 70, 75 or 80% of people's wages if they have to not be working, has been extended uh, well into the new year. And, um, you know, that's just a, a one of the saving graces of the situation here. But you do have the most inequality in the EU. Well, if you were still in the EU, wouldn't Great Britain still have the most economic inequality? I didn't know that, but I can well believe that to be true. We we do have a lot of inequality, but we still have a semblance of a social safety net, even though it has been, you know, degraded by the past 10 years of austerity policies. We do have um, a benefit system, you know, still functioning. One of my neighbors is, is uh, receiving the universal credit and is also furloughed from his job um, and he's still able to to pay his rent and stay in his in his home. Okay. Let's get David, to uh, regarding evictions, I just want to compare New York to France, for example. So uh, what season are we coming into right now? The cold season. New York is cold. I mean, I've never been to New York, but I'm assuming it's relatively chilly there during the winter time. Um, you know, France also has places that get cold in the wintertime. And then like a sensible, uh, dignified, humane country, not that France is always those things all the time, but in this regard, they are. They have a nationwide ban on evictions between, I believe it's November 1st and March 31st every year. Regardless of a not. pandemic. That's just regardless of a pandemic, because they right. don't want people being evicted during the cold months. Then, of course, once it gets to April 1st, 
people that are way back on their pay can be evicted, but they can't be evicted between November 1st and March 31st. Now this year, because of the pandemic, and I don't remember if it was just in Paris that this was done initially, or if it was nationwide all at the beginning, but I think that Paris went ahead with it first and then they followed suit uh, elsewhere. But early on in the pandemic, maybe in April or early May, they saw many people were unemployed uh, or furloughed. And so what they did is they had a a ban on evictions from that date, whatever it was, early May sometime until November 1st, at which point the regular seasonal ban on evictions took over. So essentially they were banning evictions for the entire next 12 months uh, from that point. But I just want to compare the U.S. to France for a second. You have people getting kicked out of their housing in the middle of the winter when it's cold out in the U.S. Compare that to France. Even when there's not a pandemic, they have a ban of about five months every year. What is that? Five months. Yeah. Five months every year where people can't be evicted because it's cold outside and they don't want people freezing to death. That's a little bit more humane than what we have in the U.S., but I just wanted to point that out since I think most people are probably not aware of that. Right. And I should point out that the stimulus ban, the stimulus ban, well, yeah, in many ways it is a ban. The stimulus package included an eviction ban through January. Uh, Although there was a workaround for that. The workaround for that was that, so this was a recommendation, it was a, uh, policy put in place by the CDC where they couldn't evict people because of being late on rent payments because a lot of people were unemployed due to the pandemic. However, it made it way easier. That same that same ban on evictions because of failure to pay rent made it way easier to evict people for any other reason. So if the landlord had any reason, even minor reasons, that they could have evicted you instead of pointing to you're not paying rent, you know, have the auspices of it being for some other reason, they still could evict you. They just couldn't evict you solely for not paying rent. I just want to make sure that that also was clear. Okay. And the House has passed the $2,000 stimulus check to be mailed out. Now it's up to the Senate. And let's see if Donald Trump pushes McConnell to pass the $2,000 checks that he so wanted us to be getting. That'll be interesting. It passed in the House tonight. So that's... They pa- did they pass just a one-time $2,000 check or ongoing? I think it's a one-time check. That, that would be a UBI. Let me see. I believe uh, it was an amendment to add a one-time $2,000 yeah, yeah. check onto it. It would be a, a direct deposit of $2,000. Hopefully I'm eligible for this one. That would be nice. I wasn't eligible for the last one. Okay. Well, let's talk about something that uh, I think Henry's familiar with, and that would be COVID. Never heard of it, David. Never heard of it. By the way, when are we doing our next COVID Town Squares? I think the 16th, whatever that Saturday is, I just have to get confirmation from Irritable on that. Well, Irritable will be on the show later tonight, so we can ask. Oh, there you go. New York State's positive rate reaches its highest point since May, 8.3%. So what does that mean, 8.3%? 8.3% of anybody who took the test tested positive. Yeah, so for example, you had 1,000 people get tested in New York today. Obviously, it would be much more than that, but just for math's sake. 
if there was a thousand people in New York state that had been tested, 83 of them would have tested positive. Uh, now, the reason that this is interesting is because New York state has a much higher testing rate than many other states, most other states, as a matter of fact. Um, so if you take, I'll just take two states that I'm quite familiar with the numbers on, Michigan and Wisconsin. The number of tests that's done in Michigan compared uh, per capita is like three or four times higher than Wisconsin most days, which is to say that base, if you compared them, if they had the same population, about three times more tests are being done in Michigan. So even though Michigan generally records more cases of COVID, our test positivity rate is generally less than half of what Wisconsin's is. Wisconsin's case positivity rate is super high. The reason I point that out is because 8.3% would be relatively low compared to states like Wisconsin. But New York State conducts a lot of tests. So that's a lot of new cases coming in. Let's look at the coronavirus case count. There have been 19.2 million cases of coronavirus in the past year. I guess we're coming up on the one year anniversary of COVID-19. Does it become COVID-20 now that it's a year? Just No, that's not how that works. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's 19.2 million cases. That A case is somebody who tests positive as well, not just somebody who's been hospitalized, correct? The cases are people, anybody that tests positive. Hospitalized is specific. Yeah, anybody that tests positive. Asymptomatic, but positive, you're a case. Exactly. If you tested positive, you are a case. Okay. And on December 27th, there were 152,000 new cases. Looking at the 14-day rolling averages, however, that's down 12 percent. Yeah. Um, let's look at the graph here, David. I'm going to have you narrate what you're seeing. Have Grace do it. To the have Grace narrate it. Okay, Grace, let's narrate what's happening here on our graph. So as we're going into from September, October, November, what's the trend that we're seeing there going, going from September to early November, mid-November? Uh, we're seeing a, a fairly steep rise um, in cases from September to late November, and then a little. Yeah, a little what dip. happens? This is the interesting point. This is the point I'm going to get at. What's happening right at the end of November here? Like, let's say the last week of November. Yeah, a little dip at the end, and then hmm. it goes right back up. Interesting, interesting. And then it's higher, like almost as if you drew a line before that dip to after that dip. It would have been on a straight line. Uh, yeah. in terms of an increase in new cases. And now we're seeing another dip again right now after it had been continuing to increase. What happens the last week of November? Thanks. Or what, what did happen? That's an unfair question. She lives in Great Britain. They don't that have was any, why I wanted you to narrate. They don't have statement. anything to be grateful for. <laughs> they don't have American exceptionalism in Great Britain. It's Thanksgiving. And then, yeah. as you've pointed out, that... The cases go down because the reporting yeah, stops. But you, you said that the reporting stops for Thanksgiving. There's two reasons, really. That's one of them. And tests the other reason stop. is that people aren't going into the hospital because they're traveling in at relatives' houses. Right. But then also the testing is dramatically reduced during the holiday periods. What is it this week? Another holiday period. So we're seeing a dip again. My guess is that's going to almost entirely explain this recent dip in new cases is simply because it's a holiday week. My assumption is that we might still see some weird numbers coming in through New Year's Day, 
And then after that, I would expect it to go back up to continuing on that trend of increasing cases. Loneliness. People do not want to be alone. Washington Post is reporting that air travel this past week hit its highest since the pandemic began. People, they had to travel to see people. They cannot be alone. England's and that's co- going to, David, if I may, that's just going to help explain what we're going to see after the holidays. So like I said, people are traveling, they're not getting tested. And a lot of these testing institutions are not reporting their numbers today. But then all of the people that were traveling were in contact with other people. So I would expect the numbers to shoot back up again once those travels are done. Grace, why don't you narrate what's going on in England? Right. So the headline here is England's COVID hospitalization soared to 20,426, higher than the worst day of the first wave. Um, So, yeah, our graph is horrible. It's a U now, a U shape. And... um, when you say 20,426, does that mean 20,426 new hospitalizations or a total of 20,426 people are being hospitalized in Great Britain? That is how many people are currently in the hospital with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And our hospitals are, are reaching their limits, I believe. Um, and, but, you know, over, over the Christmas period, Unless you were in the new tier four, which was this emergency tier of restrictions. That now, that includes uh, 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 the tier four includes an autographed postcard from David Feldman. I think a tier four and Hank Shank, I believe. Is that the knife from him? Yeah, you get a knife if you're in Britain's tier four. Amazing. Well, I'm only in tier two. Here, <laughs> yeah, well, explain that. how do the tiers work? Um, well, uh, a f- couple of months ago, they announced that, that we would have a three-tier system of restrictions. So each area, based on how bad COVID was, um, would be either tier one, tier two, tier three, tier one being the, the tier with the least restrictions, and tier three being the most um, stringent. And before Christmas, they realized that they needed another tier because this new uh, variant was spreading rapidly in London and the southeast, and so they quickly brought out a new tier, tier four, which is basically lockdown. Um, but everyone else in the country was able to travel for this five-day window over Christmas, and it just seems totally absurd to me that that we're still going on like this. We're basically... Um, signing up for a system of rolling lockdowns, which I don't know what you think of that, Henry, but I I don't see it ending well. Yeah, when you have a discongruous response based regionally in an area where there's a lot of of transit between different regions, if you don't have restrictions in place, you're going to have intermingling of people that shouldn't have been intermingling. So that would be like saying... Uh, and this happened early on, early on in the pandemic here, the bars where I lived shut down, but the bars in Wisconsin were open. We didn't have any travel restrictions and Wisconsin is a whopping three miles away from where I live. So all of the people flocked to the bars three miles away from here and packed like sardines into them. And then the cases shot up here. This is what happens when you have a discongruous response 
that's based regionally. If people can get around the restrictions in one area to an area with more lax restrictions, you're going to have droves of people traveling to those areas. And even if not, even if you're in one of these areas that has a complete lockdown, you know, you're locked in your house. Sure, your cases start to go down. But then as soon as your restrictions are lifted, you have surrounding areas that still have virus transmitting among the populace. And once your restrictions are lifted, the people start going out like crazy because they've been cooped up for a while. And when they get out, then they get infected and you start seeing an explosion of cases again. So in, in my opinion, and I'm, you know, I'm not a PhD in epidemiology, but I have some training in epidemiology and I, I do read quite a bit on, on public health. You need to have broad reaching public health measures in order for them to have any chance of succeeding in the long term. Otherwise, you just keep having um, small victories here and there and then overall a loss in the war. We've seen this time and again with vaccine strategies where we'll, and this is why I've said we need to treat COVID-19 as a global problem. We have issues where we'll focus on eliminating a particular disease in a particular area, but then say, screw everybody else. And then as soon as you figure that you have your problem handled here, well, you still have the disease transmitting in the population over there. Once they mix again, because people are traveling back and forth, now all of a sudden you don't have your restrictions in place. We see this with like measles, for example. Hmm. Basically wipe out measles and people stop getting the measles vaccine because, hey, there's no measles out anymore. We don't see people that are deaf or have neurological problems or died because they had measles. So we're not going to give them, we're not going to give our kids the measles vaccine. And then you have a kid from a country where vaccination rates were always poor because they're poor countries that weren't given the support to get everyone vaccinated. You have somebody travel either to the country with measles or somebody from the country with measles travel to the U.S., for example. Then you see outbreaks of it again. It it Mm -hmm. happens all the time. This is what happens when you don't have national or global responses to public health emergencies. Let's look at this map. It's from the New York Times. So far, Close to 2 million Americans have gotten the COVID-19 vaccine. Still 2020. I mean, I'm not trying to be sunny and optimistic, and I know people are dying, but 2 million people have gotten the COVID-19 vaccine. This is a map showing where the largest number of vaccines have been administered per capita. I find it kind of striking West Virginia, North Dakota, Colorado, Illinois are the darkest. Am I not reading this? The, the, the largest per capita s- states. Why would West Virginia be getting the shots before, say, California or New York or Texas? So I haven't dug into the underlying numbers on this, David, but I do have several speculations Uh, One speculation is that, well, we don't see any high population states among the highest percentage of population that have gotten the vaccine. That's one thing. It's harder to bring up, you know, a a large share of a population in a state that has a large population. All of these states that are the darkest have relatively small populations. A lot of these states that are small also have relatively old populations as memory serves. So Mm -hmm. you're going to have a larger share of those of those individuals in those states fall into the uh, category of individuals who are elderly and in assisted care facilities where they would be higher up in the allocation process. And yeah, I think that those are probably two of the main things. I don't know what the 
percentage of frontline healthcare workers as a share of the population in any of those states are. So I can't make any speculations based on that. But just based on the states that are dark, they're low population. And as memory serves, most of those states have older than average uh, overall populations in those states. So they would just be higher up in the allocation order than other states. Well, I've been, I've been told by March 21st, they are going to, President Biden ugh, uh, is going <laughs> to ramp up production in a way that the Trump administration wasn't willing to do. The Defense Production Act, for example, will be triggered which Trump has done for military weapons thousands of times, but refuses to do it for uh, the vaccine. And, f- and that Pfizer back in September contacted the Trump White House and said, we need some help in gearing up uh, to make more. And, and they were ignored. So do you want a reasonable re- defense of the Trump administration right now, David? Sure. Because you're almost never going to find me defending Trump because the man is an abomination. However, there is some explanation that's required on what you just said. Okay. In regards to the Defense Production Act. You said that the Pfizer had requested assistance in uh, seeking Defense Production Act uh, authority, you know, being able to ramp up production Uh, having other companies ramp up production. What that was for was not for the vaccine itself. What that was for was for some of the precursor chemicals, you could think of them as, that go into creating the vaccine. Now, we have six vaccines currently that the U.S. was funding via Operation Warp Speed. A lot of these vaccines use a lot of the same precursor chemicals. So in order to grant defense authorization or defense production authorization, what you're saying is, okay, company here, company, company here, you're going to ramp up production of this precursor chemical. They couldn't ramp up production of the vaccine itself. None of them had been approved yet. None of them had been through phase three trials yet at that point. So you can't really ramp up production beyond what they were doing within their trials. Uh, I mean, they were already producing millions of doses during their trials, which in itself is unprecedented. It would have been a huge expenditure of resources to ramp up production even more uh, under the Defense Defense Production uh, Act. But in regards to these precursor chemicals, if you would have said, hey, this company, that company, that company, that company, you, you have the capacity to make these precursor chemicals for the vaccine made by Pfizer, we want you to put all of your time and effort and resources into making those chemicals to go to Pfizer. But we had six vaccines that were in Operation Warp Speed, a lot of which require the same chemicals. If you're allocating all of those chemicals for Pfizer, it inhibits the other vaccine candidates from having what they need in order to complete their phase three trials. If you do that and Pfizer's vaccine ended up not working, which we now know it it pretty much has. But if it hadn't ended up working and all of the things were allocated to them to the extent where the other companies couldn't really carry out phase three trials in a very good way because they didn't have the the materials required, they really would have shot themselves in the foot in being able to get a vaccine that did work. Now, of course, with hindsight, you say, okay, Pfizer's vaccine worked. If we would have just given them what, you know, everything that they could have possibly dreamt of, uh, perhaps we would have more doses available now because we could have run everything faster, et cetera, et cetera. But without knowing it, it would have been a pretty dicey gamble to put all of our eggs in Pfizer's basket when we already had six companies in Operation Warp Speed that would have also been vying for some of the same chemicals. So there's my very mild 
defense of that specific the Trump, point. The Trump administration, rather a lot of credit, Henry. No, no, I'm not saying that this is like uh, part of their master plan. I'm not calling them geniuses, but I do think that they have a master race plan. But they do. Yeah, they do. But to say that, you know, if Biden was in there and he would have done all of these uh, defense authorizations, defense production authorizations so that all of these other companies would be producing all kinds of stuff and Pfizer would have all of the resources. Again, in hindsight, it would sound good. But even if Biden was in charge at the same point that we were at, not sure that they would have done it anyway because of the reason I just laid out. So I wouldn't use that specifically as a criticism of Trump because there's a million other things that are much more valid criticisms of him. We're almost out of time. I'm waiting on Mark Breslin to show up, but I picked David, it. I just wanted to mention, yeah. I think the reason that Biden is is preparing to use the Defense Production Act to ramp up vaccine uh, production is I think he might be feeling the heat from uh, Putin. The, the, there was a story the, today that the Sputnik, uh, Sputnik vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, Putin said he's he's about to get it, and he's really excited. And one of his children, one of his many, potentially many children, has um, uh, volunteered to be uh, part of the trial. His daughter. Right. Yeah. So I, I feel like Biden might just be, you know, feeling a bit of competition, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, Grace, you'll come back. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't send these stories out in a timely fashion. I'm running a little behind. This is I have I enjoy this. I hope we can make this uh, a regular yeah, part. This is really fun. Uh, yeah. I just, I'm sorry I haven't had time to read the bloody Brexit bill. <laughs> uh, to, well, Henry uh, read the entire stimulus bill, which is what, 5000 pages. Mark Breslin is joining us before everybody goes. It's good to see Mark Breslin. This is Grace Jackson, Mark, and Henry Huckamaki, and that's Mark Breslin in Toronto. I want to show you a story that I found in Politico over the weekend. This made this made me very happy because everybody who's a talking head is on Zoom these days, and they try to dress their backdrop to look erudite. Yes, Henry. <laughs> so let, let, let's let's examine. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Mark Breslin, uh, one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. My mother has a massive crush on him. Grace, I, I don't know Grace that well, but you are, absolutely, you know, absolutely off the charts. Henry, it's speaks for himself. I don't have to tell you how brilliant you are. There is a tendency among people when they go into these Zoom meetings to fill their backdrop with the latest books they've read, which I understand, especially if you wrote one of the books. In Politico, they have a story. It Read the headline, Grace. I picked this out for you. <laughs> Washington's secret to the perfect Zoom bookshelf. Buy it wholesale. There's a company. So books by the foot. There's a company called Books by the Foot. Washington offices, hotels, TV sets, and now Zoom backdrops. Now I know about places like this in Los Angeles, and they're they're so much fun to visit because they dress sets. Of, you know, books by the yard is what they're called. It's this is books by the foot. They're out of Maryland, and 
They're owned by Wonderbook. It's where you go if you're a Washington insider who wants to decorate his home or her home with books that have never been cracked. There's a there's a lot of money to be made selling books. Are these actual books or are they just yes. is it like a facade? Well, both. They're actual books that might as well be a facade because they've never been cracked. Mark Breslin. That's, I, I'm yeah. pr- I, I just want to I just want to indicate that my um, my backdrop is real, but I am a facade. <laughs> <laughs> just to let you know. Grace Jackson can be followed on Twitter at Grace Jackson. Yes. Will you do this again? And who are you going to be interviewing? Her. I'm sorry. You. You can also follow her um, at the park late at night. Oh, be um, nice. if you ride behind a tree. No, it usually works. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, and well, yeah, you can follow. That's you can follow. Yeah. Uh, and who are you going to interview next? Bring back, bring back the guests you've already had on the show. Yeah, I would love to get uh, Sam Weatherall and Ashok Kumar back. They, they were great. And we posted them on the YouTube channel. If you want oh, to perfect. We've isolated that. See, Henry, I, I, take, I take my orders from Henry. And we posted the Marxist Power Hour that Henry came up with a great idea for a show called the Marxist Power Hour. And he launched it. The Power Couple. It was a power couple. It was Dr. Harriet Fraud with Professor Richard Wolf. Henry did an hour with them and was absolutely brilliant. I think you have a show. The Marxist. And they'll be coming back, by the way. Yeah. I think the Marxist Power Hour, just the name alone. Brilliant. That was like a place, uh, just listeners, just so you know, that was a placeholder name that I gave to David. I said, you know, this is going to be a Marxist power hour. Feel free to come up with something wittier. He goes, I will go with that. I I Googled it. Nobody, there's never been a show called the Marxist power hour. Mark Breslin, have you ever heard of a show called the Marxist power hour? No, but I did something on a show that I produced, executive produced in Toronto, uh, which was a big uh, late night show, Canadian late night show called the late night with Ralph Ben Murphy. We had a feature that would, was recurring called Marxist in a Box. And it was just, it was a guy who was a Marxist scholar, and we rigged him up so that you could only see his head when you opened the box. And periodically through the show, we would say, time for Marxist in a Box. And we would open it up, and he would deconstruct what was going on in the show at a time using Marxist theory. So needless to say, the network, CBC, was not crazy about this idea <laughs> and ordered us to stop it along with my other um, uh, what I think was a really good idea which was the blind movie reviewer um, and the blind movie reviewer would come on and I would say would you like to and he'd say well I just saw you know such and such a movie I said did you bring a clip and he would say yeah and then they would just play the audio <laughs> and then he would review it and he would give it one white cane two white cane oh, three white cane or four white chains. He was a real blind guy, and he was a comic, and uh-huh. very funny. Uh, well, so that, wait, is, uh, sorry, is, is Mark Breslin wearing suspenders? Yes, I am. Wow. Wow means uh, many things. What does it mean to you? <laughs> no, I, I approve. I'm I'm pro pro suspender. Suspender in the U.S. 
in the UK, that's a different thing. We call them braces. Oh, God, right. you're in Canada as well, aren't you? You could call them either way, but I think that they're probably called suspenders more than braces in Canada. Okay. Well, speaking of the politically correct, we, we loved Jennifer Aniston, right? Yeah. Right? She's, I think so. She's had to overcome a lot of hardship in her life. Being, she smells. That's what I've heard. Yeah, that's the rule. That's the because you always wonder uh, yeah, every time you pick up one of those, you know, magazines like People or Us, you know, it says, why can't Jennifer Aniston find love? And the reason seems to be she smells. Yeah. Supposedly. But I it, don't know. hopefully she'll find a Theroux who likes the way she smells or, you know, Brad Pitt, somebody, you know, but that. Yeah. But uh, she, Marilyn Monroe. I, but she's a lovable. She's a lovable person for that business. Yes, she is, and very talented. Yeah. And uh, that was. We shouldn't say that about her. We. We. That's not nice. Uh, what? What did we say bad about her? That she smells. Well, everybody. Everybody has a specific odor. Yeah. And that's and right. that's that's how we That's how we mate. That that yeah. smell is more important than than. Uh, the way we look, I hope. <laughs> well, the multi-billion-dollar, um, you know, uh, cologne industry would probably back you up on that, right? So Jennifer Aniston is coming under fire because she made a Christmas ornament that said, "Our first pandemic, 2020," and they accused her of being insensitive to all the people who died. And how dare she? There's this whole backlash to a little joke she made. You could also say that that joke reminds us of the um, the people who died and the problems that we are having this year, rather than trying to sweep it under the carpet, trying to forget it. But how so dare saying, anybody? Let me, you know, I, I defend the politically correct to to a, to to a point. What I have discovered, Mark Breslin. Mm -hmm. is most of these people are protecting people who don't want to be protected. Nobody who lost a relative to COVID-19 is going to be offended by Jennifer Aniston's ornament. People who, who complain about a joke like that think they've cornered the market on suffering. Only they are allowed to suffer and they get to dictate how people deal with that suffering. I used to say to this when I used to do jokes about 9-11. You don't own 9-11. You don't get to tell me. That was a national tragedy. I'll deal with it any way I choose. And if it means trivializing 9-11, I'm going to trivialize it on stage because that's my coping mechanism. You don't own, you haven't cornered the market on suffering. And the same applies to COVID-19. If, if Jennifer Aniston wants to make a cute little ornament that says our, our first pandemic, 2020, that's her coping mechanism. Nobody owns COVID-19. Well, also, you know, I think if I had actually lost a family member or friend to COVID this year, the last thing I would be concerned about would be somebody's ornament. Right. I, I, the reason I take umbrage with it, David, is just because it's factually incorrect. It's our first pandemic. She wasn't alive. No, 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 no. It's not, David. Would you not call AIDS a pandemic? Or are we going to marginalize HIV AIDS? 
I hate that Jennifer Aniston. How did that's people? You know what I remember? Remember Larry Brown, Mark Breslin? Of course, bubbles. So uh, he had a joke. Uh, I don't think he'll be upset. He said this was a joke that he used to do on stage. He said, you know, in the past you'd get herpes or syphilis, big deal. Now this was insane. He used to do this joke in San Francisco at the height of the AIDS epidemic. He said, you, you know, you'd get herpes or syphilis that give you a drug to treat it. Now you wake up, there's a doctor standing over you saying you're going to live to be 99. You're going to be live to be 99 pounds. So it's a it's, it's, OK. So, yeah, it's, it's a rough joke, right? Yeah, but it's funny. It's funny. And it was at the height of the AIDS epidemic. We were all living in San Francisco. We all thought we had it. Everybody. We, this was when we thought it was airborne. This was like in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a nightclub. And it's funny because you shouldn't tell that joke. But it it was AIDS in all fairness to the person who complained to, to Larry after the show and tried to ruin his career. There, AIDS was a marginalized group was held accountable for AIDS and they were being victimized by it. So, uh, but the, this guy walked up, a critic from the uh, San Francisco Examiner was in the audience and he walked up to Larry and said, I have a, my best friend just died of AIDS. And Larry said, then what are you doing in a comedy club? If my friend just died, I wouldn't be in a comedy club. Just wanted to ruin the show. Did I dig a (laughs) hole? Have I dug a hole for myself? Nice one. Have you, have you found China yet? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, Grace, thank you. Henry, thank you. Thank you. Could I do a quick plug, David? Please. Um, just to say that my podcast uh, that I do with Alex Guns and Matt Leck of Majority Report fame is coming back uh, next week. We had a long hiatus um, since the summer, but we are recording this week and we'll have an episode out soon so you can find that on um all the podcast platforms it's called literary hangover mark breslin would love this podcast describe that you mark you would love this okay what's the podcast grace um it's basically uh we kind of dig through american literature and sometimes some non-american literature um for kind of under-read under-appreciated works so more obscure stuff we're recording an episode on a a secret diary of um one of a, a colonial gentleman from virginia in the 17th century that's our next episode um we've recorded episodes on margaret fuller she was a transcendentalist friends of um friends with emerson and thoreau uh we've done lots of stuff so it's basically um yeah underread gems do you go do you go modern as well yeah we do um we've james robert baker james robert baker yeah fuel injected dreams and boy wonder and then he killed himself oh i'll make a note (laughs) (laughs) sounds right up our alley 
bring on Mark Breslin as a guest host for that episode. You would, I would, anyway, I don't want to put, I, Mark, you would love yeah. literary okay. lit hangover. Okay, great. We'll do this. I, I don't want to put pressure on anybody, but uh, these two are a major gift to, to yeah, the show. David, I'm just going to plug Gorilla History quick and then, then I'll let you okay. interview Mark. Yeah. So listeners, if you haven't already subscribed to Gorilla History, subscribe now. That's the podcast that Adnan Hussein, Professor Adnan Hussein, Brett O'Shea of Revolutionary Left Radio and I do. Um, we just put out a Patreon exclusive episode on Friday. We'll be putting out another episode on our uh, a short episode on Friday, this Friday, which will be unlocked next Friday. And then the following Friday, we'll be putting up an episode on how the West stole democracy from the Arabs with Professor Elizabeth Thompson. That's our next full episode. We'll be in two weeks from Friday. Well, Grace, thank you. Henry, thank you. You are so important to this show, both of you. And I can't thank you enough for keeping us, uh, I guess the word is honest. <laughs> Mark Breslin is the founder. Thank you so much. I hope you'll I, I really enjoyed doing it, going over the news with you, the, the both of you. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, if not the world. Uh, you couldn't make it last week. I, I sent you an email. I thought there was some. No, it's nothing. It was nothing. My my wife's parents had something we had to do over at their house. It was nothing at all, but I had to do it. OK, I, I have a running joke, so I have to apologize to you. OK, because I think it's funny, but I do it whenever a guest bails on me, which is. Boy, I hope something bad happened to him. I hate to think <laughs> that, that he just forgot to do my show and yeah. I, I kept it so, and I feel guilty saying that but I do it I didn't forget I sent you an email I didn't I didn't see it I thought oh okay, okay. I would never just not show up um, I would never not just not show up so I spent I, I can't believe how much time I have spent doing nothing recently because all my time has gone into this potlatch which they call christmas mm -hmm. so let me rail against this damn thing okay <laughs> because let me describe it first of all just in case anybody hasn't realized this yet i'm a jew okay i'm a real jew i'm a I'm a Jewy Jew. I'm a Jewy Jew. Okay? Fine. But I also happen to be married to the woman I love who is not uh, Jewish at all. So we live in this kind of blended family where nobody really believes in anything, but, oh, you got to follow the rituals. No matter what you want. My wife, my poor wife sitting there grating her knuckles to raw, making latkes that she did not grow up with, thinking this will make my Jew husband happy. And she did a good job. I have to say, but uh -huh. then, you know, I had to bandage her, her knuckles because they were all raw. Because you would never <laughs> dream of putting it in a blender because the old Jews did not have a blender. They graded by hand like my mother did. Mm -hmm. So you come to my house. I live in a townhouse, but it's not a um, townhouse that faces other townhouses. It faces the street. Mm -hmm. So as you're walking along the street, you will see the front of my house. You will see the porch of my townhouse. And what do you see on it? You will see the... Um, uh, the the uh, uh, places where you hold the the, the things uh, on the sides uh, where you where you climb the the stairs what railings 
Thank you. The like railings. you're doing now. You're railing against Christmas. That's right. That you will see the railings wrapped in all kinds of fronds. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, like, like we're from Norway or something. Uh-huh. Right? All kinds of fronds. And then you get to the actual door. And what's on the door? A big MF wreath. This is <laughs> wreath. And what's in the wreath? More fronds. Oh, I'm sorry. And cranberries. Let's not forget the damn cranberries. Cranberries also by the way on the railing things all right no problem you walk in the house hey it's nice to be here everything smells like pine why does it smell like pine why doesn't it smell like love because i'll tell you why it smells like pine you know jews now have trees christmas trees right yeah but i don't have one christmas tree i don't have two christmas trees i don't have three christmas trees i don't have four i have five christmas trees in my house one big one in the in the big living room a little one for my son in uh, in his room. I have three uh, trees outside on the deck. So I, I can't go anywhere in the house. I can't go anywhere in the house without being reminded of Jesus. All right? Now, wait, it's not over yet. Because underneath the big tree, there's boxes. There's boxes. Those boxes are presents and an insult not only to the disgust of of materialism that I feel (laughs) at this time, but also for the complete disregard for my innate minimalism that I've been practicing very carefully for the last 40 years. And these boxes keep piling up. They keep piling up through the through the week, mm-hmm. and there's more boxes, and there's more boxes, and Santa has to bring his boxes at the end. And now we have nothing but boxes in the house, <laughs> so that I have to get up really early on Christmas morning and sit there and watch my son open 58 presents <laughs> and play with them all at the same time. Okay? I got stuff, too. I admit it. I'm sitting on my new chair. This is a new chair. My old one was falling apart. Karina bought me a really nice chair. Wow. And I got a Fitbit so I can track just how unhealthy I am. Okay? According to this thing on my wrist, I had a heart attack. (laughs) But, okay, fine. What else did I get? I got a new, look, I got a new iPhone 12. Wow. Let me ask you about the Fitbit. Hang on. If you masturbate... Wearing put the it Fitbit. On hand. Oh, does I put that it on count? The hand. But if I'll, I'll try it on the right on the right hand and see what happens. Yeah. But I actually have taken a look to see how much my. Okay, I'll tell you. Yes, I did. I tried it. I masturbated and I watched the Fitbit and I watched the heart rate barely go up. <laughs> I didn't even interest myself in sex. Okay. Anyway, then Boxing Day comes along, and what do you do? Now we have to return the stuff. Right? You don't like the stuff that didn't fit, the stuff that man. It's such a waste of time, and yet we have nothing else to do. Do you know on Thursday night it's going to be New Year's Eve, and this will be the first New Year's Eve in 40 years that I haven't hosted or been at a comedy show that I've produced. Wow. 40 years. Wow. Wow. How sad is that? Do you know what I'm going to do? My what? wife doesn't know this yet. I'm going to put on a tux and just sit in the house. <laughs> I'm going to wear my tux. So. Your tux medicated wipes or an actual tuxedo? No, a tuxedo. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
but I may use the medicated wipes before I put on a tuxedo in anticipation of the wonderful time I'm going to have watching the ghost of Dick Clark. You know what? You know what? I'm actually, you know what we'll do? We'll sit around and we'll watch my balls. Because I'm pushing 70 already. And I, I'm having trouble getting out of a car. Well, we're doing our show. They're no longer around. They're rhombus shaped. I don't know why, what weird math thing this is, but they're not even around anymore. <laughs> well, come by. We're, we're going to be here. We're recording. We record every Thursday, every Monday. So if you want to pop in and wish us all a happy I'll be, I'll, I'll be i'll be dressed up i'll say that that would be great we'll, be, we'll pretend it's our anniversary show then yes that's right yes. you'll wear a tuxedo wear a tuxedo if i had a tux i would wear one but uh i always wore a tux on on new year's eve it wasn't a traditional tux it was kind of a velvety kind of mm-hmm. thing with velvet black velvet pants looked really really nice um but now how many years like, into here's my tux question down. Yeah. 40 years running the largest comedy chain in North America, Yuck Yucks. How many New Year's did it take you to learn not to give out the noisemakers uh, until five minutes to midnight? Um, only one year. And then we realized what, what was going to happen. But, you know, here's the thing. I always would tell the MCs. When you get back on stage after the after the headliner, the headliner should only leave you with about three minutes because that's the amount of time it'll take to get everybody excited and to scream Happy New Year. And we'll be able to play the old Lang Syne song and they never do it right. The headliner sometimes bails uh, with 10 minutes to go. And now the MC's standing there not knowing what to do and how do you kill 10 minutes when all anybody wants to do is drink their champagne and kiss. Right. Uh, really difficult. No sense of drama whatsoever. Yeah. So it's always a frustration for me to do that. But, you know, I've been doing these shows at Massey Hall for the last 10 years, 15 years. Massey Hall. Yeah, which is a, like a 2,800-seat venue in Toronto um, that's been around since 1870-something. And why is it called Massey? Is it like a- it was named after Raymond Massey, who was the Lincoln. governor general. Of, I guess the first governor general of Canada. Lincoln. He played Lincoln. Well. I'm sorry? He played Lincoln. Yes, that's right. Well, that's his son that would have played. Uh, Is that Lincoln. true? What? Raymond Massey's son. father was. Yeah, it was very. They were very, a very wealthy, old, like Mayflower style family. Wow. In Canada. So anyway, so there's Massey Hall. And I used to do these amazing shows, frankly, with a real budget. Massey would give me real money to spend. And um, the final year before they, they closed Massey down for three-year renovation. So that coincided with COVID anyway. But the last year I had Robert Klein. I brought in Robert Klein to host. Wow. We've had, um, uh, who else? Had Tom Green, uh, uh, Harlan Williams. Wow. We had uh, wow. uh, the woman from SCTV, uh, not... Uh, Andrea Martin. Andrea Martin, yeah. I love Andrea. Andrea Martin, Andrea Martin was... I love Andrea Martin. And she turned the whole thing into a kind of Broadway show, which was great. We have a band to place people on and off. It's it's a great it's a great show and a great evening. And now I'm going to be sitting, you know, try, sucking on a Lola. Maybe I'll call Andrea Martin and the three of us could do an hour together on New Year's Eve. I, lo- well, I love Andrea Martin. I'm, and I, yes, I'm bragging. 
that I know Andrea Martin. Have you read her book? I'm in the book. She thanks me in the book. I'm bragging. I'm insecure. I read it and I don't remember that. I'm part. in the acknowledgement. I, I reviewed it for um, <coughs> for one of the newspapers here, but I can't. I can't remember. I'm, I'm acknowledged right in the book. Right over there, Andrea Martin's Lady Parts. Yeah, my 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 ego, my insecurity is showing. But look, I'm. Are you in the index? Uh, I'm in the acknowledgement. She thanks me for. Oh, so what did you do? I we wrote together. She taught me how to write sketches. Oh. Um, she and she's done sketches on the show. I love Andrea Martin. Yeah, she's great. She's great. We had such a good time. If you ask people from SCTV, uh-huh. who was the funniest person on SCTV? They all say Andrea Martin. They, they say, well, if you ask anybody from your show of shows, who was the funniest writer in the room? They all said Larry Gelbart. When they ask people from SCTV, who was the funniest person on SCTV it was Andrea Martin. When they asked people from Mad TV, they didn't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm a little insecure, so I mentioned the thing with Andrea Martin. But That's uh, okay. I, I'm proud of that. That's one of my proudest. You didn't bring it up without me lobbing the subject up first. I know. We I were know. discussing it, so it made sense for you to say something. There are a couple of things that, like, that I'm, like, we all have our intimate, private things that we're proud of that's one of those things that you know we pick and choose what we choose to be yeah sure no proud. she's great well, she not my kids i'm not proud of my kids why would you be i know well what's what's the oldest one a fireman what does he do he dresses as a fireman if you pay him enough <laughs> oh he's well that's right he's in the the road show of the village people <laughs> so that's a lousy job i have to say a village people cover band Oh my God! You know what the sad? I would. I, I, you have to meet my son. You, okay. He is. He makes me laugh. He's so disgusting. You would. By the you, way, not to interrupt, but you know, have you seen the Bob Dylan cover band? No. They're called the Zimmerman. It's a great. No, I'm kidding. Oh. Okay. All right. Uh, it was a good Dylan joke, but yeah. So tell me more about your son. Just tell me about he your is, son. He's just the. He knows how to make me laugh hard. He just knows my soft spots and he invents, he just annoys me. So he'll call me, he, if he knows the show, if he, he knows I do the show live now. So he'll call me right before I start. And what's up, how you doing? And I, and uh, then he's, I'm calling Howie Klein as we, we speak. And then he does this thing, which everybody should do. He'll say, all right, I'll talk to you right now. How you doing? That's how he wraps up a conversation now. <laughs> all right. And anyway, let me let me put my call into Howie Klein. And yeah, but don't, well, you just suggested something to me. Don't you hate when people say, OK, I'll let you go. But you have no interest in being let go. You're having a great time talking to somebody. But instead of them saying, I have to go or I'm bored now or you've outlived your usefulness. Thanks for the information I was looking for. They say, well, I'll let you go. Right. Like hey, I could sell that bit to Seinfeld for a couple of thousand bucks. I think the, that joke worked with the Pharaoh. And I think that's from the yes. book of Exodus. I think so, too. Is Howie Klein there? I'm here. Ah, Mark Breslin is with us. Hello, Howie. Mark is going to... Hey, 
Mark is going to wear a tuxedo for Thursday's show. And sit and sit in my house. And sit in his house. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, if not the world. I'm going to see if uh, I'm serious about New Year's Eve, if you want to pop in for. All right. Yeah, I'll pop in for a bit. Remember, I'll be with my family and they don't like to share me. Okay. thank you. Thank you. Maybe we'll, thank you. Joining okay. us in Los Angeles is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for progressive candidates around America. He also writes the newly designed and delicious Down with Tyranny, which uh, I have some stories I want to go over. We're down to a couple more days for 2020. We should do predictions, shouldn't we? I don't know. Do you have a crystal ball? Uh, you mean from the host of the hill? Uh, no, I mean like prediction. I'll make a prediction. Uh, the House will pass the two thousand uh, dollar checks thing, and, uh, and well, they already the did. Oh, I didn't know that you knew that already. Yeah. And only, only two Democrats voted against it. Something like 44 Republicans voted for it. Two scumbag uh, blue dog Democrats. I hope I didn't offend anybody with my language, but I get so angry about these people. Democrats. Uh, we, don't, we don't like to say Democrats on this show. Democrats? D- Democrats. So it was Kurt Schrader from uh, from Oregon, who we had Mark Gamba on the show, uh, who was campaigning against him uh, and lost. And we had uh, and then the other guy who voted no was uh, Dan Lipinski in Chicagoland. And and we actually beat him this time. Uh, Marie Newman took him on for a second time and she won. So she will be the congressman starting in a few days. But Lipinski was, you know, happy to kick working families in the face one more time. He voted no along with Schrader. And then and 44 conservative, very conservative Republicans voted for it, too, as Trump said they should. Uh, but tomorrow, Mitch McConnell uh, will not allow a vote on it. But Trump supposedly wants this. Supposedly, but I don't believe that Trump really wants it. He doesn't give a damn anyway. But, you know, he, he wants to be seen as, as advocating for it. That's all that Trump wants. Okay, there are uh, elections. The the runoffs in Georgia are next week, I believe. And a week week from tomorrow, a week from tomorrow. And we'll talk about that in a second. But there are also about it, because the point, uh, uh, the whole point of the Senate vote uh, tomorrow is if um, Purdue and Loeffler vote on this thing, no matter which way they vote, they're they're, they're in trouble. Uh, you know, and, and chances are they would vote uh, against the two thousand dollars survival checks, and then that would it. that would be the end of their election chances right then and there. But if they vote for it, uh, then they're going to have a problem with with some conservative Republicans. Most Republicans in the House, by the way, as you know, voted voted against it. Right. So, so, so in other words, both Democrats, Ossoff and Warnock. Are, are trying to make this into the final uh, push for the election. They're trying to make the whole election about this one issue, and they're having a lot of success with it. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. There, uh, oh, Warnock is, is an awesome. Warnock, the, the Democrat who's running against Kelly Loeffler in Georgia. I see. 
Now, uh, I wanted to ask you about the three underreported congressional races because of the cabinet. There have been some Biden picks and three Democratic Congress people have been are being taken out of the House and moved into the executive branch. What are we going to be looking at? And will this affect the balance of power in any way? It's three seats. So Nancy would still balance of power between Democrats and Republicans because these are all deep blue seats. Uh, Republicans don't don't uh, you know run serious campaigns in, in any of these districts. So, but the balance of power that we could be talking about is uh, between conservative establishment Democrats and progressive Democrats. I know everybody loves Deb Haaland. She's an American Indian. She's wonderful. She's fabulous. But the woman who's running to take her place, um, a state senator named Antoinette Cedillo Lopez, is a million times more progressive. I mean, it's not words to describe how much more progressive she is. I mean, if Annette, if uh, Antoinette gets into Congress, she will be a contender for one of the most progressives in Congress. And she is the mo- right now. She's the most progressive person in the New- in the New Mexico State Legislature. Uh, she's fantastic. Uh, we supported her last time in the primary against Deb. Uh, but Deb beat her. This time, it's likely that she will be she will win. They're not going to have a primary. What they're going to do is the state. Uh, the I'm sorry. The district central committee will choose a nominee, uh, one for the Democrat. And the Democrat state central committee and the Republican state central committee will each choose a nominee, and then they'll face each other in in a in a quick general election. And, uh, and and that is looking good. I mean, there are some conservative Democrats who are going to run as well, but the state central committee is, is right now very narrowly controlled by progressives. All right. So over down with tyranny, you write there are three special elections for open house seats to replace members who were selected by Biden for his administration. All three right. are safe Democratic seats. Cedric Richmond, uh, Louisiana, right. so too. And Marsha Fudge, Ohio 11, and Deb Holland. horrible. Cedric Richmond might as well be a Republican. He's corrupt, and he's a total, you know, kind of Biden person just right for that. Uh, he's, he's owned by the oil and gas industry. He's, he's, he's really bad, really, really bad. He's a new Dem with a shitty voting record. So anything is going to be better than him, although I have a suspicion that they're going to find someone who's just about the same uh, kind of garbage that he is. Uh, Emily List already has some horrible candidate they're pushing. I haven't found a progressive yet, but I'm just starting my search. So that's Louisiana's district. This is a district, by the way, where the uh, Republican legislature went all through Louisiana looking for any black person. And then they have a weird district that snakes around the state finding every black person they can find, which makes all the uh, districts around it have less black people and therefore safer for Republicans uh, in their minds. So it, it includes both Baton Rouge and New Orleans, if you wow. can imagine it, it does that. Uh, it, it, incredible district, uh, just amazing. So, it, it, but but it, it, you know, it's, I think if I remember correctly, I, I know it's in that story if you're looking at it, but I think it's a D plus 32 district. You write D, D25. So if it's a D25, they could run a, a much more progressive candidate, right? They could run... Stalin in that. <laughs> it doesn't matter who they run. The Democrat wins in that district. And so, and we, but Deb Holland, Native American, going to be Secretary of Interior. 
I, you're not thrilled about her voting. No, she's good. You know, she, 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 she's okay. I mean, her voting record, you know, would go back and forth between, you know, being a high B or a low A. She's, you know, she, she's okay. She didn't, you know, she's, she's, she's okay. But I'm telling you, Antoinette isn't going to be someone who's okay. Antoinette is going to be one of the leaders of the progressives in Congress. She is amazing. This is an amazing woman. She was the dean of the University of New Mexico um, in Albuquerque, uh, uh, dean of the law school. She's a brilliant and, and very, very accomplished woman. And she's the, she's the best member of the legislature now. So this is, this is someone that we really want, really, really, really want. This is a way to get, the, to get Congress better. Okay, Ohio 11, Marsha Fudge, she's been made HUD, right? House uh, yeah, yeah. Urban Development. Ben Carson's right. seat. Yeah, yeah, and she's, uh, you know, she's not very good. She's, uh, I mean, I'm being kind by saying she's not very good. She's, uh, you know, no one likes her. Everyone is happy to see her go. Uh, there was there was some uh, talk on Capitol Hill that Pelosi begged Biden to take her for something, just give her something and get her out of here. Uh, she's a very, very unlike person. And, uh, you know, and, and now Nancy Pelosi may be in for a big shock because if she thought that uh, Fudge was, was unliked and hard to deal with, wait till she see what she's going to get. In return, uh, it's going to be uh, Nina Turner. Uh, really? It looks that she's the front runner. Uh, there are already a bunch of you know more establishment type Democrats who are running for the seat, and they're like slamming her and slandering her and saying horrible things about her. But she's she's the one with the national reputation. She was a state senator from that congressional district, so people know her well. And uh, it, look, it looks like she she has a good chance to win. She, she did she found our revolution. She didn't, no, she did not. She, what she did was uh, she, she, I think, became the second chief executive after it was founded. Right. She was uh, very, very close with Bernie and, uh, you know, a surrogate for Bernie and an advisor to Bernie and very, very beloved inside of uh, the Bernie Kratt world. Right. Really and, beloved. Right. And they are a, a super PAC that was allowed to spend money without having to check in with Bernie, right? Wasn't there a little controversy over that? Yes. Yeah, and we'll leave it at that. And they and they spent some money on other candidates as well. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're a fairly good organization. Uh, you know, it's not like they're taking, it's not like they're laundering money from, uh, you know, AT&T or Facebook or something. It's, it's not, they're, they're collecting money in small amounts uh, to help progressive candidates. And so I read an interview with Bernie Sanders, who was complaining that Biden has yet to pick a truly progressive person to run any agency. Well, I mean, you do have Deb Haaland. She, she, you, you can't say she isn't progressive. She's not, you know, she's not great, but she, she's progressive. Ish. What, what, <laughs> what is Bernie going to be like uh, by March of next year? Will he be railing against Biden? Will he be working with Biden? Has he been marginalized? He'll be, he'll be, 
Bernie will be trying to work with Biden, and when Biden does, if, I mean, I'm sure he will, I'm sure Bernie doesn't think he will, but I'm sure Biden will do horrible things. Bernie will, yes, Bernie will react uh, appropriately. Um, I, I believe that from what I'm hearing is that Biden is going to pick a actual progressive uh, to be his secretary of labor. It's what um, establishment Democrats do. They pick a progressive to just shut the progressives up. Uh, you know, Obama did. Uh, Clinton did. It, 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 you know, they just they just pick a progressive and then they ignore them. OK. Uh, Larry Summers. <laughs> OK. So I so I had a uh, I, I put up a, uh, a quote by uh, Ted Lieu. I wrote about Larry Larry Summers. Uh, for, for the listeners who don't know, Larry Summers not only opposed the two thousand dollar check, he opposed the six hundred dollar check. He doesn't think uh, working families deserve anything in this time of, of, of dire need. So I asked Ted Lieu what he thought about it, and Ted Lieu gave me a great quote about it. About how you know I think I think it started off with something like. Uh, you know, Larry Summers needs to pull his head out of his ass. Yeah, he said he Larry's it, out of his mind, is what he said. Oh, okay. Yeah, he is he a congressman. He put it more eloquently than yeah. I would put it. But uh, I had a quarter of a million uh, interactions on my Twitter page on, uh, on that quote. I don't usually get a quarter of a million <laughs> interactions. <laughs> this is what Ted Lou told you. The United States is in a recession and Larry Summers thinks some one-time stimulus checks will result in overheating our economy? Ridiculous. His misunderstanding of the economy in the Obama administration is one reason we have Donald Trump. Great. How dare he? How dare he? Yes, and Ted Lieu, just just so we could put this out out on the record, came out for $2,000 checks monthly. He wanted them monthly, and he came out for them in March. In March, Ted Lieu got up on the House floor and said, we need $2,000 checks per month for working people. So, you know, and, and no one is, is, is talking about monthly. I mean, I, I shouldn't say no one is talking about it. They are. But there's no serious consideration of any kind of a monthly check in this country the way they have monthly checks in almost every other civilized country, including Canada. Ted Lou said to you, $2,000 checks to these people who are suffering, who can't pay their bills, is the difference between homelessness. I'm getting Hang on. I've got to take a breath here. $2,000 checks to them would be the difference between homelessness and a roof over their heads, having electricity and being able to eat. Larry Summers should commit seppuku. Larry, yeah, Larry Summers should, should get the F out of the Democrat. Anybody who talks to Larry Summers should commit seppuku. Overheating the economy. He's worried about the economy overheating when we're about to have a blizzard and people are going to be evicted. How dare he? How dare he? I, one of the other people who I asked about this was uh, Stephanie Kelton, the economist. I said, you want to give me a, a quote that I can use for my story? And instead of giving me a quote, she sent me back a picture of a clown. <laughs> this is always pretty appropriate. Larry Summers, former president of Harvard. Right. Yeah. Uh, Obama's advisor. I think he was Clinton's Treasury secretary. Is that correct? He is a, he is a conservative uh, Democrat, establishment conservative Democrat. He could be a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't make any difference. He's really the same. So, 
Why did he get kicked out of Harvard? Was he like raping uh, underage students or something? Uh, well, that was with Jeffrey Epstein when he was traveling with Jeffrey Epstein. Allegedly, he made a comment that women weren't good at math that he claims was misinterpreted and he had to step down. He also uh, was secretary of treasury. Then he ran Harvard and the endowment was mismanaged. He couldn't... Uh, outperform other money managers so maybe he should have gotten a woman to do it yeah they're but they're not good at math according to larry summers one of the geniuses he wasn't good at math he was mismanaging it so when i was a kid i remember this poster and it was political parties starting from the time of the federalists and the republicans and it was drawn like uh, roots that intertwined kind of like a double helix and the message it was historical but what you realize is that over time parties morph into their opposition yes they they become what they rail against and i would assume that's because they want to pick off the other party's voters so they adopt a couple of their positions and within time they literally become what they hate is is the democratic party haven't they pretty much become the republican eisenhower even no they're worse than eisenhower republicans they're worse it has happened already but they're worse than Rockefeller Republicans. Larry Summers is worse than a Rockefeller Republican. Oh, I mean, he kind of is a Rockefeller Republican. I know you hate him right now, but, you know, that's what he is. Um, okay. Yes, and, 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 you know, and then here you, you saw Trump carrying on about $2,000 checks. And Larry Summers is saying there shouldn't even be a $600 check. While Trump is saying there should be two thousand dollar checks, even even if he was insincere, which he was, at least he knew um, uh, which way the wind was blowing. Unlike Summers, who's completely clueless and bad at math. So let's talk about COVID in California. You write that you won't step outside without a mask on. Is it? Well, getting- I haven't stepped outside without a mask on since since March or late February. Is it? I mean, I'm a mask kind of guy. I've been wearing masks on airplanes for 15 or 20 years. Uh, is Gavin Newsom in trouble? Yes, Gavin Newsom is in trouble. Did he mismanage this? Yes, he absolutely mismanaged it. And, and other things. I mean, he's, and yeah, he, he's very, very, he's become very, very disliked. There is a, uh, a recall. Uh, Democrats are not likely to vote for the Republican recall, but they would like to see him out of office. Uh, no one likes him now. Because there's a shortage of hospital beds. That's one, you know, he's, yeah, and he's seen as a hypocrite. He's, you know, he's had some uh, personal scandals, uh, you know, taking PPP money for his company, uh, which is um, a no-no. And also, um, he's he was caught uh, at, a, at a fancy, one of the fanciest restaurants in the United States up in Napa Valley. He was caught there eating. The French laundry. The French laundry. Yeah, the, yeah. 
and he lied about it. He said, oh, you know, we were outdoors, we were practicing, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a special birthday party. He made all this bullshit up. Turned out it was, a, it was a dinner inside with lobbyists. Everything he said about it was a lie. So now people know him as a liar. Uh, that's not good for him. Right. Have you eaten at French Laundry? Uh, no, I have never. But you, like that? You're you're a foodie, right? I, supposedly. Yeah, I just never had a, a, a chance to eat that. Eat but, there. But they say uh, people. I, I know two people have eaten there. One of them is a fascist, and the other is a centrist, a lefty. Not a lefty, a left of center. The 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 guy who ate there said it was worth every penny. I find it hard to believe, but he said it, it was art that you get to eat. Well, I don't doubt it. I mean, there are restaurants like that that are that are wonderful. It has a reputation. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure it is. And I'm sure if I could, I would uh, go up there and eat. A friend of mine lives right near it. Right. Uh, what'd you make for Christmas? Hey, Harry. Hello, Harry. Why don't you send us in a report? He's a, he's a devoted listener of yours. In fact, that's how I find out what's on your show. Is he? I get I get a report from him the week after you, the show runs. Oh, we'll tell him I, I said. I get, he tells me what I said. Because I would never remember. What. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. I really would not. I mean, I, the way I, uh, you know, to me, I'm on the phone with you, yakking with you on the phone. Right. Right. So what are you making for dinner tonight? What are you what did you make? For I am doing it right this minute. You don't hear it, though. I'm being very silent. Yes. But what I, you uh, I have uh, got up this morning at around four. And well, actually, this whole started. It also, the process began last night when I took uh, dried chickpeas and uh, soaked them. And then this morning I got up four thirty, something like that and started the process of cooking them in, in a sort of a Middle Eastern style, using a little coriander, which everyone knows, but also some things that, that are rarer in the United States, uh, black lime, which I love, and za'atar. So, so that, those are going to be the flavors. And now I am loading them into a, uh, so they cooked all day, they're, they're cooked, they could be eaten right now, and I'm loading them into a, um, a, a a pan for um, for baking, and I am going to bake them with um, uh, uh, tofu that I've been uh, marinating, uh, extra firm tofu, tofu, which is which serves the, the role of a, um, of a of a protein of, of you know instead of chicken or something like that, I'm using protein. So it's, it's so it's gonna it's gonna bake on this bed of uh, of incredibly delicious. Um, uh, chickpeas and, and with the chickpeas, there are, obviously there are other things like uh, onions and carrots and uh, peppers, so all sorts of uh, yummy things. Hmm. I also made a, uh, a banana bread, um, which which is which is fantastic. I, I haven't eaten anything since um, uh, Saturday at uh, at uh, five five o'clock. So so it's been uh, it's been a long time. So I'm looking forward to this meal. Well, how, you've you've done a 48 hour fast. I do every week. A 48 hour fast. Yeah. Well, theoretically, I do a 24 hour fast. But what what happens is I don't. I wind up. I wind up not eating the, the day the the whole day after. So you know. So like I said, it's been from Saturday at five until today, and I'll probably eat at uh, five five thirty. 
Okay. Explain to me how it's possible for Something this. Something about uh, um, black wine? I'm sorry? Something about black wine? What, what is that? Black wine is, is, is what I prepared. It's, it's, a, it's a lime that is dried, and it has a very, very distinctive and incredibly delicious uh, taste of like a kind of a, um, a sour citrus. But it's really a unique flavor, and, and it's used a lot in the Middle East, and I'm, I used it today. You know, I cooked the, the, um, the chickpeas in it for 12 hours, so it's going to really be amazingly delicious. All right. Uh the economy. The stock market is hitting record highs. Yay! And well, that isn't the economy, as you know. I, I know. I know. But they do use the stock market as a leading indicator on how the economy is going to be looking six months to a year out. Right now, people are on the verge of getting evicted. Right. They, I think they get a reprieve until February 1st. But they're um, they don't they don't own stocks. They don't own stocks. No, no. Is this new president going to be in touch with the more than 60 percent of Americans who can't find four hundred dollars? Is, is it, it and can it be ignored? Can it be swept away the way it was in the past look biden has a long record since the early 70s in the senate where he was one of the most conservative democrats uh, most uh, most times he was the most conservative democrat in the senate he uh has done everything during his career to hurt american working families that's that's his that's his modus uh, operandi and whatever democrats who wanted to get rid of trump want to tell you and they all want to tell you that yeah, he's changed he hasn't it's what he is now he's also you know senile and feeble and he has people around him who are going to be running the show now a lot of those are really they're really bad like people like Larry Summers, not Larry Summers, thank God, although he, he floated uh, the idea of using Larry Summers, but someone pulled him back off that ledge. Um, so I don't have high expectations for uh, for Biden uh, doing the right thing for working families. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, people are talking about, well, well Biden is going to, you know, uh, give $50,000 worth of um uh, reprieve for student debt. The reason there is student debt is because of Biden. And not on one bill, but over and over and over again, Biden was the one. He was the one. He's the worst. Mm-hmm. So I have really low expectations for him. I'm sorry to say that to, you know, foolish Democrats who, you know, I, I don't want to blame anybody who voted for him. I'm not going to, you know, chastise you because um, voting for Biden was really a vote against Trump. I, I didn't do it, but I understand why people did it, especially in swing states. Right. However, what, what, who I would chastise are people who actually got convinced that they were voting for someone who's who's anything more than the maybe lesser of two evils. No, he's the lesser of two evils. <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate. He is the lesser of two evils. He, he's he, the lesser he, of everything, not just evil. He, yes, well, that's true, too. I totally believe that Biden will go down in history as the second worst 
president. And right now, I'll just say contemporary president. So I'm not going back to like you know people like John Taylor. Uh, I'm sorry, John Tyler and James Buchanan. I'm not going that far back. I'm just in our lifetimes that he will be the second worst president after Trump. And, and, and you realize, of course, because I know you're sharp, that that means I'm predicting he's going to be worse than Nixon, worse than Reagan. He's going to be worse than either Bush. I mean, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm saying something here. And we'll discuss that in, in four years. Call me back. Okay. Before you go, we're getting word that the House has voted to override Trump's veto of the military bill that uh, President Trump was opposed to the uh, the defense bill because he added he, he was against the tearing down of Confederate statues and he wanted to add a, a rider that would take away Internet companies shield from liability uh, and but that didn't really have anything to do with the defense bill. And Pelosi said she would be happy to do something separate for him on that. So the defense bill that he was so against was really about name, the naming of forts. There are, you know, there are all these forts named for traitors. And he was insisting that no names be changed. And even Republicans said, hey, you know, it's time. Let's, let's just do this. And that is the reason why he uh, opposed this bill. The, the, his, his, what he's crying about, about uh, social media uh, uh, having un- undue protection, most Democrats agree with him. And they're, they're willing. But it's nothing to do with, with the defense bill. It's not, it's not relevant. And Pelosi has said, we'll do it. We'll do a separate bill. We have to, you know, it's not because you're saying it. It's because it's the right thing to do. And we have to have, uh, you know, the committees look into it and we'll come up with the right thing. And, and he's just demanding that it be like tack, tack, willy-nilly tacked on to this defense bill, which is insane. There's most things that come out of his mouth are. He wanted to bring the troops home from Afghanistan. He wanted to draw down the troop numbers. And everything with Trump isn't what he wants. It's what other than what he wants to appear. He doesn't he doesn't feel strongly about anything that's not uh, involved that doesn't involve his pocketbook. He wants to look in his power. He wants to look like he wants that he was the great, uh, you know, anti-war guy uh, that people will be able to point to in the future. Oh, look what he did. He did this and he did that. But the fact of the matter is he's had four years to do this and he didn't do it so what's he gonna do it on the last week that he's president give me a break last question before you go when i talk to you next year will are we not talking before next year uh it's december 28th unless you want to do our new year you want to do our new year show no but thank you i don't okay Um, before before next year yes what happened to chokeway I, I, I we'll we'll talk about it. We'll we'll okay. talk about it. Uh, let's talk. Uh, I reached out, uh, but, okay, but next time we talk, we'll have Antoinette, who I've been talking to you about. We'll have her on the show. She's fantastic. She is so fantastic. You're going to love her. You're going to love this woman. She is so brilliant, and and and, and everything she says really clarifies everything. Uh, so it's going to be great to have her on the show. Will. The next time we talk, will Trump have pardoned either himself or his children? Yes, yes, of course. 
obviously, I mean, himself is a weird thing because legally he can't do that, but he claims he can. He's going to try it. So that's going to be decided by uh, the Supreme Court eventually. And But as far as the children go, absolutely he will pardon them. Okay. Howie Klein is the founder of a, uh, of a ledge to step out on for me. I mean, that's that's uh, you know, I mean, who wouldn't agree to that? You agree, right? That, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think I don't think he goes to jail. I think all these cases disappear, unfortunately. But yeah, I, you know, it, it's too bad we didn't get a chance to talk about this. Uh, but I did a I did some meditating this whole weekend, and and I wrote about it today uh, on the nature of forgiveness and what forgiveness means. And the you know in the Bible, all, all the verses in the Bible are are. You have to forgive. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. God forgave us. We have to forgive. With no strings attached, just forgive. Except Luke. Luke said, if they are, uh, if they ask for your, if they repent and they ask for your forgiveness, then you have to give them forgiveness. Everybody else said, just you have to forgive them, whether, whether they do or they don't. Trump will never even acknowledge that he ever did anything wrong, let alone ask anybody to give him forgiveness. So, so I mean, and I'm not talking now, David, as a society. As a society, we, he has to be punished. He has to be, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not the judge and jury, but if I was, he would be uh, guillotined in the capital on the Capitol Mall, the National Mall. But, but, but society has to punish this guy. But I'm talking about how about you and me? Are we going to forgive him? I haven't even forgiven Obama. Why would I forgive Trump? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great new year. I look forward to talking with you. And uh, when when the vaccines have been... Me and Antoinette. I'm sorry? Me and Antoinette. Yes, next week. And we're going to unveil here the candidate who's running against Denny Hoyer uh, in 2022. He's the mayor of, uh, of a small city in Denny Hoyer's district. Also an incredible guy. So smart. I mean, so, so smart. He's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for all, right. all you've done for us this year. Seriously, thank you. Howie oh, Klein, friend. follow him on Twitter at Down With Tyranny and read him every day over Down With Tyranny. Thank you, Howie. Bye, David. Bye. Thank you. Now let us go to, I guess, well, I'm just because I'm going to guess that you're all in Brooklyn. Alicia Brooks joins us and Professor Russell Spriglia. Did I get the last name? I, I've been working on that. Did I get That's it right? That's pretty good. That's pretty good, David. No, I was talking to It's Brooks, right? Oh, uh, yes. Spriglia, right? Yeah. I got it. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was serious. I was good. All right. And Leisha Brooks joins us, and we are doing a special show tomorrow. I would assume it's going to be on YouTube. Are we doing it live on YouTube? No, it, it's going to probably be out in a couple of weeks. We have a bit of a backlog of them, so we're just recording it tomorrow. Okay. Uh, let me first introduce Leisha. She, it turns out, is a comedy writer. You're working on a show for Netflix, is that correct? Uh-oh, outed. Yeah, um, I, I, I write uh, and act in Los Angeles. And are you in Los Angeles right now? I am. Okay, so Leisha Brooks, 
came to us as the the uh, sister of Michael Brooks. And we're going to talk about what we'll be doing tomorrow to remember Michael. And also joining us is Professor Russ Shriglia. He teaches critical theory and he's also co-edited several books with Slavov Zizek. Subject Lessons, published by Northwestern University Press. These are two intellectual powerhouses I'm talking to right now, Leisha and Professor Russell Spriglia. And tomorrow we will be discussing the comedy of Michael Brooks. People, well, where are these powerhouses, David? (laughs) Yeah. Compared to me. Yeah, oh, well. I sort of just blacked out during that part. I was uh, a lot of people remember Michael as uh, a kind-hearted activist who could move people to the left. He certainly moved me further and further to the left, and those familiar with his work know how funny he is. Uh, it didn't seem fair to me that you could be that smart, articulate, that you could speak uh, so uh, well uh, extemporaneously. But then you throw in the, the ability, the, the, his impersonations, his speed and his wit. That, that seemed somewhat uh, piggish uh, genetically. I think he got... Wasn't he, you know, uh, am I allowed? Can I trash him for being everything I'm not? Yeah, go for it, go for it. Just, it didn't I, I seem fair, yeah. But, but I think, I think a lot of it came out of uh trauma and suffering. Oh, good, go on. No, uh, well, anger, I would that make you feel better. No, 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 I, no I'm just joking. So, we're going to talk about Michael and his, his comedy, uh. And he was a fan of Cumtown. So I yes. want to ask you about that, because earlier we were talking about Jennifer Aniston getting dinged for a Christmas ornament that says our first pandemic 2020. And people who listen to my show are sick of my defending the politically correct. But I, I do believe that the good of the politically correct outweighs their bad. But then there are those professionals who are just coiled in the grass, waiting for any opportunity to show how sensitive they are and lash out at poor Jennifer Aniston for her Christmas ornament that says, our first pandemic 2020, how dare you trivialize the plight of people who died from this horrible, well, you don't, own COVID. Uh, we're all suffering from COVID in varying degrees. We've all been cooped up for the year, going crazy. If Jennifer Aniston makes a, a, a Christmas ornament that says our first pandemic 2020, uh, she, she's fine. She can do it. And, and I said the same thing about 9-11, that just because just be, everybody suffered from 9-11. So we all get to deal with it whatever way we want. And Cumtown is problematic. Uh, one of my sons is addicted 
to come down. And he plays it for me, and I laugh uncontrollably at <laughs> come down. And, uh, and I always say, this is hysterical, but what are they going to do with this? And he says to me, that's the problem with you. You're not in the moment. That's why Nick Mullen is so brilliant. Mm. He's doing with it what he's doing with it right now. That come town is come town. I hear the stuff that Nick is saying and I laugh, but I immediately think, okay, but you're, that's not gonna. So, I mean, can, can I jump in? Yeah, please. Come train. Um, I should mention that Michael defended come town, yes, as do yes. I, because I just, I laugh at it. So go ahead, yes. please. Um, sorry, my microphone isn't working, so I hope I'm loud yeah, enough. You're great. Um, yeah. uh, Michael, I think one thing that he would say in almost every conversation we had was normal people don't care about this. Normal people don't obsess about politics. And I think Michael thought projects like Cumtown actually made having good politics more normal, more accessible. And he had Stavros on his show, I think fairly recently, maybe it was in June. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I remember and I remember they were doing this bit uh, like kind of like about I don't know if it was a caller or a discord comment or something that came in about how a girl wanted like a stupid socialist boyfriend mm -hmm. like you know not like you know obsessively talking about theory and like just like a dumb guy with good politics and I think um he, Michael just appreciated kind of like the unabashed like humor and just like I think I was listening to Glenn Greenwald a while ago talking about like the conversations people have in private about like children um, getting hormone treatment, you know, under the age of 12 or 13 or something versus like what people comment on it publicly or personally. And I think audacious humor is kind of one of those things now. It's like what people say off screen, offline, what they find funny is one thing. And then what they publicly admit to finding funny is another thing. And come town is just like, this is what most people find funny mm -hmm. and it's dangerous and dangerous yeah. is funny now, yes yes that's all i've got on come town that's my yeah. I, honestly i saw i saw michael's interview but um i'm gonna cop to not having i actually haven't watched it so i'll have to watch it have you have you listened to come town no is it a it was a, i thought it was a is it a podcast or is it's it a, a podcast nick mullen uh, Maybe okay. Google it with the word podcast, though, if you if you look for it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Otherwise, you might see you might see old pictures of me from an yeah. earlier iteration, way back. From, a, way back from another career, way back, way back. Uh, so, uh, Leisha, tell me, uh, when did you become a comedy writer? Um, Did you do stand up? Well, I don't know anything. Uh, yeah, you, I you, you, I, you're pained. You have a pained. Well, stand up was always this thing. Michael did stand up. He was really funny, obviously. Did you do stand up? I did some stand up, but what happened was, is when I was like completely a mess and like probably the most funny and most alcoholic, you kind of need to be drinking a lot to like do the open mics and go to the hotel, but you know, like that scene, it's really hard to kind of have your life together and, and spent like the first five years, six years of like, you know, you, you really have to commit to it. And I feel like that time in my life where I would have been doing that, I wasn't 
functional enough to do it. And then when I kind of got my shit together, I, I wasn't as interested in like being at like a two drink minimum for the performers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, you know I'd, like drive around LA and like, you know, be like three, like deeply depressed people that, I mean, there literally was a hotel basement in East Hollywood. I would sometimes go to and like, they didn't like get my, you know, it was like, they like didn't get my jokes, but, um, I, I, it's always kind of like my sliding doors of like a bit of a like regret that I didn't put in the, the 10,000 hours when I would stay up past 10 PM. Right. Russell, what do we have planned for tomorrow? Professor Russell Shpriglia, how, what is the format? Let's plug this. We've got, so the uh, some of your some of the listeners or, or viewers if people are watching on youtube might have seen some of the first uh, handful of of these that we've done um like we we've done one on the future of the left when that was with um zizek <laughs> there's there's the zizek jokes um we did it with him and cornell west um, we did a left economics one with mark blythe uh, ben burgess and richard wolf and um, your audience will know all of those figures. Of course. Of course. And, and uh, we've done a few more, but this one is going to be a little bit different because uh, I've, I've been pulling together clips. We haven't showed any 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 clips during any of the other panels. Um, and so I've got clips. Uh, uh, I've got a number of clips, <laughs> but some of them are like montages. Um, and so we'll, the, I mean, the general idea is that we'll, we'll watch some of these. I had them in order and we'll, we'll remember Michael and talk about the, talk about the bits and the, that, that, you know, he did with Sam, um, with you, there's some with just you, there's some with you, Sam and Michael, um, with Andy Kindler, and uh, and Matt Leck uh, is going to is going to be there as well. So I've got I, I've been I've been showing them to to Leisha and running them by Leisha just to make sure. But I think there's going to be there's make some sure good. Sure, I censor them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let, let's talk about uh, Zizak. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I have a book that was sent to me by Professor Greenberg, who teaches linguistics. Uh-huh. And there's a collection of Zizak's jokes. I've got it somewhere here. Yeah. How can we be sure that Judas didn't really betray Jesus Christ? Whatever one thinks about the Jews, they know the value of the things they sell. So no Jew would have sold a God for mere 30 silver talents. Not bad. How does he do so? Does he have theories about jokes? Leisha, have you met? Zizak? Yeah. Um, I, you know, Russell put this uh, event together and we, we met over Zoom and he was, he was delightful. He sort of at the end said he, you know, I don't know, Russell needs to take this part. He's your buddy. He had a good, he had a good bit after we stopped recording asking uh, Cornell West, um, you know, he, well, he was, uh, Slavoj was like, okay, are we done recording? Are we, I want to know when we're done recording because one time I, uh, I wore, I was, I was wired and I thought we were done recording and I forgot, I forgot that I was still wired. And I said about the moderator, Oh, can you believe this idiot? And everything's like, and everyone heard me. So, mm-hmm. um, but the way he, t- but it wasn't funny when I just told it, but the way that he tells it, it's, it's hilarious. Right. But does he have theories about jokes? Do you know? 
he does. He does. Well, the funny thing about about that 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 joke book is that I actually haven't gone all the way through it is because the jokes are always in the purpose of making some sort of theoretical point uh, or some sort of philosophical point. And so they're they're almost taken entirely when they're stripped of the context. Some of them are some of them are like that one's pretty good, but there are other ones that are that are a lot funnier. But he's, he's a funny guy. You know, he's he's done um, in another life. Would he have been a, uh, a stand up comic? Well, he wanted to do there's an there's another uh, philosopher, Graham Harmon, who says um, and the two of them um, have sort of ongoing debates. But he said that um, aside from uh, Diogenes, the cynic, uh, Zizek is the only is the only philosopher he knows who could make um you know, he could have a full-time job as a stand-up comedian because he is, I mean, he is funny and he's done, he's done two um, documentary series. Um, they're called Perverts Guides and they're <laughs> directed, they're directed by Sophie uh, Fines, uh, Ray Fines's sister. And there's one that's the Perverts Guide to Cinema and there's another one that's the Perverts Guide to Ideology. And it's, it's pretty cool. They like recreate, um, sets they're they're pretty close they had some sort of budget and they'll show a clip from uh, a hitchcock movie like the birds and then they'll cut to slavoy in a boat on bodega bay like melanie daniels takes to go to go see mitch and he'll give a sort of uh, extemporaneous like psychoanalytic uh, he'll psychoanalyze it well of course um what's going on here why the birds attack is that it's the mother's super ego who's trying to prevent right. him from go yeah and they're like you know they're they're like two and a half hours long and they're, they don't get they don't get boring. They're great. Well, well help me out, because you work intimately with Slavo Zizek. I didn't know who Slavo Zizek was until he debated Jordan Peterson. And I didn't know who Slavo Zizek was uh, and Jordan Peterson was until I watched the Michael Brooks show and the majority report. This is stuff that is just way beyond my ken. So uh, Jordan Peterson, I get because uh he's simplistic and yeah you know, read half of the communist manifesto and then debated uh zizek i guess two years ago <laughs> and yeah. uh, it made a fool out of himself yeah uh, zizek is is a freudian a hegelian how and a philosopher yeah. and he's been called what the elvis of critical thinking Elvis of cultural theory is the, the cultural theory so what is cult yeah so first of all let's explain you teach you teach critical theory yeah so what does critical theory mean boy I mean people will give you different definitions but it, it's based it has a tradition in in Marxist thought it I mean really what's considered critical theory um, or sometimes people use the term critical theory or cultural theory sort of interchangeably. They're a little bit different, but generally the sort of modern origin of it, aside from Marx, is traced to the Frankfurt School and uh, Theodore Adorno and um, and Max Hor uh, Horkheimer. And it's, I mean, to me, sometimes there's, it's difficult to distinguish between what what constitutes a theoretical text or what constitutes a philosophical text. And I think Zizek kind of does does um does all of those but really it's kind of this is why he's so interested in a lot of his work is interested in critiquing uh critiquing ideology and um so that's i mean generally what i associate critical theory with but there's broader definitions of it and what would be leisha what would be a good 
soft entry point for Zizek? What did you read? Oh, a soft entry point. I mean, it was it was Michael's interview with him for me. I knew the name. I'd seen his books, but I hadn't really interfaced with his work. And like you, I think the first like like serious, like lengthy amount of time uh, hearing him talk was that Jordan Peterson debate. Right. Um, if you can call it a debate. Um, and I, I, I didn't realize how funny and personal he was until um, the TMBS. Michael, like Michael was just so stoked that, you know, Zizek wanted to get pickles with him. Is that the story? No, he wanted to go to Katz's in Brooklyn okay. with him. Katz's, there's a Katz's in Brooklyn? Yeah. Apparently. Well, I, I, I consider him the second funniest Slovenian right after Melania Trump, I guess. Right. That would be, you know, he said uh, he told me like 90 percent of people in Slovenia don't even know the town that she's from. It's like if you're on if you're on a train, you see that like you can't even read the sign. You just go by it so quickly and then you're just back in the no, back she in really made it. Don't you think that she's she uh, a show a lot? I'm sorry. David, she comes on your show quite often. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right? But I, I think Melania is, a, you know, a, a, an operative. She's she's handling her asset, which is Trump. I think she's a KGB agent. Operative. Don't you? Um, I honestly don't think about Melania. I haven't really. Like, I like conspiracies. I like thinking people are operatives. I usually just err on the side of someone's an operative, but I hadn't given it thought until now. So Andy Kindler will be on this panel. Yes. Are you comfortable with that? Andy Kindler will be on the panel. Andy yeah. Kindler will be on it. Yes. Yeah. And Sam Cedar, me. Sam is going to be on it. And Matt and Matt Luck. And uh, there, there's a bunch of panels that are up. Most of them are on YouTube. If you want to catch all the panels, they're on Patreon um, at the TMBS Patreon. Um, and I just have to say, Russell has put so much love and thought into this series. And it's been just really, I don't know, like it feels like we're getting to make something with Michael or something. It's, it's been uh, the most helpful thing in terms of grief. So I, I am grateful that there is such a large community and so many people that are uh, joining us in this because it, it, it definitely feels like we're getting to put something together for Michael, which were you uh, um, without. Uh, well, let me tell you. Uh, uh. Uh, were you <laughs> shocked by how loved he was is? Uh, yeah, I I. I kind of got it, and I think I've told this story a bunch now. Like the live shows was a was a big turning point because that that was just the love was palpable and and people's stories and people driving you know fourteen hours to come you know it was like that it, it really hit. Um, but I don't think he had any idea um, just how far global. And, and so many people, I don't think we're going to necessarily write to him and be like, oh, I was depressed for five years and you got me out of bed or I was a janitor and I decided to unionize because, you know, like these stories that I get to read. I don't think he, I could be wrong. I don't think he got nearly I, I think he got a fraction of those stories and just everything has just this like it's like this catch 22 where I'm, I'm so moved and so 
uh, grateful to have, I mean, I think when someone you love dies, it feels like the whole world should stop and mourn. And that on this, like the internet world I'm interacting with, it feels like that's happened. But at the same time, it feels like so messed up that I'm read, you know what I mean? Like I'll like call my mom and I'll tell her something or she'll tell me something that's like, it's just strange that it's really comforting and really kind, but it's also just weird that he's not getting to just right. all of it. Like, and and the, problem for, the problem for uh, the problem, the I, I think be, problem is he's dead and you're young problem. and you're young and he was young. Yes. Yes. He was very young. And yeah. I have this obsessive fantasy that like, instead of, you know, dying, he had a stroke and then he was okay. It didn't cause any damage, but this, you know, he trended on Twitter and, and all the news sources wrote about him and the book sold, you know, all the things that like happened because he died. I just wish they could have happened. And like, obviously in an ideal world, nothing at all would have happened to him. But like, if they're your brain kind of just makes up these weird, you try and like bargain and like, it, it's very strange, but I probably spend like several hours a day, just like obsessively making up different, like versions of that. Wow. You're a good sister. I mean, you, you, we were very close siblings and it was just the two of us. I think some people are closer to their siblings. Some people aren't, but we were, we were as adults really becoming quite close and we both took time to kind of heal some of the, the growing up trauma so that right. we could be good friends and not just kind of, I, I know this word is like overused, but like, you know, not like uh, set off or trigger the kind of, you know, dysfunction of family. And so because we did that, it was really just like such a joy to have this really smart, funny, interesting sibling. And he also was my biggest cheerleader. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we both were kind of, his was, you know, huge. He was taking off, but I was starting to, you know, not just work in Hollywood as, you know, a, a nanny or whatever, but I was actually starting to, my career in Hollywood was, was starting to actually be a career. And he was like the person that was the most excited for me and like actually understood where we grew up, not, not as quite as Melania's town, but, you know, just, you know, Western Massachusetts without connections in the industries we went into. Um, and so it's, it's just, it's, it's so crazy not to be able to have him as a confidant. Right. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us, uh, who I owe. Uh, let me just pause for a second. Cause I have a question, uh, that involves Alicia. Uh, thank you for the coffee. Um, uh, uh, I work on thank you notes to Dr. Fraud and <laughs> they become these, what are you doing here? And so I, I can't send this. And so I, I, so I end up not sending a thank you note at all, which uh, is, we could talk about that, but uh, I cannot thank you enough for uh, the interview that you and your husband did with Henry a week ago it was it was fantastic and uh it, it was just great so let me ask you about thank you henry Henry huckamacki yeah i i you're i met you through henry huckamacki uh uh may i ask you if you don't mind about brothers and sisters because i i grew up believing that 
all the damage was done to me by my parents and all the good things was given to all the good things in my brain were given to me by my parents but i also have a sister and they've done studies now where it's been suggested that freud may have missed the boat not only on women but also on siblings that siblings can have as profound an impact on your creativity your sexuality your generosity as much or if not more than your 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 parents is that true yes there's a huge influence also children learn more from children who are a few years older than they than they do from parents just if you want kids to master do you mind turning your volume up a little please oh i don't mind at all thank you I have it. I'll talk louder. That's all. Okay, thank you. How's that? Perfect. Children learn optimally from children a few years older. And so we learn an awful lot from our siblings because they're an achievable model for children. Children pay more attention and more highly attuned to other children. And so they have an enormous influence depending on your proximity to them, depending on your proximity to other people in your family. But in my family, my sister was an utterly formative influence. And because of my parents leaving us for a while, she was the only person who was with me for her entire life. And I was with her for my entire life. And we were enormously influential on one another. But I think that that's quite typical And I see it in my clients all the time. And Freud had a lot of good ideas and working on the unconscious, but he missed a lot of boats, and that was one of them. Yeah. In terms of humor, I've noticed something. Uh, Women who've had brothers, especially younger brothers, this is just me making a sweeping generalization. Uh, Women who've had younger brothers are more forgiving of uh, 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 regressive male humor. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, anyone who's close to a sibling, if you're a, a sister and you're close to a male as a brother, you have a sense of the frailty of males, the vulnerability of males, You have a sense of the humanity of males. If you grow up with only females, you can think of males as an utterly other species. Right. Do you think that's true, Leisha? That I I would assume you're. We were talking earlier about this podcast called Come Town that uh, is not particularly correct, but uh, very funny. Michael's older than me, right? But I feel like my sense of humor. Mike was really strange. Like, so, like we we have different. He doesn't. He didn't really like blue humor that much. Is that like a phrase that people still use? Like, he wasn't per se. I don't know. His humor was like really dark and twisted, and like definitely, you know, irreverent. But he, I feel like I would sometimes have like kind of like the grosser or sicker sense of humor, and he'd be like, "Ew, that's gross. That's nasty." But I'm also younger by seven years, so. Maybe both, maybe having a younger sister makes older men more forgiving of females, regressive, you know, I don't know. Right. Yeah. 
Of course it would. Anyone who you know intimately influences you and influences your idea about other people who share those characteristics. If they let you in, and he let you in, you know, if you were an older brother who shut you out of his life and was sadistic, you'd have a different idea. Right. And not to pry, I, I, this is not about Leisha. Women, uh, their relationships with men, I've been told, are dictated by their relationship with their fathers. But I would assume having brothers would also inform what they look for in a man or a woman. All right, I'm. Let's wrap this up before I... Sisters, too. Yeah. An intimate intimate bond, whether it's with a sister or a brother, is a model for other intimate bonds with people of your similar age group. Right. And so you often look for the characteristics of the sibling. If, If that sibling meant something to you, sometimes a sibling is just an isolated person and you can't relate at all. Right. Let us, you know, I, by the way, I really enjoy uh, uh, Leisha and Professor Spriglia coming on. And I'm a little intimidated by critical theory and what you teach. But I, I would love to have you come back and ease into it. Uh, it's, it's way beyond yeah. what I'm capable of uh talking about it's, it's just so beyond me but I, I, I don't see I don't I don't think it I don't think it would be David because one of the things we're actually gonna we're gonna talk about some of the the the, the long the running bit that you had uh that you still do sometimes on on majority report but the um because the, one of the videos was labeled it was like last November or December when you went on and uh, I'm gonna we're gonna show uh some excerpts from that uh, on the on the panel when we record tomorrow, but um, it, it ended up. I think it's Matt Leck who does the um, who labels the videos um, when they go up on YouTube, and it's it's labeled arguing with a centrist Democrat. So ever since then, I it's I, that I call that centrist Feldman. But right. uh, but there's 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 a critical there's a critical theoretical point behind that whole exercise um, as well. So you can be actually talk about, you can so. be doing. Uh, something critical and not be aware absolutely 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 oh i feel like curly i'm an intellectual <laughs> Just, no. uh will you come back of course it, i yeah, feel course. yeah alicia will you come back absolutely okay i'll see you what time are we doing this tomorrow two o'clock eastern okay. so i hope i win i think i can win this <laughs> I think I'm going to uh, win. I, I feel good. Here, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm. I'm very. I'm very excited about this. Um, Michael. Michael loved all you guys so much, and you can. You'll. You'll. You'll be able to to see that once we. Everyone will be able to see that when we watch the the videos and talk about them. So yeah. the panels are up on the TMBS YouTube channel, and they're all released on Patreon. It's uh, the Michael. No, it's Patreon.com/slash/TMBS. I think. Yep. Uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Russell. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you, Dave. Give us your Twitter handles, please. So I've done my due diligence. Russell, you you first. 
Oh, I, I never, I have an account, but I never use it, but it, but it's at R Spriggs, S-B-R-I-G-S. Okay. Professor Russ Spriglia teaches critical theory and has co-edited several books with Slavo Zizek. The latest is Subject Lessons. It's published by Northwestern University Press. Leisha Brooks is a comedy writer. And what is the Netflix show you're currently writing? Um, I, I, my writing partner and I, uh, we just, we staffed on the Babysitter's Club on Netflix. And then we have a couple of our original projects in the works. So hopefully they, they make it past each guillotine stage of uh-huh. Hollywood to your eyeballs. And uh, I'm not so active on Twitter, but I did start a Twitter account for a show I'm going to launch later in 2021 about Michael's life. And it's at four F-O-R underscore M-J-B, I believe. Good luck finding that, folks. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me into your orbit. It is uh, it's an honor. Oh, it's yeah, it's going to really is an honor. And I, I hope I win tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) thanks david thanks a lot looking forward to it joining us is dr harriet fraud she is the host of capitalism hits home and it's not just in your head and uh, i have a couple of follow-ups let me uh, some people raised their hands and we didn't get to them last week so if you're in our zoom room i invite you to raise your hand and speak to Dr. Harriet Fraud. I will not hog the, the conversation. Uh, but a couple of things I just wanted to mention about last uh, last week uh, with your husband. He said he's never seen capitalism uh, in such a sorry state. And... Uh, I can remember uh, I can remember saying I've never hated a president as much as I hate this president. And then somebody would say, well, what about that president? I mean, is this something you've heard him say before or is this something new? Well, this is something I never heard him say before. And this is something that he and I share. I mean, I can't believe that we can recover from five death whacks in our capitalist society, that we are the worst in the whole world in terms of the number of COVID victims in our population. You look at it, China had 6,500 people die out of their 1.373 billion. We've had 320,000 and up out of our 350 million people who are dead, that we have the most expensive healthcare system and we failed. So that's one. The other death blow is that we are the worst in climate pollution. A third one is that we have lost Every war we fought since World War II, except for two in which there was a draw, Korea and Vietnam, and we have the most expensive war machine, more than the next most armed seven countries put together, so we failed. Our economy is in shambles. A third of our current workforce has been or is unemployed. I I don't think 
we can recover. And on top of that, we have an intractable racism problem, which Black Lives Matter has brought home. I don't see what they're doing or what they could do to rescue U.S. capitalism with this many strikes. And I think Rick would feel the same way. I don't think he counted in climate when he was thinking of it, but I certainly do, and he does when he thinks about it. There is, um, There are too many strikeouts in this capitalism, and there's too few things on the horizon that might rescue it. Right. I think our country could be rescued, but not as a capitalist country. Let's talk about the plight of African-Americans in this country. In Columbus, Ohio, the cops killed a a 22-year-old kid named Goodson. And then over the Christmas week, there was another African-American unarmed sitting in a garage talking on a cell phone. And he was shot dead by a cop. This is the cop. I'm showing a picture of him. And it turns out that Officer Coy has a long history of abusing citizens in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, There was a $45,000 settlement paid about 10 years ago because Officer Coy had stopped somebody for drunk driving and smashed their head in. And uh, this is a picture of the African-American Hill holding up his cell phone. It's a shot from the body cam. That does not look like a gun. That looks like a cell phone. And moments later, he was shot dead. And Officer Hill had turned off his body cam, even though the city of Columbus has spent millions and millions of dollars putting body cams on their police. They're not supposed to turn off their body cams. And uh, he had turned it off. It's been ruled a homicide. Uh, It's getting worse for African-Americans, not better. Well, we're hearing about it. I don't know if it's really getting worse or whether what is happening isn't publicly acknowledged that there is a murderous war against them. One of my earliest memories as an eight-year-old in the New York subways was getting out at my stop and seeing a a ring of cops beating a black man who was on his knees and cuffed. And I was outraged in my little naive eight-year-old girlhood. And I said, stop hitting him. And I ran in the middle. I said, get the fuck out or we'll beat you too. But That's what they said to you. Yes. And I was a, you know, a little white girl. It was very little at that time. I grew six inches in third grade, no, eight inches in third grade. But, you know, I was a little kid, just a little kid. But I could see that it was so horrible. The man was on his knees and cuffed that I think that that would, did not, didn't make the newspaper. I think what's happened is that Black Lives Matter with the 15 million strong demonstrations of blacks and whites together have brought this enough to consciousness that these murders don't go unrecorded and unremarked. And so that the racist butchery is brought to our attention. And I don't think the United States has begun to deal with this, that you need a massive national program 
to deal with racism. And you'd need a different educational system, like the idea would be something like a college campus, educational parks, beautiful campuses with places for nursery school and all the other grades with the highest tech and the biggest course specifications. And you'd save a lot of money because you have a big campus instead of a zillion little schools and, you know, orchestras and laboratories and all the things and everyone mixed. And you would really be able to acknowledge race and deal with race. I mean, I was a primary school teacher and one of the kids in my kindergarten's favorite activity was sitting in a circle and then we'd touch each other's hair and say, oh, he has hair like a sponge. Oh, she has hair like cloth and, mm-hmm. and he's the color of a sweet potato and she's the color of chocolate and she's the color of milk chocolate. You know, just talk, putting our hands in the ring, talking about our color and learning about its differences that have created different races, difference in terms of adjusting to the climates where they migrated and could survive. I think you'd need that, but much more so. And you you really, the United States is doing nothing institutionally to address this scourge that allows 200 black men to be murdered every year by cops. Right. That we know and, of. That we know of. That's right. That we know of. We're just, beginning, we know we're of just beginning to keep track of this. And you write one in three black men are in our prison system. One in three. That's right. Now, either they're not all in prison. They're either on parole. They're either in the process of being booked and accused or in prison. But that's one out of three. And so if prison is allowable slavery, which it is in the Constitution, then you're putting about a million people back in slavery because they're way black people are way beyond the proportion of their population. They're way beyond that portion of jails. So you're also re-enslaving black people. You have to have a very determined program to stop racism. Right. So th- this is something, uh, 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 by the way, if you want to speak with Dr. Fraud, raise your hand because I got complaints that I've hogged your time. So uh, and I want to sh- be generous with you. This is something that that irritates me. And I wonder if you you have a resource for me. Uh, we, we read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow and mm-hmm. MSNBC and CNN We'll talk about the th- the amendment in the thir- the loophole in the Thirteenth Amendment that outlaws yeah. slavery unless you're in prison, right? And in this country, we're allowed to make c- connections, but not too many connections. So, during the coverage of Black Lives Matter, we heard African Americans are imprisoned, and it dates back to Reconstruction because they wanted cheap labor. Right. And that the police tend to arrest African-Americans because they want to enslave them again because they can work for free in the prisons. But the conversation stops there. We're not allowed to find out, well, who's hiring prison labor in America? Is there a resource that tracks? So the many comp- are hiring labor. I'm sorry. 
I think you could if you went on Google. Google probably has it. There are so many that count on prison labor because it's basically slave labor. And uh, as long as there's money in it in capitalism and there is no counteractive influence to capitalism like there is, you know, Germany, France, Italy, Scandinavia, they have huge socialist parties and communist parties and so on. So that, for instance, in France, which is a capitalist country with a neoliberal awful leader, but you can't evict anyone between December and March because it's too cold. Henry was just talking about this. And the socialist parties have prevented that. And when they tried to take away the free daycare starting at two years old in France, free public education, the streets were full. They were right. organized. And they had a they have a very powerful left that, that cannot be argued. Right. They got that fuel tax repealed because the yellow vests were in the streets. They let, were let more me just organized and politicized. Let me just return to... Uh, uh, a question that I have, and I'm kind of stunned that this thing doesn't exist. You know, during the 50s, there was this blacklist. Don't hire. It was not official. Nobody admitted to it. But don't hire these people. They have communist ties or they are the one. FBI that organized that. Right. And it started uh, and Red Channels started. Uh, it was actually fictitious. The The supermarket uh, owner wasn't as wealthy as he claimed to be, but he created this imaginary organization that threatened to pull sponsors from shows, television shows and radio shows that hired these communists and that had a lot of power. Uh, I think the left has is uncomfortable with blacklists and boycotting products. We don't have, look, the left as a whole doesn't have an organized left that represents all of the people who are outraged by the capitalist exploitation of the planet and other people. We don't have that the way they do in a lot of other countries. A, B, the FBI organized that. They went around to the employer of anybody who employed someone who was a communist and told them they ought to be fired because they have a communist in their midst that we don't have that kind of organization. We sure don't have that kind of federal help. However, we do have militants so that David Hogg and um, what's her name? Emma Gonzalez. Emma Gonzalez got Laura Ingram put off the air for several weeks because they reached all the sponsors after she said that um, David Hogg was an, an idiot and a loser and gay and all these other things which were outrageous for her to announce. Right. These were the kids from the Parkland high school that survived the shooting. Right. That's right. Against school shootings because they acted in concert. They acted together and they created a boycott and it worked. People have to have a unifying force. The FBI was the unifying force to vilify communists. Right. We don't have a national party that has that kind of power. Right. If we did, we would have more influence. I also think, uh, well, I, you know, I remember it was must have been 2012 that I read an article in The Nation about prison labor. And I don't have the article in front of me, but it Mm. said something to the effect 40 percent of prisoners 
are making yeah. like a dollar a day, maybe a dollar a week, building your furniture, taking your airline reservations, working for Visa and MasterCard, doing bill collection, manning phones. Building roads and I'm so sorry? on. You know, like they send them out on road, road crews. Fighting fires in fact. California. Right. Exactly. For, and with no credit that would allow them to be a firefighter when they get out. Right. I think that may have changed after this round of fires. But I, I remember reading that article in The Nation and I thought, well, why isn't there a blacklist? If you told the average American about prison labor, this was the same time we were finding out that Apple was using women at Foxconn Right. In, in conditions that were identical to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, right. and there was outrage, suicide nets. If you told Americans, what are you talking about Foxconn for? This is going on in in the United States. More than a million American prisoners are working for Fortune 500 companies. And I thought there must be a resource. There must be a list of all these companies. You'd have to look on Google and see if there is. It's um, indefensible. It is indefensible, and it is also omnipresent. But that's the woven racism, capitalism, intermarriage, which is everywhere. And you're not going to see neoliberals like Rachel Maddow naming her sponsors. No, not. you will not. No, so, you will not. So it all gets down to identity and... Uh, and feeling good that a, a Native American is now our Secretary of Interior. Right. Until, until she wants to ban alcohol and gambling. Right, exactly. Then, then, then it's problematic. And exactly. They want certain tokens, but they don't want to change the systemic nature of American racism because it's profitable. And this is a country in which there's very little that stops people from trying to profit. That's why we have a for-profit, miserable healthcare system. And that's why there's so many dead. And a for-profit healthcare system, a for-profit prison system. System. If the prisons aren't owned by a for-profit corporation, the the state prisons are doing business with for-profit corporations. And the state-owned prisons demand a certain number of prisoners to keep themselves in business. So there's a big incentive to put people in prison. Right. Right. But if you have an unmitigated profit system, that's what's wrong with our health care. The reason we're the worst in the entire world is because everybody has to compete with everyone else and raise the prices. And we don't have a national authority that comes in and rescues our country like they do in New Zealand or China or Vietnam or Cuba <coughs> or South Korea. You know. How am I supposed to uh, feel when I read the news and I see certain industries that employ people, but <coughs> the working poor, you know, the, their jobs, but it's the working poor. When, when you talk about the demise of capitalism, uh, when I read that casinos are suffering, well, I don't approve of casinos. I, I, I think gambling is a sin. I really do. 
Yeah, and it should bad. be it should be limited to Vegas, Atlantic City and Puerto Rico. And that's it. It shouldn't be you shouldn't be able to walk to your local casino, which is what uh, what we have now. I don't approve of lotteries. They've turned liquor stores into to casinos. So when I read mm-hmm. that fewer people are showing up at casinos, uh Am I supposed to be happy that these casinos are going to go out of business, even though they're union jobs? And it's what am I supposed how am I supposed to root? What am I supposed to who am I supposed to root for? And when I read that uh, more people are drinking at home and that bars are going out of business, uh, I, I don't have anything against drinking and I don't have anything against bars. But I live in Manhattan where the only businesses are bars, bars and high priced clothing stores and restaurants. Nobody makes anything. They just encourage you to consume and spend money you don't have. How am I supposed to feel when I read that high end uh, high end clothing stores are going under uh, high end restaurants are going under? Those are jobs for have, people. Those are jobs. And you you don't maybe have pity for the industry, but for the people who work there. Right. But it's a system. And you may not like this particular grotesque outgrowth. It's a system that exploits people at casinos and exploits people at restaurants and exploits people everywhere. And it has to go. It's the wrong set of priorities. The idea that you pay somebody less than you make off of them and look at, the, look at them as a source of money for you rather than as a fellow human is sick. Right. And, and we have to get rid of it. And the, in an economy, jobs, we, we as, a, as a culture decide what kind of jobs people should have, what what we value and what we don't value so that and I'm just thinking about New York City where most of the high paying jobs I know of for my friends are waiting tables at high end restaurants or serving food at bars and being bartenders. Manhattan decided that serving food to the richest one percent and uh, uh, piling drinks into their idiot kids, that, that's, a, uh, that's a job worth having. We need people for that. But we could decide something else is just as valuable, like being a teacher. If we were in charge, we would. We're not in charge. That's why you ask the average person, not the 10% that has any money to invest in the stock market, do they think the stock market is really valuable and essential? No. Do they think childcare is? Yes. Do they think a good education is? Yes. Do they think parks are? Yes. But we're, they're not the ones who make the decision. The people who are paid to run make a decision. And in our democracy, both presidential um, candidates have to have billions of dollars and pay the people back when they get in. By the way, the race in Georgia. It's important. It's not what we think is important. The runoff in Georgia, they will have spent a billion dollars on this runoff in Georgia. 
how much is that per voter? I can't do the math. I don't know. I don't know how many people are in Georgia, but I know that this has nothing to do with it. It has to do with a choice among such a limited band of choices, a choice of two candidates, both of which can raise billions of dollars. That's not a choice. Right. So we have to look at the idea of democracy with a, you know, kind of what? Professor Harvey J.K. was on the show uh, right after you and your husband were on. And then he came back Christmas Eve to do our show. And we were talking that I would love to have a conversation with you, your husband and Professor Harvey J.K. about democracy and uh, Marxism, because. Uh, when I was growing up, when we were fighting the Russians, it wasn't a question of uh, capitalism versus Marxism. It was a question of democracy versus communism. I was told as a kid that we ha- we have to protect democracy right. from communism. They never told me that communism is the ultimate democracy. No, of course not. And also, look, Russia, nobody discussed this when Russians lost 30 million people in World War II and were our biggest ally. And Uncle Joe, Joe Stalin, was featured all the time as our ally because we were allies against Germany. And it is Marxism is a set of ideas that can be interpreted lots of different ways. Russia is a state capitalism. And the reason the Russian government failed is the state and a group of bureaucrats replaced the capitalists making the decision for the mass of people. They weren't in co-ops. They didn't have that kind of voice over what they're producing and, and their own lives. And they didn't have a democracy. We don't either. People die of poverty. They die because they're on Medicaid. A friend of mine's sister just died. She was on Medicaid. She was looked at by a doctor, the one doctor that she could find that took Medicare, Medicaid patients. Did you see the story about the African-American doctor who died from COVID and the way she was treated by the doctors? One day, I know we're out of time and I'm interrupting you, but when we're done focusing on when Black Lives Matters, when they when they're done with the police, they should focus on the medical community the way they should focus everywhere that racism is practiced, yeah. which is everywhere. Yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I apologize. Well, that's fine. That's what racism is. It's everywhere. Yeah. And what you were told was that we have democracy. And Russia has Marxism. Marxism is an ideology that doesn't is something entirely different. And also we have capitalism here. There's capitalism in the Philippines. They're kind of different. Communism, as they called it, which was state capitalism in Russia, is very different from what it is in Mondragon, Spain, or Cuba. I mean, those were simple-minded things they told us, which was part of the brainwashing and anti-communist ideology with which we were saturated before you go uh we wanted to talk about 
human sexuality. <laughs> we have limited time. Maybe this is uh, uh, we can tease appropriately enough the topic for next time. Uh, we're, we're told that Americans have a puritanical streak when it comes to uh, human sexuality. I always say we killed off the Puritans, but I'm wondering, did the Puritans kill themselves off because of the puritanical streak? Did they just not reproduce? Uh, are we as hung up on sex as you kind of say we are? Because it seems to me uh, they say men think about sex uh, even when they're having sex, I think about sex. I mean, men are always thinking about sex. Uh, I, I think that the joke, if I were to write a joke, would be the only time I don't think about sex is when I'm having sex. Uh, something like that. I'm rambling. I apologize. It seems like all we talk about is sex. So why yeah. why are we accused then of having hangups about it? Well, I think partly the Puritans weren't killed off. They reemerged as the evangelical movement, A. B, they're the ones who have mixed responsible sex education in our schools. And so that we are very backward. In France, every other block, there's a condom machine. In Sweden, if you go into the ladies' room, there's pictures of happy penises with big smiles on them, big posters the size of the wall that say, when you go out, remember me. And there's this guy with a bow tie putting on a condom over his big penis. <laughs> you know? These are other people. You know, that we are so behind in high school, all over Scandinavia and the Netherlands, they're learning about if you become sexually involved with somebody, what is your responsibility within a relationship and within a life that you might create? Because they've learned about it since kindergarten. If the flower isn't fertilized, it doesn't grow. And then in middle school, they learn about their bodies and what they can do. It's a civilized idea. We don't have sex ed except through porno, which is how our children get educated about sex. And is that a function of our uh, our economic system where they want the repression? Does that benefit capitalism for us to no, be? No, it's, it's because they want to make money and they don't. The stations want to advertise and they don't want to be boycotted by the religious right. And so they they treat sex in this kind of dirty way. It's omnipresent as a secret. That's what Foucault in his earliest book on sexuality talks about. Sex is everywhere as the secret, everywhere. Hello? And it's the Catholic Church which monitors your fantasies, not only your real activity, which are sinful, and the body is a sinful body, you know, just the way men and women are dressed when they get dressed up. I've never seen this written about, but it always impresses me that men have a tie. Very clear. This is where my head is and my body is below this. And I'm not calling attention. <laughs> the woman, the, the neckline is down to her belly button. My head and body are the same thing. Here I am. You know, mm -hmm. whoa, very different. That there is a different presentation. And I read about how in Norway now, in some of the schools, and this even shocked me, they have speakers naked. 
the speakers come and they're often naked. So kids can see that there are fat people who are authorities, skinny people, people with a lot of body hair, people with none. So the kids can get used to people having bodies. Interesting idea. These are the public schools showing privates? Public school showing privates. You know, this speaker is talking about whatever is, is talking about the economy and she's naked. And then another one who's much older is talking about that. And then another fat person is talking about this. And the kids get used to, okay, everybody has a body and they're all different. And hands on the table where we can see them. <laughs> Look, they don't have to masturbate with this because this is, they have accepted that people have bodies and their bodies have sex parts. And it's a very different idea. But there must have been a problem for them to now do that. Of course they were. They had religions, too. And they had that problem also. And, you know, they had. But what the difference was that they knew that it was a problem. And it was a problem for men's and women's equality and self-acceptance. Okay, let me ask Professor Adnan Hussein, who is chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. It seems to me, according to my readings of the Old Testament, Shem saw Noah naked. And from that, is that where... uh, did the did Islam did, did Islam come from Noah's son seeing him naked? Well, firstly, I just want to say, remind <laughs> me <laughs> never to accept his <laughs> lecture appearance in Norway in invitation. Okay, <laughs> I'm glad I heard about this because I might not read the fine print and may have a rude awakening, you know, when I arrive. <laughs> But, um, Especially if you're talking at a middle school. <laughs> um, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly the question, but of course, all the three monotheistic religions that emerge from the Near East share some of the common mythology, a lot of common theology, and as a result, also a lot of similar morality. Um, you know, so you have kind of, uh, you know, ideas about um, modesty that are gender, uh, you know, that are part of patriarchal culture that get enforced. Um, what's interesting, though, I just, I, I'm sorry, people, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I apologize. Uh, I just made up a joke. I think you're not allowed to see Noah. He wasn't allowed to see Noah naked because apparently he didn't have two of everything. (laughs) Sorry. I just, I was writing jokes with somebody before the show started. So my mind is sorry. Sorry. That's good. That's good. But I don't believe it was Shem actually. Ham? Yes, it was Ham. And that's part of why he was considered cursed, right? He's cursed for having done this, for um, exposing or, or seeing and uh, undermining, you know, seeing that the emperor has no clothes, the patriarch in this compromised position, right? So that hierarchy is being overturned. He is thus, as a result, uh, um, cursed and um 
sort of exiled from this community of salvation, right? So this is uh, so ham. In fact, actually, racial theory, actually, very interestingly, racial theory, uh, even in the medieval period, they had the idea that all peoples, of course, descend from this genealogy of Noah. So how do you fit? all these different ethnic and racial and cultural groups, you organize them according to whether they're sons of Japhet, Shem, or Ham, right? And the sons of Japhet are the Franks, the Europeans, and the Turks, okay? The sort of Mongol Turks, this is how they, they thought of it. The sons of Shem are the Semitic peoples, that's where, you know, Semitism, you know, the idea of the Semitic peoples and Semitic languages comes from the name of Shem. So all the peoples of the Middle East, obviously the Jews, and then the people who descend from Ham are, are thought to be uh, Africans, the people of, of, of Africa. And so this kind of racial or ethnic, it's more an ethnic and cultural typology in the medieval period, but it becomes a racial typology in Southern or U.S. Christianity or, you know, Western Christianity racializes this as a genealogical precursor to the biological determinism of biological or scientific racism. So would the would Islam trace itself back to Shem or Ham? I guess Shem. Well, I mean, they agree on this uh, on the typology to a great extent in the sense that um, Arabs, um, you know, Persians are, are seen as descendants of, of Shem. But they likewise also recognize that the Turks come from some different uh, community or group. Um, Partly it's because of their nomadic lifestyle, which is a, a, a life way um, that's so different from, you know, the sedentary, um, you know, civilized, if you want to call it that way. But agricultural communities in the Fertile Crescent, the nomad seems so different so that they posited, yes, they must be from some different, um, you know, descent, essentially. But what I wanted to say about the modesty question or issue um, was just that, um, of course, these are patriarchal structures. However, what's often forgotten in the modern period in Muslim societies and cultures is that there were equally, you know, strictures on male modesty and dress that people have abandoned, you know, completely, you know, with no problem whatsoever, while they still insist on enforcing, you know, dress code for women and in, in ensuring that they have to wear the hijab or the veil and, and so on, while they themselves completely abandon. And these were even talking about people who would be considered conservative, fundamentalist oriented uh, Salafists, Wahhabis. So you'll see in the Gulf a woman completely covered in black, face covered as well, um, and a guy wearing shorts and a kind of low, you know low cut T shirt because it's hot and obviously you want to be comfortable, and that is actually completely violating the traditional you know Islamic legal cultural ideas about proper male modesty as well. And so these, there is of course a disparity already in the law, but I would say it's been exacerbated dramatically in the modern period by even greater patriarchal difference on how this, this is being interpreted and applied. Interesting. 
let's tell Dr. Fraud about office hours. Well, um, it was it was absolutely you and Professor Annalee, uh, who has a great Daily Kos column, which I linked to in the newsletter. You uh, did a great lecture on the carceral state and uh, we had 24 hours of professors, teachers, uh, but I guess Ken Mann. Oh, yes. Yeah. It was an extravaganza that went to another level with his uh, uh, performance, an hour of sheer comedic uh entertainment um it was amazing but it was actually it was actually so we had we had professor marianne cummings teaching particle physics talking about nuclear reactors uh sarah bush baked a lemon uh, a meringue pie uh, and everybody gets an hour to do with it whatever they want i had i was optimistic about by the way my daughter is going to be teaching comedy writing at the next office, I, which I recommend. Uh, she teaches. Sounds com- great. She teaches comedy writing at a summer camp and uh, she signed up and uh, I write. Well, with, at least there will be a Feldman who actually teaches comedy. I know I didn't. I, something happened. My neighbor had a problem, I so I couldn't teach. But my uh my daughter, uh, I've been anyway, so uh, tell everybody how to get on office hours so those who might be just listening will know. Well, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and just sign up for office hours. We start at 9 p.m. Eastern Friday night and go till 9 p.m. Eastern Saturday night. It, I get the, the thing that just brought me the most joy was watching Professor Hussein watching Ken Mann. We were all in a state of delirium. And I had, I'm repeating the story. Professor Ben Burgess signed up for 4 p.m. I'm repeating the story. I told it four hours ago on the show, so I apologize. But Professor Burgess calls me. So I thought I had the 4 p.m. I said, yeah, you have the 4 a.m., not the 4 p.m. Oh, oh. And I said, you know, this guy, Ken Mann, I have no idea who he is. He has the 4 p.m. It kills me that I have to say to you, I've already given it to Ken Mann. He's this guy who lives in in Glasgow uh, and he's going to talk about show tunes. And he did an hour. It was it was like a class on the American songbook, musical theater, focusing on Tom Lehrer. It was a it was a musical lecture on Tom Lehrer and Danny Kaye. And he's doing it. He's got a. 16 month old kid he's living in scotland and he's got this you know nice usb microphone but he's obviously in his closet because that has the best acoustics and he looks like a mad band singing these show tunes in the closet and the uh we don't have it on tape somebody stopped recording it but professor hussein was laughing like tears were coming it was it just came at the right moment right it could not have been timed more perfectly and uh somebody in the chat room dave (laughs) so so ken is doing show tunes in his his closet and teaching at the same time and dave writes in the chat room he does this all the time 
this is the first time he's ever done it in front of a camera. <laughs> he sings show tunes in his closet all the time. This is it was just so funny. It was anyway. Uh, well, I can say that the that was definitely a high point. But um, everybody was great. It was, it was that amazing. Just threw me. I didn't know who he was. I knew who everybody right, else right. was. Well, uh, what I, I guess my biggest endorsement for it was that, as, as I would put it this way, that I did have to go to sleep for a few hours, four or five hours, and I was sorry that I missed the sessions that I slept for because it was right. terrific. It was. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it's like summer camp. Tom and Barb Weber sang. Uh, for me, what, what I want to do is... Uh, I, I feel like sometimes I need to be seen. So because but I would like to be able to cover my uh, camera and listen and watch in my underwear while I'm cleaning. I, I want to do the dishes. And I, I think it, it would be such a great way to kick back and do a crossword puzzle. I never got to really enjoy office hours this way before. Uh, and you meet some of these, you know, the, the people who stepped up are off the charts. Uh, it was, it was breathtaking. It was, it was, well, this holiday period has been really great to have, um, 20 hours of uh, the David Feldman show plus office hours. Oh, yeah. But I have to say there've been a, lo a lot of wonderful feedback and enthusiasm for Henry's, Marxist Power Hour mm -hmm. with uh, you, uh, Dr. Fraud, and Professor Wolf. There's, I've just been noticing on the Marxist chat channel, on Discord, a lot of enthusiasm. It spurred interesting discussions, and people are incubating uh, more questions. If you ever do come back, I think uh, there'll be a whole raft of interesting questions from generated from the group and, of course, from the broader audience. And where Ricky did a great hour. January 11th. We're supposed to come back. Fabulous. Are you coming when? January 11th, he said. I, I my, my thank you note will have been edited down. And it will okay. probably just end up being, what do you do when you write a thank you note? And it's 10 pages. And then you just you edit it. You edit it. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't edit myself. I, that's, I end okay. up doing 12-hour podcasts. Right because of that. Uh, let's talk about the woman. If you don't mind, I'm throwing you a, uh, a curveball. I, I mentioned it in the newsletter. Uh, could we talk about Saudi Arabia for a second? Sure, yeah. Um, women arrested. I don't know how to pronounce her name. Lujan Al-Hathal? Uh, Lujan Al-Hathlul. Yes, the the Saudi government is uh, holding her in prison. She's 31 years old. And I thought women were allowed to drive, but she led the movement for women to drive. So why is she being held? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, she was a courageous activist with uh, many others, but she was one of the foremost, uh, most public uh, symbols of this movement um, to give Saudi women the ability to drive uh, on their own. Um, 
And um, uh, right before MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, uh, announced this change in the law to make it legal about a month before and uh, she was arrested. And so subsequently, she's been held in detention. She alleges she's been tortured. I think, you know, I tend to, you know, believe women. <laughs> this is a case where I think that's a probably a reasonable uh, allegation. Um, and um, I think it's mostly because MBS um really doesn't like dissent the purpose of doing this is less about uh democratizing and opening up saudi society uh, as much as it is repositioning himself and improving the saudi image and its relations with the rest of the world because this was getting a lot of international attention and undermining his claims to be a kind of reformer so he made certain kinds of concessions and adjustments um, but by the same token he doesn't want to encourage more dissent he doesn't he wants to show that the personal costs to people who will engage in this kind of advocacy against Saudi state policy uh, on more serious questions, for example, of corruption in the government, its military, uh, uh, quite unpopular uh, involvement in, in Yemen and other kinds of issues like this, that there will not be any toleration of that kind of dissidence. So it's obvious that this isn't about democratizing or liberalizing Saudi society. Um, so even if he's going to make these concessions, he wants to make sure that the people who are involved with advocating for it pay a personal price, are held up um, so that others are warned and that it chills actual dissent. In, I think it was a, a year, two years ago, uh, the col a, a writer for the Washington Post Khashoggi, yeah. yeah, Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated yeah. in yeah. Turkey, I believe. He was trying to get uh, he and his fiance were trying to get married, and he was assassinated in the consulate there, uh, the Saudi consulate, and he was carved up with a bone saw. And it, there's no question, according to America's intelligence agencies that Crown Prince Salman ordered this. Yes. Have they suffered? Have, have we stopped selling arms to Saudi Arabia because of this? I believe uh, Trump kind of w was dismissive because Khashoggi wrote for The Washington Post, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, and Donald Trump hates The Washington Post and Bezos, so he didn't shed a tear over a, a columnist for the Washington Post being slaughtered. And he kind of said, people get killed all the time. Why are you focusing on Khashoggi? Uh, do we have selective outrage with Saudi Arabia? Well, why are I, we yes, focusing I mean, this, on this is a case? This is a case where Trump, as usual, seizes upon something it has a kind of kernel of truth because of the hypocrisy that's involved. Like, this is a horrible thing that he said, and it's a horrible thing that happened. But, of course, it is a question 
why it is that as much attention was made about this figure when there are a lot of other Saudi dissidents, people who've been brutalized. Um, in some sense, it had political value for people to use it against Trump. And he's reacting precisely to that sense that, well, you're just trying to use this, you know, um, as a as a bludgeon against me. Um, and he objects to that and he calls out the hypocrisy that uh, we tend to show in our foreign policy. Um, there's been many, many reasons uh, to have criticisms of the Saudi regime. And um, the largest one of recent times is, of course, their horrific war that caused the greatest humanitarian crisis in our current period um, in Yemen. You know, it's war. In, it's in, it's in still Yemen. continuing. It's still continuing. Yes. And yeah. and it is said that John Kerry, our new climate czar, uh, might get into trouble, could get arrested if he travels to Europe because he authorized the sales of weapons, the barrel bombs to the Saudi Arabians, knowing that it would be used on the, the Houthi rebels. And that, so it's not just the, the Trump administration no. that, that could be held, uh, dragged before the ICC. It could be John Kerry. Maybe not the best pick for our climate czar. Uh, maybe not the best pick for secretary of state either at the time. Um, so, but it just shows the problems with uh, bipartisan uh, support for aggressive U.S. military intervention abroad for uh, the maintenance of U.S. empire um, in the world. Um, and that's something that um, is very hard to deal with um, and so how does see. it work? You're, you become president. You're, you're in a Hollywood movie. I get elected president because I'm going to bring peace to the world and we're not going to sell weapons to, you know, I'm Dave. The, remember that movie, Dave, with uh, Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. And so then I go into the situation room and then they sit me down and say, this is how it works. Some Dr. Strangelove says, no, 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 no. We sell arms to the Saudi Arabians so that they can kill the Houthis because the Houthis are Shia and they're being funded by Iran. So this is a proxy war. And instead of uh, invading Tehran and killing three million people, we're only killing a million Houthis, which is do the math. Would you rather kill Houthis or Iranians? We have a lot of Iranians living in Beverly Hills in California. They don't want us bombing Tehran. We don't have too many Houthis, so we'll kill a million Houthis instead of three. I mean, and then you go, oh, OK, I guess the math that works. All right, so sell the missiles to Saudi Arabia. That's how it's explained to the president, right? Well, I'm sure there are many components of the force and pressure that is put on to elected officials by the what sometimes people would call the permanent state, the military industrial complex, the security surveillance apparatus that is there administration to administration. And also we have to think um, that um, in terms of the U.S. industrial economy, where, you know, in what sphere are we making things uh, now? I mean, our advantage is really in certain kinds of industries and, you know, military arms and production, 
high tech and surveillance. These are places where we have an economic advantage. And how much pork is there? You know, in every district, you know, there are jobs that are associated and attached to this military industrial complex. And it's been going on for more than half a century. I mean, Eisenhower warned about it and he would know um, since he helped get it going, you know, in the post-war period. Um, but so the problem is, is that there's too much at stake economically, politically entrenched interests uh, uh, who can wait out administrations. Um, so it's very difficult to confront that. And they tend to drive an orientation to maintain U.S. hegemony in this in this sphere um, that doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. Um you're facing, if you try and go up against it, you are considered on the very fringe of extreme if you bring up these kinds of issues. So Barbara Lee uniquely stands up in voting against the authorization of military force um, and is out in the wilderness. She stood alone. Um, Let me ask you about Saudi Arabia. If all lives are equal, there, there are, what, 7 billion people on this planet, and every life is equal. How does Saudi Arabia stack up against Israel, Jordan, Syria, Iran? When, when I read about uh, the crown prince being this monster, if all lives are equal, how does Saudi Arabia stack up to all the other actors in that region or, or the world? Well, they have been historically, uh, even before the Yemen um, uh, involved, you know, their, their Yemen intervention and the war that they've, they've started there and the humanitarian, humanitarian crisis they've created, uh, all the casualties and so on. Um, they've been a key part of U.S. Cold War policy. Uh, in Afghanistan, very evident. Everybody knows about Saudi funding of um, al-Qaeda, the jihadis in, in Afghanistan, and the Taliban government, and so on. Um, but people are less aware of their involvement in funding um, counterinsurgencies um, from the right, terrorism, and so on in East Africa, for example. Like they are very involved in, in, in you know, some of the worst um, behaviors of the US government and the worst sites of um, the use. In fact, actually, who is it who really developed um, the use of terrorism to undermine, you know, populist uh, governments? Uh, you know, it's the US, but a lot of the funding. Um, was uh, coming from Saudi Arabia to protect Shell, like, like to protect Shell Oil, to protect other oil companies, perhaps. Well, partly because they relied on the United States for protection um, in the region against Iran, against Iraq um, during the what was called the um, uh, the Arab Cold War against uh, Nasser. Right. And the expanding, you know, you know, Arab nationalism and the idea that Arabs should be united under one uh, state during that period. Uh, the Saudis were reliable U.S. allies and they relied upon the United States to provide the military protection. And as a result, the bargain was, is you've got to help us fund some of our projects to turn governments um, 
and per, uh, pursue our interests regionally and also even beyond that region in, in, in Africa. Um, let me bring in Professor Marianne Cummings, who is a physicist and a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. I, I'm going to give you a compliment. I hope you don't mind. Office hours. Uh, I went to bed late and Saturday I slept in. I slept until like one in the afternoon. I was sleep deprived. And I as I'm drinking my coffee, I realize, oh, office hours is going on. And I sit in front of the computer and my first cup of coffee was watching you doing a lecture on nuclear reactors. And it was I it's hard for me to. You encouraged me to uh, relearn physics and relearn. Oh, I, oh! Do tell about your early life, David. Well, I used to have uh, my parents bought me uh, uh, one of those chemistry sets when oh, I was five. Back when they were real chemistry sets, like, like yeah, and I built a little. I, I built a particle accelerator, and uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I. It's uh, I've learned one of the things I've learned about, especially from this show, is it's observation, not understanding that uh, what 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 when Dr. Harriet Fraud and Professor Wolf are talking about Marx and uh, Ricky and. Professor Hussein are talking about Marx. It's so beyond what I know. All I can do is observe it. The way you watch uh, Vladimir Horowitz, you can, you know, I'm watching this and and not to be intimidated. I think so many of us hear you, Professor Marianne Cummings talking about how uh, chain reactions and and instead of feeling stupid. Uh, I, I have trained myself now to say, isn't it amazing that somebody knows this and uh, it's all, in many ways it's settled. It's it's they, th this is uh, a, a basic building block of knowledge and that you don't have to go below the block to try to understand. It. You can just it's, it's like learning to drive. a You, you can drive a car without having to understand how a catalytic converter works. Right, or the and, internal combustion issue. Yeah. But it's also really a good learning experience for myself because, you know, this was a very unique audience of very intelligent people who were not technical. And some of them had a hostility, rightly so, to nuclear energy because of the way it's been handled and been treated. Um, and so it was... Good. I, I remember one point, uh, I think Myrna was asking a very good question. And then I started listening to myself talking about negative, like reactivity coefficients. And I'm going, stop to myself. Like, that's such a stupid answer. Like, like I have to, it, it's training me to be more intelligent about, you know, like really communicating. With well, people. getting rid of the shorthand, uh, shorthand, yeah. uh, not, not, I'm, I'm not accusing anybody of uh, here. Shorthand is exclusionary. 
uh, when you yes. uh, I've I've used shorthand. I've noticed on jobs when the boss wants to fire somebody who's new, we all start talking in, in a shorthand to make that person feel like they're not good at yeah. their job. Like and, there's something you don't get. Or yeah, that. that there's this special nomenclature that only we get. It, it, it's it's almost animalistic. People pick up. You can tell when somebody's about to get fired because uh, the new person's yes, getting. Fired. All, we, we are all pack animals, and we're all uh, damn dirty apes. To quote, what's his face from one of those movies, <laughs> Planet of the Apes, Charles Nestor. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's we we do, and it's really gross because that kind of that kind of hack mentality, especially when there's fear in the air. You know, it's like when people in these days, in you know, in a lot of situations, people are so fearful. That was I was talking to a young activist who was a gal that I met on the Bernie campaign today, and she's of course staying home with her her parents, but she's just furious because she doesn't see any future, any hope. You know, she saw, you know, the hope extinguished with Bernie Sanders. She's kind of disgusted that the squad seems to be going along to get along. Although I said, I think we're changing that. <laughs> it's like this is active participation. And goddamn, there's old Bernie Sanders twice for the second time in a month, not worrying about that he doesn't have the numbers. He just goes out and he starts taking a stand for what is right. And so, uh, yeah, it was him and Howley uh, a couple of weeks ago. Remember, they were going to pass a stimulus check with no direct payment. Or stimulus right. bill with no direct payment. Well, do we have the 2000 or not? Uh, we it passed the House. And what is, what's going on is that Bernie Sanders got up in the Senate and he's going to filibuster. OK, so Trump vetoed the, um, the defense bill, spending bill. And they were going to override the veto. They have the votes to override the veto. Bernie Sanders gets up, gets up and he says he's filibustering that vote unless the Senate takes up the two the, the vote. I think Mitch McConnell was just going to table it. But Bernie Sanders is uh, threatening a filibuster, and I think he really means it. And he's going to filibuster that until there is the vote on the $2,000 direct payments. Ed Markey has joined him. He just announced about an hour ago on his Twitter that he's uh, going to be joining Bernie at that. So I'm telling people, you know, don't wait till you have the numbers, because if you wait till they have the numbers, you'll never have the numbers. You take a stand and then you create the numbers. Damn. I, I, it's just I am just so frustrated. I've been frustrated for years how passive progressives are. Now, some of that is just being bought. I mean, some of that is just being told, hey, you know, you want your committee or you want your career. Well, this is what you have to do. But I think it's also just learned helplessness on our part. We are so we have trained ourselves to believe it's not going to happen tomorrow or the next day or maybe in our lifetimes that, uh, you know, um, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that's what I was looking for. Yeah. I hate so, to bring I, I hate to bring this back to office hours, oh. but one of the things I've noticed talking to the left is they like to talk. And then when they don't get their way, they become not not the entire. I'm just certain people on the left. Mm-hmm. They become petulant and then dissatisfied and make an excuse not to do the heavy lifting like running for parks commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. 
it's easier to just say, uh, Bernie let me down, uh, uh, I give up. Right. And I mean, so with office hours, I noticed, you know, we started in April and it was a group of leftists and we were talking and we were talking. I kept asking, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Let's stop talking. What are we going to do? There, there's a time for talking and complaining and isolating what the problem is. But I'm discovering that a lot of people who claim to be on the left don't want to do anything because their house isn't on fire and there's their stocks are doing well. So they rather talk and they say things like we don't have the votes or it's complex. You know, health care is a very you know, it's not just uh, about uh, delivering medicine, but it's about affordability and it's about being Blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, you don't, your house isn't on fire. You no, don't give a shit. No, mother, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. But, I heard that before. but they're all lefties from way back. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I think that, and it's, it is true. I mean, believe me, it's like I would have loved to have seen Bernie Sanders just win, but. Like when Obama won, I allowed myself to have a little bit of hope, and I thought, wow, maybe the system does right itself. And and if you think that, if you really think that, you convince yourself that you've done everything you can, and that somebody, like a certain unmentionable comedian or somebody further to the left, usually it's somebody further to the left than they are, they get like get lefties pants all in a wad. They want to consider themselves as far left as you can reasonably go and be a reasonable person. You know, I know for a fact that I'm extremely conservative, you know, just a basic temperament. It takes a lot for me to go out and get outside my comfort zone. But, you know, if, if you can rationalize a, a bunch of things, you can rationalize yourself out of any responsibility. Yes. Like it would be, well, if there's nothing to be done and it's hopeless, I don't have any responsibility here. Right. But if it's possible and if people are telling you, no, this is really possible, this is just a bunch of people like not wanting to do it, then you're rankled a little bit. It's like, wow, I, I may have some responsibility here to actually do something. Right. And they, a lot of people don't want that responsibility. Hope is kind of responsibility, too. They want to just say that, well, we did our, the best we can. We got, we voted uh, Trump out, and now it's just, we just have to be adults in the room, you know, and not hope that anything can get better. And I love that line of thinking. I don't understand the, uh, I guess cer certain people I know lie to themselves. Certain people, I, I don't understand. They, that's everybody. Everybody yeah. likes themselves. That's a survival mechanism. So uh, certain people who uh, who march with Martin Luther King, certain people who say, you know, I fought for Medicare, I fought for the civil rights movement, and now they're in their late 60s, early 70s, maybe approaching 80. Their conversation is... The votes aren't there now. They, they, they say things like the votes aren't there. And, and I say, well, what are you talking? Why are we having that conversation? The votes aren't there. What is that? How is that germane to the fact that 
people aren't getting their insulin. People are dying and being evicted. What, what do you? What the fuck are you talking about? The votes. Tell me something I don't know. The runs aren't there for my beloved Detroit Tigers. So don't think we can win. Well, you know, if if uh, Miguel Cabrera, you stop drinking and lose about 30 pounds and go to batting practice, maybe, you know. But why does somebody why does somebody say that? Why would somebody say publicly? uh, Why would you lead if if you're on this show, for example, why would you lead with the votes aren't there or we can't do it or you or we're up against because we want to feel good about joe biden being president can you just at least give us a little vacation from struggle yeah go ahead professor hussein well i i think this is a really important question for us going forward we've been wrestling with it uh, a little bit what should the posture be going forward um, under the Biden administration. And I think some people are eager to see some fight continue and they want to feel like their election of the squad and other progressives um, actually means something because they will, even if they don't have the votes, they will raise you know, the issues, they will stand and fight and they'll cause good trouble. I mean, this is the reason why people voted for them is because they ran um, on a defiant sense of confronting the corporate establishment capture of the entire Democratic Party. And if they aren't going to do that, I think that's going to derail the movement more than anything else. And what people are demanding right now is at least to see that there's some reason to keep engaging with the system. I mean, there's going to be no reason um, to really feel like there's any electoral value if the people you actually elect who you know, run precisely on on um, the positions that you're in favor of and with the attitude that you want, which is that we're going to fight, go in and don't fight and tell you all to calm down. And I think um, you you posted a very interesting article in your newsletter by um, Shant Mesrobian, the left's culture war rebranding in some journal american affairs i wasn't familiar with the journal it looks like it's some sort of nonpartisan, bipartisan sort of um uh journalistic uh outfit uh, for unconventional positions and to try and introduce those into discussion and i think um there were a lot of things i objected to in his analysis or characterization but i think fundamentally he gets something that's going on which is that the squad and progressives have essentially been captured by the identitarian orientation of the corporate Democratic Party's discourse, not because that's not commitments that we all should have for racial justice, for, um, you know, toleration, and we care about those issues desperately. However, they've abandoned on some level making public fights on the universalist programs that could break through 
Uh, not that they they aren't a gift for them. Of course, they're for those Medicare for all. They're for, um, you know, a living wage. You know, they're for a lot of, you know, free college tuition and cancellation of student debt. So they're in favor of those things. But the question is, is are they going to use the spotlight that they have, the platforms that they're on, and the audience that, they, that, that they've captured, are they gonna use those opportunities politically in a wise way to broaden the coalition, or are they gonna serve the people that they have already uh, communicated with who support them? And I think there is a bit of a problem that we have on the left of, um, getting caught up in um get well getting getting caught up in in the symbolic uh aspects and and yet at the same time they say when 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 we say well at least do something that's fruitful symbolically like a floor vote we get that it's just symbolic but it might have other political benefits then they don't want to do it but when it comes to um, you know, symbolic, uh, you know, identification with various uh, uh, identity politics uh, sorts of issues, you know, they get support in doing that uh, from the corporate establishment. It doesn't threaten anybody's power exactly. for them to have that identitarian branding. Right. It kind of actually burnishes Nancy Pelosi's credit in a way when she gets on the cover of Rolling Stone with three of the squad. I mean, and it's not exactly what they weren't sent there to do. And in the case of the floor vote, I mean, first of all, as some people have pointed out, the uh, losses in the Democratic Party were not because uh, there were negative ads about the squad, but there were far more negative ads as somebody who bothered to look and count. There were far more negative ads with Nancy Pelosi. In other words, Nancy Pelosi is is been associated with she's, le, she's less popular than she's way less popular COVID, than, right? I mean she's she's less popular than Trump. The only person less popular, like uh, favorable to unfavorable, is Mitch McConnell. And these days not by much. So, you know, having a floor vote, by the way, you know, the crap that Jenk Uger has been putting out that, well, that risks, you know, the uh, the Republican uh, Kevin McCarthy becoming Speaker of the House. Now, I looked into this and before you know, even before that, I said, well, sometimes you have to take a risk. That will mean. But the the only way that Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House is if he gets if he gets 218 votes, you have to get the majority votes no matter how you get them. And unless there's going to be some Democrats that will vote for him, which would be career suicide in, in, uh, in, in the Democratic side, he isn't going to get the votes. So if Nancy Pelosi fails, they have to come up with somebody else that can get the votes of the majority of the, uh, uh, of the House. Now, Nancy Pelosi, I am sure, still wants to be Speaker. That's the way you pressure her. And you start with a Medicare for all vote in the middle of a pandemic when millions of and, and even if we do have return immunity or something by late spring, the fallout, the economic fallout of this is just beginning now. I mean, we're just going to continue to have millions of people lose their jobs. I doubt that the Biden administration has any big, 
you know, World War II scale FDR, like Green New Deal program in the in the works. But uh, we're going to have to start with Medicare. Getting a vote for Medicare for all, this is so easy. This is leveraging your power. And if they don't do this, not only will they lose the momentum that Adnan has just described. I mean, they lose a real window. They will have then, you know, just said that, hey, we have taken a pass on the biggest opportunity to flex our political muscles that we have ever had, that the left has ever had for decades. And as I said, you know, I think, I, I think, well, Bernie Sanders has stayed out of this because he's politically astute, but he's leading by example over there in the Senate. He's not counting the votes. He's not saying that, well, Mitch McConnell is going to defeat this anyway. No, he's taking a stand for what's right. And he's willing to risk risk that must-pass defense appropriations bill. I I don't know. I I mean, this is a... No, but apparently there's been a lot of activity in that direction. There's at least four of the squad now that are seriously thinking of not voting there only needs to be five members of the squad not or five members period on the democratic side not voting for nancy pelosi they don't have to vote for anybody else they can just abstain and and nancy doesn't have her to because they're not going to that um that that house seat in new york is not going to be settled by next week so um so and then things get interesting. Then you have changed. I mean, it's just, and the other thing too is that people always, always to make these political calculations as if this one thing is going to happen, but everything else is going to stay the same. Oh, you're going to have a floor vote, and, and nothing's going to change. The fact that you would be audacious enough to challenge Nancy Pelosi and use your leverage is a game changer. It'll I mean, be interesting. This is the kind of thing that makes people go, oh, they can do this? They just did this. And then they start questioning, well, what else were we told we can't do that they're just not doing because they don't want to? That is the kind of thing that this is why we gave them our money, that we made phone calls for them. A lot of us, and especially people poorer than I did, did all that for them. Giving Republicans what they want is a lot less dangerous than giving Democrats what they want. Well, because you're servicing the donors, because you're giving the donors what they want. Right. All right. That's, and when you're not giving the donors what they want, they get upset. They lean on our Democratic leaders as well as the Republican leaders. Those guys, you know, I, I think we need... To, to just get rid of this delusion that the sides are Democrats and Republicans. I mean, the side are the corporate interests versus everybody else. It and, would be, yeah. you know, a third party would create the kind of chaos that would bring about the change this country needs. Washington, D.C. is all about stability, and that's yeah. why they have the duopoly. You add a third and fourth party, it turns Congress into a parliament almost. Certainly the speaker, it's almost parliamentarian. There, there, there is the potential to have something like a parliament if you add a third and fourth party. 
It'd be something like what I've wanted, you know, and the Thursday after the election when when Alan Minsky was reporting how close that, you know, Nancy Pelosi was becoming to losing her majority. It's like, well, the progressives can effectively function like a third party. They can have a voting block. And this is just happens in multi-party democracies or democratic republics all over the world. The other thing is. You ask for way more. Like this other notion that has just been toxic is that, well, we have to let's craft policy towards something that the Republicans might like. No, you go in the opposite direction. You ask for twice as much as you want. Mm-hmm. And then you do. I mean, like, that's how you compromise. The compromise comes at the very end. And the case of Bernie Sanders beyond the end i mean yeah. bernie sanders is considered an extremely tough negotiator we we, we we have to wrap it up but uh the irritable immunology but this is food for thought uh, as we're studying the electoral college we're, for the first time in a couple of cycles we're actually paying attention to the electoral college how it can work in our favor is if there were a legitimate uh third and fourth party, we would not have a president getting 270 votes in the Electoral College, correct? Yeah. Then, So then it goes into the House of Representatives. Is, am I getting this right? Yeah. There was somebody who wrote an article about this a while back, how Bernie Sanders could be president, you know, because Bernie Sanders actually did get, I think, one or two electoral votes. But the point I'm making is that we hate the Electoral College, but it does give us the opportunity to have something resembling a proto-parliamentarian system. Because if, there, if the presidents aren't getting 270 votes and it goes into the House of Representatives and there are three or four parties in there, your president is forming coalitions, your speaker is forming coalitions and it starts to look like a, a parliament which may be a better system than what we have now to be continued yes professor let's plug is, the mudgeless and the guerrilla well, history a, just a quick point on that is i think you have to have electoral reform because these are winner take all in almost all of the states for each state and so that's a bit of that's, a problem that's a, yeah. the other issue though here quickly on this is that we did have a third party that influenced the outcome, the Libertarian Party. I believe that the Libertarian Party really draws much more from the right wing voters. And I think in many states, the difference, you know, uh, in winning the state, really uh, why it went for Biden the margin of, of, of difference, you know, uh, went to uh, I'm forgetting her name now, but the libertarian Joe Jorgensen or yes, George Jorgensen. And there's been very little discussion of that. Whereas when Ralph Nader, you know, ran, you know, for the Green Party or as an independent, um, right. all you heard about were whining. Oh, yeah. People in the Democratic I Party. Stein. I mean, uh, Gary Johnson was a much bigger factor. She got more than three times the votes she did. And if you just go by the numbers, like he if if he hadn't been running and both Jill Stein votes went to Hillary and his votes went to Trump, Trump would not only have gotten a bigger you know, electoral win, he would have won the popular votes. So but- Ralph Nader ran for president 
in 2000. Right. Most people, including me, liked Bill Clinton because he was winning. The Democrats could win again. Yes. And Ralph Nader was saying the Democratic Party has been bought and is now a wholly owned subsidiary of Wall Street. And we didn't listen to any of that stuff back then. I'm sorry. We didn't listen to any of that stuff back then. He kept saying the Clintons are bad. You know what? Poor Bill Clinton. They try to impeach the poor man. He's a bad guy. He's taking all this money from Wall Street. Ralph Nader was absolutely right. And Al Gore, anyway, to be continued. Uh, thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein is the host of the Mudgeless podcast, as well as Guerrilla History with the brilliant Henry Huckamaki. And how do you do you do Twitter? You do. I always tweet. I do. I do Twitter. You can find me at Adnan A. Hussein, H-U-S-A-I-N, and join me next uh, week on the 4th at 8.30 because Shahid Buttar wants to join and we can have a discussion with him about... Shahid Shahid Buttar is coming to the show? He's coming to the show next Monday. Wow! What, that's fantastic. I just talked with him and he said he's he's excited to come on. That's fantastic. That what great news. That's oh, you made you you made my uh, my day. Thank you. And you're going to be there for office hours, right? Is is Professor Lee going to join you? Yes, uh, Professor Lee and Grace Jackson and I are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do something more literary this time. Okay, that, but not something Norwegian. No, (laughs) not unless we get an awful lot of requests. I think I figured out a way to uh, to, uh, Professor Marianne Cummings, Razor Girl. I just started adding you to our Twitter uh, and and you're and you're going to be talking about local politics. You're going to do a lecture. I'm hoping to get. the, the fellow is running for uh, mayor of Aurora on with me. Fantastic. So he's, he was also a, a former Bernie delegate and ran against and almost beat the blue dog Bill Foster, outspent like 15 to 1 when Bill Foster won his first seat. So he knows a lot about the struggles of progressives and taking on, you know, Democrats. He was on the, uh, oh, he was also on the platform committee this year for the Democratic Party, too. Fantastic. So. I am looking forward to off, Office Hours and Hours. That's the new name of it. Office Hours and Hours. It starts 9 p.m. this Friday and goes until Saturday, 9 p.m. I guess we start New Year's night, right? What a way to kick off the new year. Thank you, Professor Marianne. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Let's go to somewhere deep in the bowels of California's, what should we say? Uh, I mean, it, it's effectively the colon, David. There's, there's, no, there's no getting around it. It's, it's, it's low down in the gastrointestinal <laughs> tract. It's low down and dirty here in Southern California. And yeah, we're just, we're just getting excreted through the sphincter of SARS-CoV-2 overrun. It's not good times here. It's not good times. That can only mean one thing. It's the irritable immunologist. Now, what I'm going to do since you're here Normally, you're here with Henry, and I figured it would be good to 
give you an opportunity to talk uh, directly to our listeners and take some questions because sometimes we, you know, we don't get to talk enough. Let me just plug a, a very quickly Diabetic Fury, an evening of diabetes awareness with Martha Previtt and Jim Earl with our special guests, Robert Smigel and Rick Overton. It's this Saturday night at 9.30 p.m. All the proceeds go towards Diabetic Fury to raise awareness about diabetes. And uh, you're welcome to join us, Irritable. But let's talk about importance. Dave, uh, before you start, I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000. Okay, yes. bye-bye. Yes, you, you did. goddamn son of a... We, we ahead, come back when, after uh, Mike Steinel, uh, please. Uh, I, I got to jerk off. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Come back and do it. Tubin oh, style. Okay. Tubin style. <laughs> got it. All right. Well, I let's, I, I'm, I'm told that Mike Steinel has that effect on a lot of people. Jim, so. <laughs> OK, irritable. Let's look at the news. There's a lot to discuss. Lori Laughlin is finally out of prison. She left. Uh, she did two months over the college admission scandal. Her husband is still in prison. They've put him in solitary. Remember these two, Massimo Giannulli and Lori Laughlin? They paid $500,000 to get their two idiot daughters into the University of South, South Carol- South, South, Southern California. Remember them? I mean, I, it seems like USC really made out like a bandit on this whole deal, right? I mean, they got they got half a mil for for taking in some idiot, bubble headed, chuckle headed Hollywood <laughs> Nimrod's dumbass kids, and pretty much nothing's happened to them, as far as I can tell. Uh, whereas this person appears to believe that using a trash bag is going to be effective at preventing viral transmission. And that's just not the case. <laughs> they let her out because of COVID. And uh, if you're watching us on Zoom or YouTube, there she is covering her face with a trash bag. They wanted her to be out because COVID is spreading. So hospitalizations, we're looking at a graph. Can you see this? Irritable? Yep. So- it looks great. It looks great. We're doing great. It we're number one. It peaked at the end of April, the first wave. About fifty-five thousand people a day were being hospitalized. Now we're up to near the end of December. What is that? About one hundred fifty thousand people being hospitalized for COVID. Well over a hundred thousand. That's for sure. I mean, we're getting in excess of 30,000 positive tests some days just in the state of California right now, which which definitely just shows you what a great job Gavin Newsom has been doing, uh, as you might expect from uh, from that wing of the Democratic Party. There's an effort to recall him. What could he have done differently? Because it sure seemed back in April, California, Washington state, they were the gold standard. I mean, there's there's just so many this, these states, particularly things, places like California, Texas, New York, Florida have such enormous resources in terms of even academic laboratories and, and other laboratories that could have easily been 
leveraged and still could be uh, leveraged to really escalate uh, testing capacity in a in a incredibly fast fashion that could have been done very early in the year in 2020 in any of these major states and California did not do better than most states uh, and, and Newsom's in charge of that and you know his hair is still looking pretty good so mm-hmm. I think he's he's probably feeling pretty good about himself but Why, yeah I mean but New York New York is up about eight percent you yep. get a sense that it's shutting down though you really do. Uh, well, the the New York got hit so hard so early that the I think the repercussions are still fairly fresh in people's mind, whereas California did lock down sufficiently to prevent spread for for quite a while until we're seeing, you know, 30, 35,000 positive test results a day now with, you know, 50 to 200 people dying every 24 hours in most of the large states. I think New York is in excess of 100 most days these these days as well. Yeah, we're looking at new cases being reported. There's been a a slight dip, but it'll shoot back up because everybody had to travel for uh, Christmas. Novavax. Novavax is in phase three. That's good. What Um, is Novavax? So this is would be sort of the more traditional vaccine style formulation. So not the, mRNA, not not a, not, not a, mRNA. No, Novavax is recombinant protein with an added adjuvant, as it's called. Basically, it's using oh cells in a dish or in a big vat, effectively, to produce a large amount of this viral spike protein just by itself, isolating that protein, purifying it to a really great degree, sort of chemically locking it in place, and then injecting a small amount of it into you with the addition of an additive that we we call an adjuvant in immunology. You can think of it as sort of a broad spectrum irritant for your immune system to make it oh sit up and take notice to cause the right, so, uh, so let me just let me mm-hmm. let me so i understand this the spike protein sits uh on the membrane of the covid19 virus the spike protein is what hooks into a healthy cell yes it, it makes it possible for the the virus to insinuate itself into a healthy cell and turn it into a COVID factory. So it's the spike protein. Yes. So the Novavax vaccine would be provided AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson's candidates are approved, probably the fifth approved candidate. But the way it works. So you're saying that the vaccine you would inject a lot of spike proteins or just one and that would trigger trigger no, it's, 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 it's not just one. No, um, but it is a very small amount in terms of the amount of mass. But yes. So the EU, the emergency use authorized vaccines in the U.S. right now are both mRNA vaccines. And as we've talked about a bit, that's basically little bubbles of fat with mRNA in them that are injected into you. They smush up against your cells. The mRNA is deposited in your cells. Your cells read the mRNA, convert it into the viral spike protein. Your immune system recognizes that, bam, you have a vaccine. 
the sort of second gen ones, the AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson are both adenoviruses, which are doing almost exactly the same thing. But instead of using a fatty lipid coating, they're using a, the shell of a different unrelated type of virus to deliver that same genetic information that codes for the spike protein. So, in so both, those are both, monkey, the added, the adenoid, what is it called? Adenovirus. So the, Ado, the that's Oxford, a monkey. That's a monkey virus. Yes. The, the Oxford AstraZeneca one in particular is from a chimpanzee that's been altered a little bit. The Johnson and Johnson candidate, as well as the Russian version, are using human adenoviruses, but just the shell of them, of more obscure types of them, basically. Okay. But so yes. let me see if I understand this. Okay. So the, the first generation of vaccines that we're seeing from Moderna and Pfizer, mm-hmm. we, you inject a, a mRNA vaccine into our body. And the idea is to trick some of our cells to produce the spike protein of, of the virus, of the yes. virus, but nothing else. Exactly right. So you're so you're 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 going in these first generation vaccines are really recreating what a what COVID does, but only to Part treat of what it does. Yes, but to treat and Novavax. You're saying is, is the, do they the, do they invade the, the Novavax? This these this vaccine the, doesn't invade a healthy cell and make it produce spike proteins, correct? Exactly. So instead, so those first vaccines that I talked about are introducing genetic information. You can just think of it that way. Genetic, a recipe for making the spike protein. Novavax is introducing the fully produced spike protein already made. So the, the spike protein has been made in a dish outside of your body, collected, purified, and then a tiny amount of it will be directly injected into you with the addition of another chemical or group of chemicals called an adjuvant that will help, oh, the immune response be more lasting and more fulsome. Let's put it that way. So it, it's this is an old school type of vaccine that Novavax. And, and conceptually more traditional, yes. The way it's produced is is fairly high tech, but yes, the the overall scheme is much more traditional. Uh, Novavax uses a very uh, custom adjuvant, that chemical that you add to make the immune response more comprehensive. They have a, a very special version that they've made that appears to work really, really well and is derived from a natural product, from a plant, actually. Okay, so... Uh, so, so Yes, in uh, principle, it's very traditional. And, and the, 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 the spike protein enters our bloodstream through the vaccine, and what cells then are activated. Essentially, the the same ultimate cells are going to become activated to produce a nice lasting memory response. That is T cells and B cells, which are going to to do direct cellular responses in the first case or produce antibody in the latter case. Uh, But the sort of the primary cells that are going to initially encounter it are probably going to be macrophages, uh, those big eaters that go around chewing up foreign proteins or bits of stray proteins that they find in your body. Uh, Macrophages exist in most of your tissues and their progenitors circulate in the blood are called monocytes. And these types of cells, when they encounter what they believe to be foreign proteins, they chew them up, 
place them on little different molecules called, oh, MHC one and two, but that's not super important. And they present them, they show them to T cells and B cells. And that's a critical sort of rate limiting and really important part of generating a memory immune response is antigen presentation. Uh, and this is what's required to really- Do they lift like their this. tails up and present like- like a rabbit. Oh yeah, one. no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They, they, I mean, their tongue's hanging out, they're drooling, they wag around they lift up their tail. This and is like hot down. stuff. This is hot stuff. I mean, you would think so. I'm not sure how many of your listeners would, but certainly you would. But I mean, you are the only man known to have contracted genital herpes from a gorilla, which is a, <laughs> itself a, a different story. So, um, but where were we, David? We weren't we're just, we were ta- so we're talking, so if you get, if you were to get a, uh, a first generation vaccine from Moderna or Pfizer, you get the sure. vaccine, you, you, you uh, never come into contact with COVID and you then get your blood drawn. What do you see if you t- took my blood as though you've never done that before? But uh, if you drew my blood six months from now after I get the vaccine, mm. could you tell that I've had the vaccine? You wouldn't see you wouldn't see any antibodies. What would you see six months from now in my bloodstream? You you could probably detect circulating antibodies still. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily be able to tell if those were from the vaccine per se. My name is from, David. It's not, I keep telling you it's not per se. It's David. Yeah, but I mean, it's you got to admit, David is not really very flattering I at know. your age. And with that haircut, you need any help you can get. I so. am. A, I, people say I am a per se than more than a David. But if you give me the vaccine, if you give me the mRNA yeah. vaccine, I will have antibodies in my system from it. Yes, but and, they will. But most, they will disappear, likely, right? Eventually, they'll decline to below detectable levels. But you will still have some amount of memory B cells, right. That can produce those very same antibodies without having to go through a maturation process again. Is that because the T exposure. cells presented, or was it just? Uh, uh, to, to get a really good lasting memory antibody response, typically you do need anti, anti, antigen presentation to the B cells as well as T cells. But that's um, not one to the other necessarily. I see. OK, very good. This is uh, this is new reported deaths. But uh, we have a uh, real quick uh, in the Q&A here. We already have uh, John Hayes was asking uh, my opinion on the Novavax because he's volunteered for it. Uh, I would say it, it looks really good from the, the combined phase one, two trial results that were published. I think that's in the New England Journal. I'm pretty sure that's freely available if you want to look it up. Um, but it, it looks like sort of the side effect profile is pretty similar to the mRNA vaccines. So, you know, there's some likelihood of pain at the injection site and headache, even pretty nasty headache. But that's pretty rare. So it, it seems like it's it's a pretty good a pretty good vaccine, just like the others. Um, but not as but, good as Sputnik. <laughs> well, I mean, that's according to my paymasters at Russia today, <laughs> nothing is as good as the Sputnik vaccine. Um, 
Or at least that's what people are saying. I'm being paid to say that that's what people are saying, that nothing is as good as the Sputnik vaccine. Oh, we really don't have a good handle on how good the Sputnik vaccine is. It's probably okay. All right. Before, um, before we move on, I'm being told that they're going to ramp up these the manufacturing. And while it's pretty sad right now, and we're looking at the, the deaths, it's, uh, you know, people are dying, new deaths every day. It's about 23,000, 2,700. Uh, uh, but in three months, the, the vaccine, they've already given out close to 3 million shots, right? I'm not sure if they've been administered per se or just distributed, but I think that's that's probably right. I haven't uh, looked in the last day or two. Um, yeah, they're certainly going to be having an effect. Uh, there has been the emergence of a new uh, lineage of concern, particularly in the UK. Um, that my my picture here has been changed to uh that is what my picture is which is a picture of the viral spike protein in a, a uh, potentially concerning group of mutations in a, a subtype that they call here let me see a b1117 so it's lineage b of of this virus uh 1117 and there is a couple of deletions in the spike protein and a couple of mutations that might although this hasn't been demonstrated be able to help this particular lineage evade certain antibodies um that would be mostly a concern for things like monoclonal antibody treatments but that could also be something of a concern for the current vaccine candidates. We don't know if and or how much that would be a concern for the vaccine candidates, which are, again, introducing that whole protein. So altering those little red spots is not altering the whole thing. But if you're altering those red spots in just the right places, um, the immune system has a sort of defined taste and there are surfaces or regions that are considered dominant and if you alter the sequences in the dominant regions then there is certainly concern for what we call an escape mutant that would be able to evade at least part of the response produced by uh vaccines currently in production right professor adnan so that hasn't been shown but that could be a concern okay for this professor adnan hussein has a question he says, I wonder if you have an autoimmune, if you have an autoimmune condition like rheumatoid, arthritis, lupus, et cetera, and take immunosuppressant drugs to control the condition, will the vaccine be less effective? Do you need to go off or reduce the medication ahead of taking the vaccine? You know, I, I don't know offhand. I would suspect you'd still probably be okay, um, particularly for RA. The cytokine intervention you're doing would be of not the sort of core cytokines associated with developing immunological memory, but potentially, yes, that, that might reduce the efficacy of the vaccine to some degree. Okay. But uh, unclear at this point. Andy Brown wants an update from you on how fucked he thinks we all are. Thanks, he writes. Thanks. Oh, 
Well, Andy has been drinking again. <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think there's, despite sort of that, that pessimistic burst of information about the, the B117 um, lineage here, there's not really solid information other than correlative epidemiological research and some really, really limited cell culture data that the Gupta lab at uh, University College London, I believe, uh, did, which is where this picture is from. So I, I would say, as of right now, we appear to be just as fucked as we previously were. So not necessarily any more fucked. So the, the fucking trajectory is still in a, a negative direction, a, a getting fucked rather than doing the fucking direction, so to speak. So, yeah. I hope that answers uh, Andy's question. But speaking of that. <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres uh, is seen riding an electric bike to lunch. She was diagnosed with COVID, I guess, Two month, uh, two weeks ago. So she's doing okay. She's riding her bike, right? Is that at uh, is that at her new house that she bought from your old boss, Dennis Miller? I I don't know, uh, but uh, I hope so. That place looks amazing. There's like a there's like a duck lily pond in there. That's huge. It's it's enormous. I mean, talk about a palatial Santa Barbara. Anyway, go ahead. I I I, I was there. Uh, it's one of the most not one of the. It's the most amazing house and i remember walking in and my first reaction was i could be miserable here i, I was being serious i see i see how you can live this way and still be miserable spokesman for florida governor ron DeSantis has deactivated his twitter after saying every dead covid <laughs> victim should be balanced with 99 wow. photos of survivors his name wow, is Fred, Fred Piccolo Jr. I bet Fred Piccolo Sr. is very. Uh, we'll leave it to somebody named Piccolo to blow it. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, if only uh, Piccolo Sr. had been blown more often, there wouldn't be a junior to be blowing it like this. Uh, speaking of funny, 21,000 Floridians have died as a result of the coronavirus this year. It's got to be more, right? They're not reporting it properly, right? It would be surprising if that was all. Yeah. So more than 2 million people have received the first dose of one of the two corona vaccines approved. There are... Uh, 15, close to 16 million Americans are, are scheduled to get shots in the next two weeks. And those are just congressional staffers. Well, that was my question. People seem to be jumping to the head of the line to get the shots. I right. mean, I, I think there's probably something to be said for setting an example of being first in line to get a shot that has that there's been much conspiracy mongering about. Right. <laughs> right. So if you do see the rich and the powerful clamoring to get the shot, it might reduce the the efficacy of anti-vaxxers. So there's now a study out that says a small number of covid patients develop severe psychotic symptoms sure, before you answer that. I'm sure, but they were all David Feldman show listeners. <laughs> I think there are a lot of 
people with untreated psychotic issues who, when they get the shot, isn't this psychosomatic? Do, do you really think people with no history of mental illness, this whole country is mentally ill. How could anybody have no history of mental illness in America? If you're not mentally ill, you're sick in the head. If you think you're not mentally ill. Wow, I'm, I'm sort of shocked to hear you throwing that much shade at Henry Hakamaki when he's not around. That's it's kind of a low blow. Uh, speaking of low blows, uh, yeah, of, forget that joke. Uh, Hello, Junior. Uh, uh, small number of COVID patients develop look, severe. Look, there's there's a real possibility for neuroinvasion with this virus. Uh, that's true for its some of its relatives that cause the common cold, actually. Um, so there was some concern in the 80s and 90s about findings of, oh, hey, we've we found high levels of coronaviruses in the brains of people with multiple sclerosis. Is this causative? Probably not. Probably a, a, an effect rather than a cause. But th- this these viruses can be pretty neuroinvasive and there is a reasonably well-established alternative cell tropism here that we've talked about a bunch with you. Um, what does cell tropism mean? So that's which cells are being targeted by the virus. Uh, so that's determined largely by the spike protein and the very tip of that spike protein, which contains what are called the receptor binding domains. Uh, and those receptor binding domains interact with the ACE2 receptor. Uh, on the surface of your cells. But it turns out once it's in your body for a little while, and and David likes to put lots of things in his body for a while, just Mm -hmm. to to let them settle and see what it feels like. Um, And then sometimes he has to go to the ER and, you know, Sometimes they have to bring in the colonoscopy machine and it's it's a real mess. Sometimes the light bulb breaks before they're able to get it out. But go ahead. Sure. But you shouldn't. That's why you shouldn't put the Eiffel Tower model in (laughs) as the light bulb. There's a, I mean, I warned you about this. Well, you time, gave me the I snow globe. You gave me the snow globe. And I, I did, but I specifically bought you the polycarbonate model because it was much more shatter resistant and you still managed. I mean, wow. You must really have been doing squats. I'm just saying. But, but regardless, so the this virus, it, it's the spike protein can get cut in a certain way by host enzymes once it's in the body already. And this allows it to potentially infect a broader number of cell types. Uh, some of those cell types could be neurological or closely associated with them. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, I think we've answered all the questions. Let me just double. There's one from Tom that is a little... Uh, hard to understand. Do you want to address this? Tom from Portland is talking about the COVID-19 dashboard that the Center for Systems Science and Engineering puts out, and he has spotted a weird anomaly. Uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't be, I think his his assumption is probably right. There was probably just some hiccup in data collection or data dumping, but I, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that specifically now. Okay. Um, hey, are you going to do COVID uh, the, the next? Uh, have you been asked to do the next COVID town squares? Did we? No, no. Um, I assume that's because you're fed up with my shit. Are you kidding? That, you that were hosting. Growing. You hosted. There was a, we had a game show element to the last COVID town squares. And everybody said, 
Irritable should be a game show host. You would well, make that's a, just, I mean, that's because we had such a great contestant in Andy Brown. Yes. Um, who, despite the fact that the game was clearly rigged in his favor from the get go, <laughs> he still managed to flame out so spectacularly that he ended up with like negative 50 points. It was it was tremendous. Yeah. Um, and, and really kudos to Andy and most especially kudos to Andy's mother for having such really great taste in, Oh, the sexual vivacity as indicated by the contents of, of someone's tone of voice on the, on the radio. Yeah. Someone she, really, really sexy with rock hard abs and an amazing knowledge of uh, virology. Is it, I, I think his mom is a, an immunobiologist, isn't she? Uh, she may be a microbiologist, but oh. it's, it's all the same to me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Irritable. I really do. Uh, you know, people ask me about you and they go, how did you find him? And I, go, I have no idea. You throw you throw some coins out into the street. Sometimes somebody will come by, pick them up and tell you you're an asshole. But uh, I really uh, one, when the pandemic is over, you and Henry are going to tour and sell out theaters around the world. And I'll come and watch and ask stupid questions. The irritable immunologist joins us somewhere. Oh, and, uh, real quick, it looked like there was some, oh, somebody, glyphosate or other things in the vaccine. No, no worries on that. Uh, mercury and aluminum. Uh, no, uh, neither of those things. The mercury containing adjuvant was pulled out of the childhood vaccine schedule in the 90s anyway. Um, but no, there's neither of those things are in the Novavax adjuvant, which is using a, a plant, an organic compound derived from plants, uh, sap, a saponin specifically. Oh, hang on. People raise their I'm sorry. I didn't see. Let's go to Myla. I'm sorry. I didn't see these. Myla, you have a question for Irritable. Irritable just answered my question. Thank you. Oh, okay. And James. James, please unmute yourself. What is your question for Irritable? I'm, I was with my, Milo. We were trying to find out about the glyphosate. Oh, okay. Aluminum and mercury in there. What do you got against yeah. Monsanto? <laughs> we're so pl pl uh, we're privileged to have I am here to actually answer a question, whereas we are all people that are speculating and we're not experts in this field. So, you know where that ends up. Yeah, pretty much nowhere. Right. So thank you, I am. It's an amazing pleasure to have you. I like that. That's his name. I've, I've never heard him called I am before. The irritable immunologist. I am. I, I like love it. that. <laughs> you're the greatest. Yes, he well, is. Thank you, James. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs> God has a question. We have a question from God. He listens. I don't know if you're right. irritable. Um, I'm on the list for the vaccines, but I've um, because I'm housebound, I can't go there, and the temperature controlled at the moment. Mm. Uh, it, I can't actually get the actual vaccine. So are they all? Are they always going to be temperature controlled, or are there are there, are there different variants? Or uh, happily, no. The 
the Adeno vector-based designs should be basically refrigerator-stable almost indefinitely. So uh, AstraZeneca in particular has, has made a big deal about being very, very stable at moderate temperatures. So no, that, that won't be a concern for too long. Uh, if you're in, in the UK, I would suspect AstraZeneca will be approved on an emergency basis within six weeks. No, just just like seems a bit odd that the 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 rolling it out as won't help the vulnerable first, but the the vulnerable are being told to stay in the house. <laughs> so, yeah, that, leave, I, I, that seems very par for the course under the current circumstances. <laughs> unfortunately, doesn't it? I mean, it's <laughs> you risk leaving the house and getting it to get the actual vaccine. Or uh, anyway, just thank, a concern. Thank you, God. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Irritable, I love you. We'll talk, uh, come back next week. If you want to come by and uh, do Diabetic Fury with us this weekend. Oh, shoot me an invite. I may not be around. I have a, I have a date with my good friend, Jim Beam. Oh, um, but I but miss him. I miss Jim Beam. I really Oh, do. good guy. Really a giving, he, giving, yeah. giving person. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, I, I have every hope that you will, you will clip the exclusively the Robert Smigel portions of that and put those up on the internet at the expense of all of the other idiosyncratic portions that are specific to what's actually being fundraised for. By the way, I have to give you a compliment. Oh, that's too bad. What did I do? Well, you did Benefits with Friends last Saturday. You had to follow what turned out to be an hour of killer comedy with Robert Smigel doing Donald Trump and Martha Previtt doing Melania. And then you had to come on and follow that. And you were amazing. It never occurred to me until you came on that that would be a daunting task. And you were as good as you always are. It's, it's incredible that somebody... There's no need for insults. <laughs> no, you were great. No, you were great. Uh, you know, and you're, you're not, it, you know, I tell my kids and their friends who want to be comedy writers or comedians, I just say, be smart. People who are smart and well-informed are naturally funny and then go do something else for a living. But, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're so effing funny and it's because you're so smart. That's all it takes. Anyway. Ha! You are. Well, that was a, that was a great uh, that was a great benefit, and I uh, certainly enjoyed doing that uh, for your um, in air quoting here deserving support staff. Yeah. Um, but you know I'm what's sure. amazing about Smigel? People, well, some people like we posted some of it on YouTube, and they didn't know it was Robert Smigel, and they were going like, "Who is this guy? This is unbelievable! This is so effing fun." There's oh that was fantastic yeah there, there's well, no Martha, wit, Martha back and forth with yeah. him was amazing but he doesn't need the halo effect of being Robert Smigel he's just so fucking funny where you just it's just it's just one gut punch after it's undeniably funny David it, I, I think you're probably going to be rehired next season anyway so you don't really have to keep okay brown nosing that's just true. saying just saying okay. I love you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Yeah, shoot me an invite. I'll see if I can make it. I would love Take it. Care, everybody. We, we, we could use you. Thank you. And let me plug that. This Saturday night at 9.30 p.m., we are going to do 
Is is Mike Steinel? Is Professor Steinel still here? Yes. Don't you see me? I don't see you. I have an idea. Oh, there you are. You're at Feldo's, my nightclub. Yeah, I'm, I. I um, we'll talk about that when you do your plug. After you do your plug. Okay. Try the uh, hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> and don't forget to tip the men and women who hook you up to your ventilator. Uh, I want to do, before I plug Diabetic Fury, it's so sad that Professor Mike Steinel does not have a theme song. Isn't it interesting that the chef goes hungry? <laughs> we should invite people. We should have a competition. Hey, where is the music tonight? There's no music. I, mean, I am in a state of disarray. You always are. No, but it's, it's a, I'm telling you, it's a miracle that there's a show today. Okay. I, I overslept wow. and, and you didn't show up for office hours and hours and teach. See what I do here? I turn the tables on you. Speak up, Mike. You know, I showed up the week before when I thought it was supposed to be. I was a week early. Oh, okay. Then you did it on Christmas, David. We did a Christmas night. By yeah, night. it's still Christmas. Yeah, but... No, I, didn't, I, make it, I was actually kind of scared of the whole thing. Oh, no, no, yeah, no. You know, like the inmates had taken over. No, I'll, I'll show you the lineup. I'm, I'm going to bully you. I, I, I've heard about it. I, it people, are, people are talking about it. People it, say stuff. That's, that's what I hear. That's what they're saying. They're saying that's what the people are saying. Let me let me plug something and then we'll talk with Professor Mike Steinel. By the way, I like this time slot if it's okay with you. That's fine. I'm you sure I'm starting starting a comedy club down here called Feldos. Is that all right? Yeah, you have a do I have to pay a a name and likeness fee? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah, go ahead. At at Feldos, you never have to worry about catching the virus because nobody's there. (laughs) <laughs> I've never Jim Earl is here. He'll tell you about the the two of us traveling around the Northwest as comedians to, playing to empty. Now appearing David Feldman and Jim Earl. And I have, I have the worst story. I'll tell you in just a all second. All right. Let me let me plug our diabetic fury. We're doing this nine thirty p.m. January second, right after office hours and hours. We'll take a break from 9 to 9.30. Dan, are you there? I don't know how we're going to do this. We're, we're doing this in the Zoom webinar, and office hours is in the meeting room, so we can we can do this. An evening of diabetes awareness with Martha Previtt, who you love. You love Martha Previtt. She did Melania earlier on the show. She does Martha Stewart. She does... Uh, Susan Collins and Paula Dean, Jim Earl, Emmy and Peabody Award winning comedy writer will join us. We'll have some material written by the brilliant Dave Cyrus. Also joining us is Robert Smigel. Robert Smigel will be doing Trump. And rumor has it, Professor Mike Steinel, that Melania and Trump, Donald, are going to sing Baby It's Cold Outside. That's oh, what that's I'm here. That's what they're saying. That there's talk <laughs> that we're going to open with Donald Trump and Melania singing "Baby, It's Cold Outside." If that isn't worth the price of admission, I don't know what is. And it's well, 
They're going to try, Dave. It's kind of it's kind of a tricky song to match up with each other. You know, it's a lot of interplay there. Yes. And it's pay what you want in their various tiers. So go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit the pay-per-view menu. It'll take you to Eventbrite. You have to have an Eventbrite account to buy a pay-what-you-want ticket. You'll see the various tiers. And we're doing this on Zoom Saturday night at 930. If you're in the Zoom room right now or watching us on YouTube, don't go to my website yet. I haven't put the the link on the pay-per-view but uh, i will after this show ends in another eight hours we've got another eight hours to go diabetic fury we'll come back and talk about it uh, before we wrap up the show and go over the tears and jim earl is still here so we'll there's still some news to discuss hello professor mike steinell you are you look great it's the lighting man is it the lighting yeah, I've, re- I've been making, you know, I've been really busy, David. Can you turn your volume up a little? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. And, and by the way, uh, whenever anybody sends me a picture of their baby, I recommend doing this. Hey, look at my new baby. And they send me an email. I go, this is a really cute baby. Then again, it could be the lighting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, maybe it's a good angle, but that's, it's, a, it's a good picture of your baby. How's my volume now? Uh, I, good. I, I the 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 chinwaggers will tell us otherwise, if it's otherwise. I've got it cranked up through my uh, interface, so I don't know what else to do. So you you opened up a comedy club called Feldos. I love it. I have a chain like uh, like Mark Breslin. Yeah. I'm gonna have one in Denton and one in Dallas and one. In, I've got I, I I got a tight three and a half minutes. <laughs> I got this book here, the Toastmasters Handbook. Do you know this? Uh, you know, when I studied magic, somebody bought. When I was a kid, I tried to learn magic, and somebody gave me some old Robert Orban books. Bob Orban. I don't know if he wrote that. I, I have a book on comedy over there somewhere, where all the these famous people talk about. Um, they're interviewed about being funny, and it's—I think it's you know uh, Simon and 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 George Goebel and old comics. And one of the guys is one of the interview is walking with one of the comics, and he, he points out this book. That's a good book for comedy. <laughs> Actually, some of the jokes are are only slightly corny. Well, Jackie the Joke Man, who has been missing. He's fine. Uh, I think he's sick of me for some reason. But uh, I've been trying to get Jackie to come back on the show. I always say those jokes, those street jokes that he tells, they're like uh, they're like the, uh, the the chord progressions from like the Delta the Delta Blues that the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton go off and. Steal like those jokes, those street jokes. I find I they they go into my head, and then they come out in another way. Yeah, one of my first emails to you was asking the question that I've heard this that there are only seven jokes, only seven kinds of jokes. One's the 
the pond and another one's the shaggy dog story and uh you know and but no one's been able to answer that and you you were no help either no but uh the people who say there are only seven jokes are joke thieves. <laughs> That's really, you just did my joke on the Tonight Show. Hey, there are only seven jokes. Well, you've stole all of them. Uh, no, there there aren't seven jokes. There are joke structures, but yeah. uh, I mean, there was a I don't know. I don't want to get too into. There was a thing that Smigel did. I right, forget it. Uh, there's certain things that are inexplicably funny. Right. That, and I think they fall into one of those seven structures, but it's still inexplicable. The same way with, I would assume with music, there are certain structures and techniques, but when they're done miraculously, they're inexplicable, right? Like you have to re-listen. What did I just hear? And you go, oh, all right. I, uh, I was just, you know, I, one of the reasons I relate to your this show is because I'm, I have, I feel I've, I'm so incomplete. I have now two novels that aren't published, a book on Dylan that's not published, a big man album that's not published, a, um, a children's. What I sent you to, tonight was a, actually something I did for a children's album. To, to, in, to introduce music to uh, young children. And now I have a grandson who's about a year and two months. You like him? Oh, he's the best, man. He is the funniest little kid. But anyway, we gave him a ukulele, and he went, he attacked it uh, mercilessly. And uh, it's still intact. <laughs> but he's a great little kid. Um, but anyway, hey, I have a bone to pick. Okay. This Dylan thing that you keep harping on. By the way, his new album, the one that was named Album of the Year. Yeah. It's the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. You like it? It's it's the most amazing album. I it is unbelievable. Excuse me, David. Yes, Tom Weber. I'm sorry? We cannot hear Mike at all. We can't hear Mike at all. Well never heard a thing he said. You know what? Hang on a second. Okay. Oh, I, I know why. Shoot. Well, he basically said, David Feldman is... A, now you can hear me, right? Yes. Can we hear him now, Tom? Yeah, I didn't have my... I didn't have the yes. scarlet... My, my interface on. Now Still I'm, quiet, though. Still yeah, too now. quiet? Why, why don't you sing a, a couple of bars? We can hear him now. We can hear him now. Okay. I'm dreaming of a... Oh, 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 oh. We don't want to get dinged. We can't get dinged. <laughs> a little quiet, but we can hear you at least. Like okay. Right, turn, turn up your volume just a little a little more. Okay. I'm fully volumed. Is that better, Texas, Tom? It's better. Now it's almost over-modulated, but it's still quiet. But anyway, we can hear. So that's good. That's interesting. Usually it's yeah, pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it's over-modulated, but uh, we can over hear you and make out what you're saying now. It'd be great if Tom said, can you switch mics, David? With <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever mic Mike is using, give it to Feldman so we don't have to hear him. All right, thank you. Now okay, it's, too, now it's too loud. Now you're too loud. Now I'm too loud. 
All right. How's this? One, two, three, four, five. Now it's good. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Our time is up. Uh, can you come back next week? <laughs> <laughs> right. My 40-hour podcast. We're all out of time. Thank you, Tom. You should have seen Tom and Barb. It's too quiet. It's still too quiet? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Seriously? Oh, I wouldn't lie. You can see it on the chat. Everybody was saying it. One, two, three, four. Okay. And get to where you were. One, two, right three, four, the five. Distortion. Right How's this? You like to like yourself out. So. Hmm. One, two, three, four. See, I'm lighting up now. Bryn says that's better. Lynn says better. Uh, That's good. Andy says that's good. It's fascinating radio, isn't it? Somebody said, uh, James says it's too quiet. Feldman, we can still hear Feldman. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Wow. (laughs) Okay, David. I want to. I want to bust your chops about this Dylan thing here. Your your beef with Dylan for not being more uh, political. Political. And I started thinking about it. I'm wrong. You know what? I mean, some of these songs. I was listening to Dignity. You know Dignity. I've never had any, but tell (laughs) me about it. Well, it's on, uh, I think it's, uh, it's on one of the later albums. I can't remember. It's one of the bootlegs. But, uh, you know, it's beautiful. Fat man looking at a blade of steel. Thin man looking at his last meal. Hollow man looking at a court, cotton field for dignity. Wise man looking in a blade of grass. Young man looking in the shadows that pass. Poor man looking through a painted glass for dignity. Someone got murdered on New Year's Eve. Someone said dignity was the first to leave. I went into the city, went into the town, went into the land of the midnight sun. Searching high, searching low, searching everywhere I know, asking the cops wherever I go, have you seen dignity? I mean, that's an amazing song, I think. Yeah, yeah. Did I lose the microphone again? No, you're you're doing good. You're doing good. But you know, he quit writing intensely uh, descriptive songs after the f- I started thinking about this he he performed on August 28 1963 with Joan Baez at the the Martin Luther King March that you talked about earlier with um, uh, Bert Ross and um, that was in August what happened in November of that year of 63. Yeah. Uh, I think Johnson became president. Yes, Kennedy assassination. And you, you, you got to think that somewhere that was a concern. I know that when, when, Lennon, uh, when John Lennon got killed, he, that really freaked Dylan out. Because he was, even, once he got some, any sort of notoriety, he had no uh, you know, um, uh, privacy. People were in this Woodstock house. He, he would come home and they'd be in his living room. They'd come in through the windows and, and uh, or on his, he'd come out, they'd be on the front porch. Wasn't Woodstock, see. didn't they pick Woodstock so Dylan would show up? You know, Albert, yeah, I don't know about that. He had already signed to do the Isle of Wight thing, you know, which was kind of a mess. He wasn't even 
he wasn't even active by that time. He went to Woodstock because he visited Grossman. Grossman was the first guy to go up there. Albert. Yeah. Isn't that a funny name? Albert Grossman. And it was apparently he was. Yes, he was. Uh, he was a Wheeler dealer. Actually, he probably made Dylan a millionaire. Probably got him started. Very was he like happy. a Colonel Parker, though? Yes. Very hands on. But, but did he screw him as well? I think not. They they parted ways. They shared the publishing. Um, he was a producer, a manager. I don't think, who, who knows, you know? Who knows what he did or not? And don't look back, Grossman, don't look back as the tour of Great Britain, correct? It's it's the first one. Yeah, the the D.A. Pennybacher one. Yes. Grossman looks like somebody who I would want to be my manager if I were young and vulnerable. He, he there was something very protective. He was a, he came across as a thug, which he's a bear of a man. Yeah. Bear of a man. Yeah. Physically, physically. Right. Uh, you know, uh, how did it end for Grossman? I don't know. I think he could he still be alive. I he might know. still be alive. Why you and I read? I read those uh, old bits in the New York Times every day. It's sad. All the people leaving us. Yeah. Uh, did you see that section in the arts today where they had all the quotes by everybody that passed away? No. It was pretty just a little quote. Their last words. Not necessarily. Just something you know, a, a very quotable thing that they. Um, that they had said some were kind of funny some were pretty profound um you know kind of what you'd expect but i just it was kind of was kind of impressive hey topic you you want to know what my last words are going to be because i have i have it i keep them in my breast pocket just in case what are they sylvia royce i hope you burn in hell you're the worst <laughs> divorce attorney who ever existed and i <laughs> I hope you did. You just name a real name. You didn't name a real name. I combined two names of two divorce attorneys. <laughs> well, it's a good thing prayers don't come true because some of those divorce attorneys would be uh, hanging upside down. Uh, I want to mention one last with thing: piano wire to... around their ankles. You, you, you know, in the past, you've said uh, that one of the reasons why you do like a long radio show is that you remembered listening to the radio at night. And I got through many road trips playing music. I grew up in Kansas and we would have to sometimes drive back after, at midnight, three hours to get back to where, where I was living, you know. Mm -hmm. And back then, Larry King was great. He didn't really have celebrities as many. He had interesting people. And I remember... One night he had this guy, Daniel Bornston, on. You know who Daniel Bornston is? The historian, is? the political historian, right? Yes, and he was a librarian of Congress. And he used to say to Larry, shh. That's all he said. Shh, keep it down, Larry. I can't. I'm on the air. Shh. There's a funny story of him getting scolded by um, Newt Gingrich for closing the reading room down, changing. He had to save money, so he, he, he shut down. Oh, during the, the shutdown in 95. Or when did they shut the government down? 95, 96? I don't know, but it would have been, he was, it would have been in the 80s. But anyway, this is what, there, he wrote a book. I remember this vividly. He came on, Larry King, and he talked about his book called The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America. 
And he said, the image begins by noting that Americans have extravagant expectations when it comes to their news consumption. To agree, they demand to be entertained. This is 1962. Truly important, naturally occurring news stories, however, do not occur regularly or predictably. And he brought out that way back, like in the colonial times, they only did a newspaper if there was news, you know. There may be droughts of newsworthy stories. In order to fill the gap, news corporations report what Bernstein calls pseudo-events. Pseudo-events are political spectacles, usually organized by politicians, to tell a certain narrative. For example, a mayor may cut the ribbon at a grand reopening of a historic hotel. The president may pardon a turkey. Or most commonly, a politician might organize a press release. These pseudo-events however, are often mistaken for real news. And more importantly, the media consumers see these pseudo-events often mistakenly believe these politicians are engaging in politics. Anyway, the image is also well-known for defining a celebrity as a person who is known for his well-knownness. Bornstein argued that in 1960, leaders were beginning to resemble media stars rather than politicians. Borston further warned that if, voting, if the voting public continued to be inundated with pseudo-events and unnuanced media coverage, these media stars would soon dominate the political landscape. Boy, did he turn out to be wrong. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. I guess he was thinking of Kennedy, right? Uh, he, he, he gets into that, like the Kennedy appearance of... Um, his demeanor on the television debate is kind of what sold him to the American public, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, that's, you know, like little did he know that we would have how many stations, that, how many networks that do 24 seven with news. no news. No, it isn't. It really isn't. It's truly astounding. Uh, when I can figure out how my TV works, I'll, I'll turn on the news and I what takes me literally 90 seconds in s- just skimming the headlines, uh, the front page of the New York Times, takes me three hours of watching MSNBC to learn what just skimming the headlines of the New York Times will tell me yeah. in 90 seconds. Amazing. You know, I ran it, across this Bornstein guy because... I was looking at this story about Archibald McLeish and Dylan in their failed attempt to bring uh, the devil and Daniel Webster to Broadway. That was a story about three months ago that we never really got to. On talk, but I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, they didn't see eye to eye on how to do that. But, I, but then in that story, I realized that Archibald McLeish was FDR's Librarian of Congress. And apparently he wore his hair up in a bun and glasses. But when uh, the library was closed, he was quite he would let his hair down, take his glasses off. And it was a different. It It was was Archie. It was it was unbelievable. Well, we have to wrap it up. You'll come back next week. Yeah. If you'll play some music. I know it's been chaos here. Sometimes you just have to do a show. Sometimes you sometimes your your show is on the schedule and you go, I'm not prepared. And you just have to do your show without some of your uh, files. And instead of throwing a temper tantrum, 
I love the show. I love you. You're the best. You, you are. Hey, um, I did send you a thing. It's called the staff song. Check it out. It's kind of funny, I think. Oh, yeah, I didn't look at. See, this is it's in your email. OK, I will check it. Well, you'll come back where well, you want to come for our New Year's show. We're doing a show Thursday night. I wish I could say I have a gig. <laughs> so do I. I wish I could say I can't do my New Year's. Will you come by and do uh, our New Year's by. show? I'll bring I'll bring a song. I'll bring a song. song. Bring a yeah, song. I hate to show up empty handed. That's why I, I know. To send a song. I know. And what about office yeah. hours? I'll be there. Friday's good. Friday's good. Can you can you do an hour with us? Of what? Me hosting? Are we doing another twenty four? We're doing that's that's it now. It's always twenty four hours. I almost you know what happened? It, Sarah Bush, who taught everybody how she's gonna be teaching us how to make squirrel pie next week. Yeah. I almost said, What the hell? Let's keep going. And in the chat room, she said, End it. I went, you know what? She's right. <laughs> so I ended. I would have done it. But no, we're gonna do 24 hours every Friday, starting every Friday. We got Diabetic Fury right after it, right? Yeah. 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 They just go right into the other? Yeah, but I, it's, yes, yes. So okay. if, you, if you would like to, uh, I, I could give you uh, the nine o'clock spot. We could start with you. Nine o'clock? Uh, Friday night. That would okay, be New I'll Year's bring, night. I'll bring some music and we'll do some musicking. And Lance Jeffries later that night is going to teach group songwriting. They're going to come up with a theme song for office hours, but it's going to be everybody in the room. He's going to show us how you you work alone. Lance works in groups, so he's going yeah, to teach. a good collaborator. Is that bad? Uh, only for the person you're collaborating with. So <laughs> you'll have to talk to my wife about that. <laughs> uh Okay. Well, I'll email you, and all right, th that will be great. Thank you so much, uh, and maybe Friday. I'll see you New Year's Eve. Uh, let's let's that be a big maybe. I think I get it. I know okay. some of us have lives. I get it. <laughs> Thank right. you. You're welcome. Professor Mike Steinell has two books. What are the names of your two books? I don't have it in front of me. Am I still here? Building a, jazz building a Jazz Vocabulary. Right? Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, book one and book two, and Building a Jazz Vocabulary. And soon to be released, The Lake House, maybe. I'm going to just do it myself, my novel. Have you been shopping it around? Yeah. No, no. You know, it's, it's rough. It's rough out there, David. It's a rough life. I hear the economy know. is bad. That's what they say. I, I wouldn't life. know. I, I live in a bubble. Here with Ellen in Montecito, California. <laughs> I'm going, we're going to see Meghan and Prince Harry tomorrow. Stedman and Oprah are going to make their, uh, their finger sandwiches. We always do that. You're it's actually you're socializing with them? Now? Yeah, yeah. I, I just, in Monte, Rob Lowe. Have you, have you ever seen who lives in Montecito? Uh, we have a Montecito here in town, actually. Just Montecito <laughs> is... Montecito, California. You know how nice Santa Barbara is? Yeah, I like Santa Barbara. Okay. Santa Barbara may be the prettiest, or at one time was one of the prettiest cities in the world. The people who live in Montecito are next door. They look at... Uh, 
They look at Santa Barbara the way the queen looks at a homeless person. That's how nice Montecito is. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Nobody should be allowed to live that way. And when the revolution comes, only I will be living that way. (laughs) Professor Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, and educator. He is the author of Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble and Building a Jazz Vocabulary. You can listen to his music by going to Spotify and looking up the Mike Steinel Quintet. He has a song called a song, an album called Song and Dance featuring Rosanna Eckert. And uh, you can buy it by going to MikeSteinel.com or listen to it on Spotify. I listen to it. I love your music. You, you, you are amazing. Thank you, sir. Good night. Let's bring in Jim Earl and send me the graphics on uh, Force the Vote so we can give the phone numbers out. Are you there, Jim Earl? Or are you yeah, I'm here. Oh, you can't see it on the... Uh... It doesn't look as good. If you send me... Uh, if you, It doesn't fit the screen. Oh, I'll send you the graphics. So we can you know force the vote. I don't have a problem with forcing the vote. I know you don't. Uh, so I'm just uh, uh, illuminating, illuminating it for the uh, rest of the audience. You've been drinking, haven't you? No, no. I haven't been drinking enough. Oh, okay. Let's finish up the news, shall we? Oh, not the fucking news. Yeah. There's some good stories that we didn't get it's to. all I deal with all day long. This is, this is the good news. Okay. Aren't you burned out from the news? Is there good news? It's good news. You kind of mentioned it in one of your shard outs earlier on. Mm-hmm. Alec Baldwin is defending his wife, Hilaria. Apparently, she claimed she was Spanish, but it turns out her real name is Hillary. Ooh. And she wasn't born in Majorca, as she may or may not have claimed, but was instead born in Boston and attended the exclusive Cambridge School of Weston, where fees are $65,000 a year. That's nothing. By the way, I'd like to be called Jimaria from now on. <laughs> I usually call you diphtheria. Apparently, I, she was... I lived in the Los Feliz uh, portion of Los Angeles for a few years. So apparently, Alec Baldwin's wife faked not only her Spanish heritage, but a Spanish accent. Hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, and she tried to explain it away by saying, well, you know, I'm in both cultures so much that you get your accents mixed up. And um, well, hey, if that, if that happened to me, I'd be speaking like Colonel Clink <laughs> or Colonel Bull Carter. Rachel, it's kind of like a Rachel Dolazar. He, he married a Rachel Dolazar. Anyway, Alec Baldwin is la- he's blaming Twitter. Apparently, Twitter caused him to marry a woman who lied to him about her ethnic heritage. And now he's he's doubling down on her, Uh so to speak. Doubling down on it. Well, as we've learned from uh, Professor Adnan Hussein, race, ethnicity, it's a a social construct. Why can't you be whatever you want to be, right? 
I guess so. But if you're using it to just, you know, be a poser, that's the other thing. I mean, there's a difference between being what you want to be and being a poser. Yeah, I guess. Isn't there? I don't know anymore. I, I was in show business for a while, but I've been ostracized. Yes. Yes. You know, heard, how many people, how many guests on this show have uttered that phrase? I used to be in show business. <laughs> On your show? Yeah, I think it's <laughs> yeah. I think it's a prerequisite to get booked here. A homeless man who's been living on the streets practically all his life rescued all the animals at a Georgia shelter after it caught on fire. Keith Walker, 53, saw that W Underdogs was on fire back on December 18th. And he just went in there. He says, I love dogs. And... He says, my dog is my best friend, and I wouldn't be here without him, so I knew I had to save all those other dogs. And uh, the owners of W Underdogs thanked him by giving him a biscuit. Crickets. <laughs> I just, I'm saying these for the first time myself. Yeah, big, <laughs> Who's a good homeless man? Oh, man. He rubbed his belly. Would you do that? Would you run into an animal shelter? To hey, run hot dogs, hot dogs. What? Uh, I don't know if I would. That's a good question. Uh, would I run into an animal shelter? Most Americans wouldn't run into a homeless shelter if it were on fire to save anybody. Well, most homeless don't want to be in a homeless shelter. That's their their horrible places. Yes. Rather. <laughs> Live in a nicer place than that, but you know, I was saying, you know, like we all love animals. I'm just saying, you still eat meat sometimes, don't you? No, 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 no. Oh, good for you. I won't even blow myself anymore. Nobody can. Excuse me. Hello, what? Nobody can be a true environmentalist and a lover of animals and say, you know, and eat them. Right. You know. So. uh but no, I wouldn't fucking save them from a fire. <laughs> Especially right. if you own the building and you were depending on the insurance money. Right. Hey, Princess Di is the most attractive royal of all time. This is in the uh, Daily Mail. They're using... Now, you must know about this because you're a fan of phrenology, right? Aren't you a devotee? A phrenology? Yes. I have a lot of bumps and dings in my head, but I'm can't not a you fan read a man's face and tell us his character from the the shape of his skull? Oh, I read auras. Oh, well, apparently yeah. there's this thing called the ancient Greek golden ratio formula to determine beauty that Leonardo da Vinci was a big fan of. Mm-hmm. Princess Diana. According to Harley Street surgeon Dr. Julian De Silva, he ran the golden ratio analysis on Princess Diana as well as on some other well-known princesses. And he has determined that Princess Diana was the most attractive of all the princesses that he tested. Apparently, you could, there's a test now for beauty. It's the golden ratio. 
Well, the golden ratio is impossible from what I remember from my art history days. It's uh, it's a distortion of the human body uh, put in actual stone and bronze to uh, give the illusion of perfection. But I, I, what is it, eight to head lengths to the body or something? I don't know. You're the phrenologist. This is how we determine physical perfection by comparing the measurements, yeah, the symmetry the, of our faces. That's the, uh, I don't think, it, it, no human, unless they, they have a serious problem, has eight head lengths per body, seven to eight head lengths. Barbie? Per body. What about Barbie? Well, she's hot. Yeah. How many Barbie heads had to be removed from your anus? How many times were you rushed to the emergency room for doctors to remove a Barbie head from your anus? My dad never took me to the emergency room for that. All right. The we golden saw, ratio. The, the golden ratio. The Doriferous, uh, famous uh, sword carrying uh, ancient Greek sculpture, which has been co copied by the ancient Romans and people ever since. Every major sculptor and artist in painting as well. Why can't composed. we see you? Why can't we see your golden ratio? Because I'm I'm forcing the vote? the vote up there. Yeah. Force Send the me vote. the graphic the and I'll, I'll give the numbers out in a second. Apparently, Leonardo da Vinci used the same mathematical formula to draw the human male body for his uh, Vitruvian man. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the Vitruvian man? I must have. It is, it is, it is physical now. perfection, the Vitruvian man. Yeah. It's the, the perfect looking man. And uh, it is. Well, the Renaissance artists dug up a lot. Of, you know, that was the period when a lot of the ancient Greek and Roman art were being dug up. Right. Most ancient Roman art are copies of Greek originals, which have been lost. Right. Uh, forever. So what we know most of what we know from ancient Greek art from Roman copies of which the Doriferous, again, uh, uh, Michelangelo's uh, David, David is uh, almost a copy of the Doriferous. But he's not, David is, into, David is not as handsome. In the pose. But David is not as handsome as the Vitruvian man. I don't know, what, will you put him up? I, I don't have that, but the doctor, uh, De Silva, used uh, technology to examine princesses to figure out which one which one is the prettiest he compared princess diana to mm -hmm. queen rainier rainier of jordan grace kelly of monaco and Meghan markle as well as kate middleton and Meghan markle came in fourth and kate middleton came in fifth according to dr de silva Number one was Princess Di. Grace Kelly was third. Queen yeah. Rainier of Jordan. What, a, what about Cleopatra? Cleopatra? Cleopatra. Who's that? The Cleopatra. Oh, you're mispronouncing it. Uh, what about her? She, he, he didn't compare her? And no, the, these are just the recent. Season. We're looking at Princess Grace right now. She came in third. She gets an 82.4% on face shape. Her chin gets an 
her overall golden ratio rating is 88.8%. That's like a B. It is a B. Here's Meghan Markle. She gets the golden ratio rating of 87.4. Her, uh, her nose width gets a 98.5. Face shape gets an 84.2. Her lips get a 90.8. Her chin gets an 86%. For those of you in the Zoom room and on YouTube, you can enjoy this. I guess if you're listening to this, you'd have to go look at a picture of Meghan Markle. Now, I'm looking at a picture of Princess Di. She gets a golden ratio rating of 89.05. I don't know. I'm not, she, looks, she looks like a guy. I'm I, sorry. Come on now, but... Um, well, I don't, you know, fine. If you, yeah. well, let's let's compare Harry's mom to his wife, brow area. Dr. DeSilver gives Meghan Markle 86% for the brow area. He gives Princess Di 91%. So he's saying that Princess Di's brow area is 5% better than... I, this is great. You know, this is how Mark Zuckerberg started. You know, if you, you should actually, uh, you should put up comparisons of ancient Greek faces, the archaic. I'm Greek. asking you whether Korean or not you Korean. believe what I want to know what kind of taste you have. Do you think Meghan Markle's brow area is inferior to Princess Di's? I don't. Well, I have to see. I can't answer that until I see her breasts. Oh, okay. I position. Oh, Meghan Markle beats Princess Di by one percent. Uh, 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 Meghan Markle, her eye position is ninety-five point six. So I guess that's symmetry. If the two eyes are lined up properly, Princess Di has a ninety-four percent. Eye position, so not as good as Meghan Markle's. Well, uh, also her, her her nose width length. Well, the is, tip of yeah, I mean, look at the tip of Diana's nose. She gets an eighty six point nine, and Meghan Markle gets a ninety eight point five. So Meghan's nose gets a better score than Princess Di. This is horrendous that somebody would do this. Isn't this how Facebook started? Don't know. That's a good question. Uh, There's Kate help. Middleton versus oh, Queen well, Rainey. Western arts. Western arts. Kate no. Middleton gets an 86.2 golden ratio rating, and Princess Rainey of Jordan gets an 88.9. That's not nice to. All right. You know, if you're going to see, this is the problem with this kind of methodology is it's it's incomplete. It's missing genital data yes you know they it's one ball length eight ball lengths per penis that's the vitruvian man right i don't know i, I you keep talking to me about vitruvian man well he is the personification the platonic ideal of a gorgeous man well, then put him up i can't so find just... vitruvian man. why would i share vitruvian man that's in my personal stash. Why would I? Why would I show that to you? How do you compare to the Truvian man? You've well, seen yourself. And well, it's Truvian funny man. you bring that up because Sue Murphy, 
Remember Sue Murphy? Of course, of Murphy St. Paul, the other uh, comedy team in the San Francisco Bay Area. They were the rich man's Lankin Earl. That's what we used to call them. <laughs> if you if 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 you can't get Murphy St. Paul, you go with Lankin Earl. So are, do you look at this? She go to yeah. SueMurphy.com. Little did we know when we all started doing comedy low so many years ago, Sue Murphy, very funny comedian, very funny comedy writer, was taking pictures of all of us. And anybody who was a part of the San Francisco comedy scene spent Christmas. It, it spread on Facebook, right? Didn't you spend Christmas going through SueMurphy.com? Because... She has pictures of us dating back to the early 80s. But you obviously knew what was going on because you're mugging for the camera gratuitously here. Well, here I am. Do I look like Vitruvian Man? There's Alex Reed. Or you're just finishing up on somebody. (laughs) That's nice. There's Larry Brown. There's me wearing a hat. Actually, that's not a hat. That's That's just a gnarly hair plug. What? One of those three people is worth billions now. <laughs> I believe it would be Alex Reed, right? <laughs> yes. And there's yes. Stephen Pearl. Where? Oh, yeah. On, on the far left. <laughs> a, it, is it fair to say that Stephen Pearl? Yeah, that genius? looks like Stephen Pearl's eye. Was yeah. Genius, right? Yeah, he was incredible. He was. Um, he still is. He yes. demands a dynamo. I could not talk to Stephen Pearl. When I moved to San Francisco... I would watch Stephen Pearl, and he would, lightning bolts from God. I would see lightning bolts from God as he performed at the Holy City Zoo. And I still, to this day, cannot make small talk with him. That's how funny he is. Another genius who I was friendly with, Warren Thomas. Warren Thomas worked with him at the Air America, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He was wonderful. He was a great guy. He was a a brilliant comic. Yes. And he... He gave up a chance to be on uh, SNL. Well, there's a long, great story about that, but it had a lot to do with integrity. And uh, Lauren left him. He, he wouldn't wait the six hours for Lauren. Yeah, another person would, and that that man got on the show and and attacked Chris you Rock. on Bill Maher, I believe. Oh, who attacked me on Bill Maher? Weren't you attacked on Bill Maher? Didn't he attack you on anyway? That's and who? Oh no, no, he was on Bill Maher, and he. I think he made a remark about Warren Thomas. Uh, but but you, and then an attacked asshole, you being an asshole, and and then I called him out on Facebook for that. Yeah, and he uh, he apologized. Yes, he did. Yeah. And who's that young man? That Vitruvian man next to Warren in the background? I can't see. It was too blurry. You don't see me. Well, I wouldn't be, know if he was Vitruvian or not. If That's me. Showed me. Oh, yeah, I know that's you. But <laughs> All right. There I am. That's Warren. That's me and Carrie Snow. I don't know what year that is. It's got to be the 80s, right? Uh, that's early 80s. Yeah, that's Comedy oh, Day. Yeah. Comedy Day in San Francisco. <clears throat> There's me. And Larry Brown, I'm wearing my Navy hat, so that is my dad's old Norton set. That had to be like 1992. And there's Will Durst behind us. No, that's not 1992. Uh, that's still in the band shell. 
uh, at the, in Golden Gate Park when they had Comedy Day in the band show. They so moved it ninety. Had to be ninety. Eighty-eight. They moved it to uh, the bigger part of the park. Was this eighty-eight? This is before eighty-eight. No, no way. That navy hat. I, I I have pictures of me wearing that hat. I wore that hat every day for a year. It could not have been eighty-eight. Maybe. It's, that's the band show. There's me with Frank Prinzi. Yeah, what what happened to him? I think he, I don't know. Women loved Frank Prinzi. And what are you doing there? What are you in this picture? Can you remember what you're doing there? I don't, I, it was comedy day. I don't know. Um, I don't know who that person is. I mean, I'm looking at myself. I'm going, I, that, that, I don't know who he is. And there I am with Debbie Durst. Debbie Durst, yeah. In a in a Brooks Brothers, I'm wearing a, a Brooks Brothers button-down shirt. Nothing could be more alienating. What year is that? That's 88, before 88. 88, Jesus Christ. Ah, okay. Bad times. No, you those were great. the ones with us. I didn't. I'll show that. I thought I had. I thought I did. No, you didn't. Oh, okay. I'll show that next time. Uh, well, if you're, you're San Francisco, you're ashamed of my beauty. Yes. In comparison, your Vitruvian to yours. golden ratio of beauty. I had a ratio then, and it was golden. Did you now? Were you considered? Did women like you back then? Were you able to? Women have never liked me. But they are attracted to me. Is that true? Uh, I have no idea what I'm saying. Were, were you? Were you? Because people didn't like me. Like I liked you. You liked me, but like people were afraid of me. I think when I first came to San Francisco, maybe it was the guns. It might have been the guns. Maybe it was the World War II era flamethrower. You were you were uh, like a staccato comic. You were like a machine gunner mm-hmm. up there, an angry machine gunner. Uh, I I dug up a couple of old Holy City Zoo open mics at the Lake and Earl Freak Show we used to put on at the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco. Uh, I think it was around eighty six or eighty seven, and I sent them to your daughter. Oh, is this for the humiliation? It could be. Oh, that's going to be bad. That's nasty. Are these videos? Yes, the very grainy videos. You know, the ones that you could turn on the video by secret behind the uh, rear bleacher and uh, record anybody. And Barry and I used to do that and they'd take them back. So you have video of me from what year? Uh, I think it's 86. 86. I have it on the thing. 86, yeah. Here's a joke. This was my act. Here's a joke. First the setup, now the punchline. And I will wait for the laugh. <laughs> that was my well, act. One of the clips says you're doing the uh, Dr. Ruth joke. Uh, okay. So somebody's paying $250 for this? <laughs> and it's going to be wonderful. No, it's going to be pretty entertaining to somebody. So for those of you who are just joining us, one of the tiers for the benefits with friends uh, was a publicly private humiliation of David Feldman 
uh, and Dave, I guess Dave M or Dave A, pay $250 to see me publicly humiliated in a private Zoom room. And my daughter and Jim and maybe John Ross are going to do a half hour PowerPoint where they humiliate me. Uh, It's going to be very... When is that again? This Wednesday night at nine before we rehearse Diabetic Fury, which is going to be uh, at 930 on Saturday night. Should I plug it? Robert Smigel's going to be there doing Trump. And absolutely. If I can write it before then. And we also have Dave Cyrus helping out. So that's good. Um, And Rick Overton. Who's in I'm Dying Up Here, the Showtime series about stand-up comedy. The brilliant Rick Overton. And Larry Wachuski, maybe. All the proceeds go to Diabetic Fury. And there are several tiers. If you want to know what the levels are, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the pay-per-view menu, and it'll take you to our Eventbrite page. Don't do it right now if you're in the Zoom room or if you're watching us on YouTube because we haven't punched in the link yet. But right after this is over, if you're listening to this as a podcast, go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now. Hit the pay-per-view button and it'll take you to the Eventbrite page where you can purchase a pay-what-you-want ticket for Diabetic Fury. It's Is this number four? I believe so. And and we're selling art and another public humiliation or just pay what you want. Uh, Martha's got a, a wonderful uh, collage representation of uh, Feldo the Clown when you dressed up and it used to dress up in a yeah. clown costume yes. in the mid 80s. Yes. And. Uh, Yes, so that will be offered uh, in in some tier. Uh, are we actually doing a, a run through of the scripts Wednesday? Is there going to be a script ready? by we we don't need no. That. Okay, <laughs> well, we can have then, then we'll have uh, what they call a creative meeting. Yes, a creative meeting. I'll have a creative meeting. Otherwise, I'll have a nervous breakdown. Okay, and my daughter's teaching comedy writing at office hours and hours. Oh, really? Yep. Everything uh, she learned from you? She teaches comedy writing at this performing arts camp. And pass, it's, no pass. It's, it's the mo- I'm not making this up. It's one of the most popular courses every summer at this performing arts camp. And she does gets she, paid. She gets paid she to do, teach comedy writing. Does she and, drop your name? No. And, and one of the, the, the course... Uh, the title of her class at office hours this Friday night or Saturday is it's course in comedy writing. Well, anyway, uh, I won't talk about that. I can't even get a job doing that. You could, you could go grease the shoots for your daughter. This is outrageous. There's no meritocracy in this business. It's all who you know. <laughs> uh, all right. Should we wrap it up, Dan, in the newsroom? 
Oh, and now you turn to Dan to save your your hide. Well, this isn't going to work anymore, Feldman. We know who you are, Dan, in the newsroom. Yes, sir. What do we What do we have? Well, we have uh, the invisible ninja sent me a message to remind us all that we have the uh, Ed Larson's movie Watch Party coming up. How America Killed My Mother on January 13th. And those tickets are going to be coming soon. So we'll have some info on that for you soon. Right. We're going to do we're going to do a screening of Ed Larson's movie, How America Killed My Mother. And then we'll I will moderate a conversation before, during and after we will do a mystery science. No, no. Uh, before the movie starts, we'll take some questions and then we'll talk to Ed and the director afterwards. And, and it, Invisible says before the movie, we'll also have a world premiere of Invisible Ninja's animated cartoon. Oh. In which, in which he sneaks into David's house and shows people what happens in Feldo's world. And you'll Ooh. be shocked at what he's uncovered. Oh, boy. It's Ooh. inspired by Robert Smigel and made with real audio from the show. Oh, wow. Also, can, can we house, show? are we allowed to show it afterwards on the show for people who don't? Come, I well, guess that would. I guess that would not be an incentive for people to buy tickets if they could see it. Uh, later. We will talk about that afterwards. Yes, but uh, Invisible says, Ninja. Where can we look at his cartoons? They're absolutely brilliant. His website's coming soon, but his Twitter is up and active, and it's at People's Comic underscore. He's so great. He's so great. Um, he said also while in the house, Invisible found a bunch of botched interviews that David tried to keep hidden, and those will be released to the public if demands aren't met. So that's that'll be fun. Botched interviews. Yeah. Hmm. Can't do many of those, but we'll see. Oh, okay. Um, next up is uh, Professor Hussein posted a message for me on the Community Billboard channel of Discord a couple weeks ago that the Mudgeless podcast has released the sixth episode. Wow. And Dr. Sanober Umar uh, was their guest, and he was speaking about raciali- racializing the subaltern. Muslim minorities in India and the shapes of state violences by the Mudgeless. Okay. You can check that out on uh, anchor.fm forward slash the dash Mudgeless. Spe- yeah, spell Mudgeless for us, please. M A J L I S. Okay, thank you. And Gorilla History, don't forget that. Yep, that's coming up in a moment. Uh, Professor Adnan has mentioned to me a, a couple times that you always kind of put an extra I in there, but it's there's just one I in um, Mudgeless, M-A-J-L-I-S. There's um, only one I in Mudgeless and, yep, and, and, and a Sammy Davis 8x10. Go ahead. That's right. Um, listener Glenn Costick, who yes. uh, we heard. We heard from uh, on the last episode where he was letting us know that he made a big pot of chicken soup on the wood yes. stove. Yes, he made chicken soup on a bread. wood stove. Yep. And then he made some homemade bread the next day. Well, on, on Saturday, he sent me a message that uh, he woke up at, up at 4 a.m. to get the free comedy writing lesson. And he set up uh, his phone on the tripod. When he sat on the bed, a bed board broke and he fell through the gap. And at that point... Uh, you had canceled your appearance because you had to, to deal with a, an urgent situation. But he told me that this morning I fixed the four poster bed with my rechargeable drill with a Phillip head uh, bit. He had lobster and it was a good Christmas. That's fantastic. He's also a glass blower. Did you know that? Yes, he is. Yep. 
I, they see now that you, why why didn't you lead with that? You didn't tell me. But they, 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 they blow to get a glass blowing job is my question. That, Send me a message. I want to hear about his meals. That that should be the top story. Dentfeldman at gmail.com. Yes. Just tell me what to say and then I'll say it. That's right. And how's the rivalry? Anything else going on? The rivalry between Andy and Tom? Is that. There's been nothing on that. Uh, Andy said he's got a secret that he's got to tell the community billboard, but he hasn't coughed it up yet. Okay. Um, but I can tell you that Tom, well, Tom Weber is selling his art on his website at tomweberart.com. And he and his wife, Barbara, are back in action, as we saw a couple nights ago. So right. So office great. hours and hours. They did a, a solid hour and they did a half hour Tuesday night show that week as well. So they're uh, getting back in the swing of things, sounding great. And lastly, I have uh, on my list the Gorilla History podcast, which you had brought up with uh, Henry Hakamaki, Adnan Hussein, and Brett O'Shea are the hosts. And you can find them at twitter.com forward slash gorilla underscore pod. Their Patreon is uh, patreon.com forward slash gorilla history. And you can find their podcast directly at gorillahistory.libson.com. Fantastic. We, we should also mention that we are doing a show New Year's Eve. It starts at five o'clock and we're going to go, I would assume, to 11, maybe depending on who shows up, we may go into the new year. But we're going to ring in 2021 and bid a not so fond farewell to 2020 this Thursday, starting at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our regular crew will be with us and we'll have some surprise guests. And uh, then we do office hours and hours starting Friday at 9 p.m. For me, it's somebody said to me, how do you do this? I go, what are you talking about? Well, I, I don't do anything at office hours anymore. It's fantastic. I, I say hello at nine o'clock and then I sit back and I can watch. It's fantastic. It really is amazing. And if yeah. you would like to come to office hours and hours, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit office hours and just RSVP. And you get, I think you get it like an all day pass that lasts. It's just a recurring meeting. You can keep, I think you just have to register once. And in order to attend a live taping of the show in the Zoom room, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit attend a live taping. Sign up for the newsletter. That way you get the reading list. Reading list is pretty good. People love it. That's great. Yeah, I, I'm gathering stories for the show, as I normally do, but I'm including it in our newsletter. And then people are sending me things to read, either on the Discord or through email. And I, if I think it's interesting, I'll include it in the newsletter. So it's a reading list. Stuff that you should read to understand the show better pretty valuable is the aggregation help yeah yeah it's awesome yeah we we scour we have a lot of great minds here and they scour the the web and they find videos and tweets and articles and i compile it and put it in a newsletter for everybody to read so sign up Speaking for of yes showering i just uh, found the picture you were talking about oh that's Maybe. yes that's Comedy Day. What year is that? That's 1990. 
That, I remember that shirt. I wore that. So I wore that shirt on my very first evening at the improv. And I bombed because I was going for that, you know, beachcomber look. And I flew to Atlantic City depressed. And I made a promise to myself that I will never try to be anything other than what I am. That shirt. Mm-hmm. I swear to God, I remember that shirt. I remember thinking uh, that's not. I remember who. that shirt, too. I, I actually do. I remember yeah. that shirt. Yeah, I thought it would make me more available to the audience and it didn't and i realized you're a hateful horrendous looking person nobody likes you and that's your strength don't try to make them like you and then you tried false humility and yes. that also that also bombed terribly yes. i remember when you tried to be in the sports mm-hmm. This is a true story. This is so humiliating. Why are you giving this one away for free? Somebody paid two hundred and fifty dollars. You're right. I'm sorry. This is when I when I try to get into baseball. You know, I you know what it was. It was in nine. I'll tell you when I remember it. It was 1989, and I can remember playing Vancouver and and studying baseball, so I would have something to talk about with the Canadians. And I remember talking on the bus to people about, oh, this is great. This is, you can, you can, you can relate to the world on something that isn't, you know, politics. It's, it's just simple. It's baseball. This is, and you and Barry began to uh, call me on my bullshit. Well, it was fun. I mean, I know it was, it, we actually loved that part of your act because it was hilarious. It was me trying you know, to trying- be an everyman. It was like trying to watch uh, Robbie the Robot um, <laughs> talk about baseball. <laughs> it was just methodical, and <laughs> and yeah. then so and so, you know, it was. I don't. There I was a period where Larry used to take me to Oakland A's games. I loved the Oakland A's. There was Dave Parker, Ricky Henderson. Uh, Larusa, the manager, was a vegan animal rights guy. He's coming back. Isn't LaRusa coming back? I don't know. That's LaRosa, right? You're thinking of Julius LaRosa, who Arthur Godfrey fired. And you're thinking of Orange Julius, where I got fired. So I was Frank. We just went like from three different areas of the world. And I know, subjects. but if Frank Conniff here, he would have been. Frank Conniff were here, he would have laughed at my Julius LaRosa reference. Well, thank God he isn't. <laughs> okay, let's. Well, did I cover reasons. everything? Yeah, we did. You got it. He did. Okay, we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, do the rundown. The rundown. Rundown. Oh, who who was on the show? Yep. Oh, I can do that without looking. Do you, do you have it in front of you? Yep. We started with the shard outs, Melania. Briefly had Jim, but there was no time. Then we had Grace Jackson and Henry Huckamacki doing the news. That was fantastic. Then we had Mark Breslin, Howie Klein. Then we had Russell, Professor Russell Spriglia and Leisha Brooks. Then we had Dr. Harriet Fraud. I, I, I'm doing this all by memory. Dr. Harriet Fraud, then Professor Adnan Hussein. Then we had Professor Marianne Cummings. And then we had the irritable immunologist, 
and then Professor Mike Steinel, and then Jim Earl to wrap it all up. And, and then, and and then also, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. And you also had uh, Martha Previtt. I said uh, Melania. You said Melania. They're, they're, they're not the same thing, Dave. Oh. Martha is a real person. Melania is uh, this... Now I show you my teats. No, oh, thank you. No, 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 no. That's not the way. See, what you've done, she has become this horrific thing that just shows me your teeth. So, wait a minute. <laughs> Dave Lawless. Thank you, David. Thank you, David, for remembering. Thank you. Don't get sick. I won't. Be best. And hail to the Hitler. <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, no, see, you can't. You can't do the, you that. Rex, every, you, she, you know, she built a nice garden in the White House, and then she says something like that. Uh, we have a question from uh, somebody in the. Oh, great. Jesus. Uh, how do we push Biden to the left? That's a good question. How do we push Biden to the left? Uh, with a fucking pitchfork. Next question. <laughs> All right. Uh, that per- push him to the left. Uh, Saul says that person you didn't know who it was. I think it's Fred Stoller. I don't think it was Fred Stoller. Uh, okay. An anonymous attendee says all three people I know who recently got the Moderna vaccine had a feeling of a burnt tongue as a side effect, uh, along with bad flu-like side effects that knocked them out for a few days. They are still, of course, getting the second dose, but hope that those bad side effects will not deter other people from getting the follow-up dose. They all claim they were that sick that if they didn't know any better and didn't have a background in science, they would see where the average person may not come back. They said if they if they didn't know any better and didn't have a background in science, that they could see where the average person may not come back. All right. But we're told that sometimes there are minor side effects to a vaccine. Oh, yeah. With the yeah. flu vaccine. But I've never had any side effects for the flu vaccine. I've had them every year for the last 10 years or so. That's good. Dave Lawless, you have a, a statement to make? Before, uh, we begin the, before we begin the questioning, I understand you've prepared a brief statement. Uh, uh, no, no, I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know I was supposed to prepare anything. You raised your hand. Oh shoot! Never mind. No, that was not on purpose. I apologize. This show is run like clockwork. I know. It's a well-oiled machine. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's it. Is that our show? Don't you have any ending fanfare or something? Like, okay, that's the show. And here are the credits. We should run credits now that we're uh, we're on YouTube. Is anybody watching us on YouTube? Yeah, we've been between like 80 and 120 most of the night. Really? Mostly lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel come visit us in the Zoom room go to davidfeldmanshow.com thank you all for joining us we'll see you New Year's Eve and remember to stay strong and protect the weak it's time right now 
For the David Feldman Show He's talking politics and comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty from way back He's a union man with an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting The David Feldman Show To get your ears on right Buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way Hey, and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. 